Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff with TELUS. This is being brought to you live and recorded live on January 2nd, 2021. The first show, of course, of 2021. And it is 9.57 p.m. right now. And if I don't sound like I did before, I don't know if I do or not. This is the first test of the new computer with the new external sound card. I've had this computer for about two months, but I did not have the right sound card to work with the radio because it did not come with the stereo mix capability, which was quite disappointing. And there was no way, after a lot of work, I found there was no way to get such a thing enabled. In fact, it may not even have a possibility to work because I believe the drivers for it were never written. Anyway, I bought an $80 external sound card, which... uh, I think is working, except I'm going to have to get used to hearing myself back when I'm talking, which it's a little bit annoying. It's going to be a process getting used to, unless there's a way to disable this. But uh, I did like it the other way better, where I didn't hear my own voice back. But what can I do? As long as I sound good to you, I don't care if I have an echo back to myself. So we have a free roll going right now, a very large free roll. And you have a little time to get in. You have uh, another... About 12 minutes to get in. It started at 9.45. There's 25 minutes of late registration. It is a $200 cash free roll from, I bet you can guess who it's from. Who is the most generous donor in recent years on Poker Fraud Alert regarding time and money regarding this show? I think you know who it is. Attorney Eric Benzamokin gave $200 Two hundred dollars to start the new year off right, in honor of Mike Possel likely not being represented by anyone in about twelve days. He's going to lose his attorneys in all likelihood. I say in all likelihood because it hasn't officially happened yet. His attorneys have filed the motion to be dismissed as counsel that is on the public record. We have verified that has happened, but uh, of course he still has twelve more days to reconcile and get the attorneys back. So it's not done yet regarding him having attorneys, but if I were to bet on it, I would uh, say it's a very large favorite to occur. So Eric Benzamokin, in honor of that, has put $200 up tonight for this free roll. So instead of paying two places like we did last week, or three places like we've been doing most weeks recently, we are going to play, pay five places, and five places all fairly well. 
So first place is going to get a hundred bucks, hundred dollars in a small field free roll. Very very nice. Second place fifty dollars. Third place twenty five dollars. Fourth place is fifteen dollars, and fifth place, which we rarely pay these days, gets ten dollars. So no more heartbreak of finishing fourth or fifth or last week third, where you get nothing. Here you actually get paid top five, and I can't imagine that there's a ton of people in this free roll. By the way, uh, a guy messaged me tonight and said he wanted to get into the free roll, no doubt because it's bigger than usual. And I know the guy actually is a listener, so he's not trying to roll me or anything, but the problem is you can't come to me like moments before radio and expect to get in. So I would have helped him if I had the time, but I didn't have the time. It was really like minutes before radio. If you want to qualify for future free rolls, you got to follow the instructions. Go to pokerfraudalert.com slash free roll, all lowercase. Pokerfraudalert.com slash free roll, all lowercase. Read the rules, understand how you can qualify, and then PM either me, Dan Space Druff, or Belly Buster, that's Belly Space Buster, on the forum to get your account validated to play. And make sure you do it well in advance of the free roll because it's not going to happen like a few minutes beforehand unless you happen to catch me with like, a little bit of spare time before the show, which usually doesn't happen. Usually I'm kind of like frantically getting ready at the last minute with things I haven't done yet. This Tonight it was trying to get everything with the sound card working as optimally as possible. By the way, if you're in the chat room, we have a chat room which works on every device. All you need is a Poker Fraud Alert forum account in good standing. And if you can get in there then you can see it because it is no longer restricted to devices with Flash anymore. There's no more Flash on Poker Fraud Alert, so any device can get into the chat room now. Uh, let me know if I don't sound good or if I sound different. Uh, it's a series of adjustments when there's a new sound card to get it to sound optimal, and even a series of adjustments to where I don't sound suboptimal to myself when I hear myself back, which I'm going to try to work on this week before next week's show. Maybe it's something I can't stop, in which case I'll just have to deal with it. But I like to have as few distractions as possible when I'm doing the show so I can provide you with the best show possible. But I I have to imagine I'll get used to it, even if uh, there is no way to stop that. Anyway, we have eight more minutes left before you can get into that free roll. $200 free roll. So rush on in there if you have a validated account on the Poker Fraud Alert, No Fraud Online Poker free roll. We have a lot of topics to get to. Nothing really long this week, so I don't think it's going to be a super long show. You never know, though. You never know what comes up. But uh, we have a number of topics that uh, inconveniently this week came up right after the last show. I like it when poker drama occurs the day of or ideally the day before the show. Because then it's fresh, then it's new, then it seems like we're breaking stories. If it happens right after the show, we've got to wait for a week to cover it. So some of the stuff that I'm going to talk about tonight obviously has been uh, discussed already in the poker community for the past week, but it is new to us as far as broadcasting this show. The only good thing about uh, the extra wait is that we get a little additional time to analyze everything and see how everything plays out. My favorite is when something breaks the day before, because then it's not super new. I have time to look into it and digest it, and yet it's new enough to where it's like very, very current news. But that's the way it goes. Sometimes it falls the right way, sometimes it does not. I'm going to try to get the show back on Friday eventually. I almost did it last night, but I just didn't announce it in time. 
So I figured, okay, I, I can announce it and say, okay, we're do, doing a show in an hour and a half, or I can just say, you know what, we'll just do it tomorrow. So I said, we'll just do it tomorrow. So here we are, Saturday, January 2nd, the first show of 2021. This is the 10th calendar year that we are doing Poker Fraud Alert Radio. You heard that right, the 10th calendar year. Does that mean the show has been on 10 years? No. Does that mean the show has been on nine years? No. So how is that possible? How is this the 10th calendar year we've done the show? Well, because the first calendar year was 2012, and the last calendar year so far is 2021. So if you look, that's 10 years, even though we have not, uh, 10 different years, even though we haven't been on for 10 straight years. The ninth anniversary of the show will be in March, and then the 10th anniversary of the show will actually be next year in March. So we're actually 14 months away from our 10th anniversary. We'll try to do something for that. Uh, the 400th show will be coming before that. We didn't really do anything for the 300th, but we'll definitely do something for the 10th anniversary of Poker Fraud Alert, which is coming a little more than a year from now. But no point to prepare for that yet. Let's stay current. If you want to call, the phone number is 775-372-8355. 775-372-8355 is the phone number to call Poker Fraud Alert Radio and always has been at 775-FRAUD55. You can also call the Mount Charleston line. The Mount Charleston line is located in a cabin on top of Mount Charleston, which is about 45 minutes away from Las Vegas. There is snow on Mount Charleston. Snow does fall on Mount Charleston every winter. The phone number is 702-430-1808. It's an old 70s rotary phone. 702-430-1808. Look, we have someone just, like, calling right now, but you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to take it. Call, you're on the air. Call, hello. That's great. Thank you. Quality call. Thank you very much. I love when the show gets interrupted and a person hangs up on me. I think I know what happened, too. I think the person was probably trying to call the call-to-listen line. We get that common mistake. People want to use the call-to-listen line, which I love. I love the fact that it gets used. But I don't love the fact that the call-to-listen line is often confused for the call-in number to the show. So if you want to call the call-to-listen line, which is the number you just call and listen, there you, there you don't have to worry about speaking to me. There you don't have to be ashamed or shy or embarrassed. All you have to do is call and listen. That phone number is 605-313-0736, 605-313-0736, or the alternate number 641-741-1095. It does not require a smartphone, a data plan, a computer, the internet, or even a very strong cell connection. No, 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 no. If you can place any phone call in the U.S., you can use the call to listen line from any phone that can dial. 605-313-0736 never freezes, never buffers over 1 million minutes listened to on the call to listen line, including, I'm guessing, the guy who just called me right now from the 917 area code and hung up in my face rudely. I bet he called the call to listen line after sheepishly hanging up, realizing he dialed the wrong number. But in order to prevent yourself from being like him, just go to the radio tab and look at the list of phone numbers. We have them all listed for you right there in case you forget them. And then you can just uh, call up the correct number to listen to the show. seems like every week we get uh, one person who makes this mistake. Okay. By the way, if you want to call and actually talk to me, uh, try to do it when I say to call or just between topics, and we'll be more likely to take your call. Speaking of calls, let's try to reach someone who I know won't hang up on me, at least not intentionally and not until he falls asleep. That is Trader Ruski. 
What's happening, Draft? Trader Risky, hello. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And uh, by the way, I want to announce something I forgot. We have a tent. Oh, Did he hang up on me on purpose? Well, whatever. A $10 bounty is on Shoeshine Box. I assume he plays the Shoeshine Box or something similar to Shoeshine Box. But the, there actually is a bounty on him. If, so if you knock out Shoeshine Box, then you will get $10. He sent that to me today, and I appreciate that. Shoeshine Box, very nice guy. A World Series of Poker dealer when they had such a thing. He dealt to me during the main event on my final day last year. The final day I played tournament poker. Uh, actually, period. So, uh, But he, he donated $10, so thank you very much to him. And that's a bounty. If you knock out Shoeshine Box, you get an additional 10 bucks to anything else that you will earn. So thank you, Shoeshine Box, for the donation. So anyway, Trederuski, did you hang up on me on purpose or was that an accident? No, it was an accident. Okay. I may have to kill my Wi-Fi too. Okay. I mean, that was that was appropriate. That everyone's hanging up on me tonight, too. It was appropriate that uh, you joined into the festivities. Okay, so uh, right here's the agenda, and we're going to get going. The WSOP event final table was set. This is the second main event and the domestic version of it. That whole weird thing they have going on this year. And remember, the rule was that if anybody tests positive for COVID, then they get automatically force finished into ninth place, no matter what their chip stack is. They don't get to blind off. They just get disqualified, kind of disqualified. Disqualified would kind of imply they don't get paid. But I I should say they get force finished into ninth place. Well, that actually happened. Like very shortly after our last show, it turned out this happened. And uh, I'll tell you all about that. You may have heard about it already, but I'll tell you who it happened to where their chip stack was as far as uh, ranking at that time, and how I feel about it. I have some various feelings about the matter. Related to that, Matt Stout, who is a fairly well-known poker pro and had some success in tournament poker for sure, he drew the ire of the poker community by making multi-accounting accusations against that same person who got disqualified. Unrelated to the disqualification, it was for COVID, but as that was being discussed, he came out and made multi-accounting accusations against the guy involving other WSOP events. So uh, we're going to talk about that as well, because that I actually think is a more complicated situation than the disqualification itself. But that spawned a separate controversy. Then a third topic related to the WSOP main event. Remember the million-dollar heads-up free roll that they scheduled for the winner of the domestic main event and the new international main event? Not the regular international main event from the summer or October, whenever it was, that uh, some guy already won. No, we're talking about the new international main event, which somehow is a second main event, that uh, took place in December. And the winner of that was to fly to the U.S., for a million-dollar free roll against the winner of the domestic version. Well, the international winner, Damien Salas, couldn't get into the U.S. to play because of the coronavirus. What, what a mess. So we're going to discuss all these topics about the main event when uh, we begin the show. Seals with clubs. Remember them? Mikon's site, Mikon's Bitcoin poker site that he started. Uh, or he didn't start, but he joined on to it in 2011, shortly after he and I stopped being friends. And then he got busted for it in 2015, and then a new SEAL started, which he claimed not to be affiliated with, but I have a feeling he really is. 
Anyway, uh, they're gone. If you go to swcpoker.eu, you will see it's not there anymore. It's just gone, and the domain is gone. And they admit that they're gone, but they insist you should not panic and your funds are safe. Should you trust them? I will explain how I feel about the matter and what I think is going on there with SEALs. And I'll give you a little bit of a clarification on why I feel that Micon is still involved. Huck Seed was one of the finalists to be elected to the Poker, the poker Hall of Fame. I wish there was a Poker Fraud Alert Hall of Fame, but there's not. The Poker Hall of Fame. And uh, he was the one who ended up winning. He was the winner. It was not Isai Scheinberg or any of the others. They're only electing one person now. I thought it was two, but some sometime recently they reduced it to one, which I think was a mistake. But uh, Huck Seed is the one. I'll tell you about that. And I will tell you about a little uh, side drama. And when I say little, I mean little. But uh, th- there was at least one person who was very unhappy to see that Huck won, who wasn't a finalist. Poker Stars and Chris Moneymaker are no longer associated. After 17 years, Chris Moneymaker is no longer a Poker Stars pro. He was on the payroll ever since he won the World Series back in 03. So what is going on? It's actually more than 17 years. So what is going on? Why did he leave? I will play his statement, and then I will analyze it myself. But Poker Stars has actually gained a pro, even though he lost Moneymaker. Superstar Neymar, soccer superstar Neymar, has joined Poker Stars again. He was previously there five years ago. He is back, and I will tell you if that was a smart move or a dumb move on the part of Poker Stars. Of course, he's not really a poker player. He's a uh, soccer star, but was that the right move to bring him back? Do you guys remember Eric Sonstegard? We had him on this show. He's uh, known as Willing Number Two Die, Willing to Die on Twitter. We had him once on this show because he got royally screwed by the Rio, and they would not make it right for him. I won't go into the story during the agenda, though the old me would. The old me would make like a forty-five minute segment during the agenda about this, but I'm not going to. But he got previously screwed by the Rio, and now Caesars is screwing him again. And I will tell you about the newest story that he's going through, and you may think, this guy keeps getting into messes with Caesars. There's got to be some fault of his, right? No. (laughs) He's just running bad. Twice he's just been royally screwed, and this is the second time. The first time ended up okay. The second time, we will see. But I'll tell you about the whole story when we get to that segment. Speaking of Caesars, if you want to go to Caesars, southern Indiana, guess what? Uh, It's not going to be easy because it has been sold. It's not going to be a Caesars property anymore. I will tell you why that has happened. Then we will have some coronavirus news. And finally, I will give you Druff's Jew Tip of the Week. Druff's Jew Tip of the Week, which isn't every week, but we will do sometimes. This is about dentistry. This is when to ditch your dentist and how to avoid getting scammed at a shady dentist. Something that is not discussed very much is that there's a lot of shady dentists out there. There's a lot of incompetent dentists out there. And there's a lot of dentists who are a combination of shady and incompetent. So uh, choosing the right dentist is a lot tougher than choosing the right doctor. There's some crappy doctors out there too, for sure. But it's even tougher to find a good dentist. And often it's even tough to know for sure that you have a good dentist or to know for sure that you have not been scammed. So... I'm going to give you my tips on how to minimize all of that and what signs to look for that it's time to get a new dentist. So that's our final 
topic of the week. See, I'm ending with something non-controversial. Unless you're a dentist, then you probably won't like me. Well, unless you're a crappy dentist. If you're a good dentist, then you'll be happy to hear that segment. If you're a crappy dentist, you'll probably be pissed at me. Everybody else, I think, will be happy with that last segment. So I'm not going to be doing a political editorial this time. Okay? Nothing political on the show this week, except maybe a little bit of the COVID segments. But even those are not really going to be very political this week. Okay, so let's get going. If you want to get into the free roll, then get your time machine, get your DeLorean, and go back at least six minutes. Otherwise, too late, it's going. So I want to jump right into the topic about the World Series of Poker and the disqualification, because that's uh, a pretty big thing that occurred. Not shocking, but... It is a big story. So, if you remember, this second World Series of Poker main event was already controversial as it is. Because they already had a main event. They already promoted a main event that took place on GG Poker. And a main event winner was crowned. He was said to be the winner of the 51st World Series of Poker. So, there shouldn't have been much of a question that uh, that was the main event. So Stoyan Madazhev won the, quote, 51st annual World Series of Poker. And he received a World Series of Poker main event bracelet. He received a letter signed by Daniel Negreanu congratulating him for winning WSOP Event 77, $5,000 no-limit main event. And it said nothing about this being a secondary main event or a fake main event or just another event that is called main event but really isn't main event. It really said main event. So he thought he won it. Well, apparently he did not win the main event, or at least he's not going to be the only main event event winner. Because Caesars decided, and there's some suspicions as to why, but they decided we need a second main event. In a year that everybody understands why there is no World Series of Poker, in a year where people kind of tolerated and went along with the alternate World Series of Poker, which was an online World Series of Poker, and that was done, and some people played it, some did not. I didn't do it, but some people did. They had a version that was uh, on WSUB.com. They had a version on GG Poker. They handed out bracelets. I thought that was kind of BS, but whatever. They did it. It was done. People kind of understood But what no one understood is why, after that was all complete, why just a few months later, they start another one. So they said that in December, there's going to be a main event, and there's going to be a domestic one on WSOP.com. There's going to be an international one on GG Poker. Then the final table for each event will be live. The non-US one would be at the King's Casino in uh, in, uh, the uh, Czech Republic. And that uh, the one in uh, the U.S. was going to be at the Rio, which they were going to reopen just in time to have the live final table there. And that anybody who either chooses not to travel for it or takes a negative COVID test, everyone's going to be COVID tested beforehand. And if you take a negative COVID test, then you will also be force finished into ninth. The international one, a Chinese national chose not to go. We reported that previously on the show, that uh, a Chinese national who was eighth in chips just decided he's not going. Uh, Some believe that this was because of pressure from the Chinese government. And uh, whatever it was, he ended up not going, and he accepted the ninth place money, 
when he was eighth in chips, and we had already reported that. Now, that was his decision, or at least his country's decision, but this he was not forced out, so nobody even made uh, much of a big deal about this other than the fact that uh, the guy just didn't want to go, and people were kind of wondering why. But uh, now we actually have a situation where someone was forced out of it. A player named Upeshka De Silva, who's known as Pesh, he's a Sri Lankan poker player who lives in the U.S. He's a poker pro. He's not just a nobody. He's he's someone with a a lot of tournament results. So he's a very good player. There's no question about that. He was eighth in chips going into this final table that was to take place at the Rio. And unlike this Chinese national who chose not to play in the GG poker version that was going to take place at King's Casino, here he actually agreed that they, he, he, I mean, not agreed, but he, he was happy to come play the final table. Yes, he was eighth in chips, and yes, it was kind of a, a long shot whether he was going to uh, become the, the main event champion, but keep in mind that eighth in chips sounds a lot worse than it really was given uh, the way the chip distribution was. But on December 27th, the story was broken by Joey Ingram, who wrote Late Night Poker Breaking Story, WSOP Main Event Final Table Scheduled for Tomorrow Live at the Rio, a player testing positive for the coronavirus. More details to come shortly. So that was the first everybody heard of it, and it turned out that this was not just a rumor, it was true. So indeed, Upeshka de Silva, who entered 8th in chips, was disqualified, because he took a negative test, or sorry, he took a positive test on the 20th, December 20th, but then on the 26th, he was negative. So he thought, okay, sweet, I'm going to get to play, but then on December 27th, he was back positive. So he must have been right on the border between testing positive and negative. The way these tests determine whether you're positive or negative is it has to do with the viral load that you're carrying. So it's not that there's zero trace of the coronavirus in your body. It's pretty much how much. I'm not sure what the threshold is, but uh, there's some point when you bridge over from positive to negative without there being like a massive abrupt change. It can be very subtle. Uh, Master Scaler, if you remember, took a long time to to test negative despite the fact that he didn't feel symptoms after two weeks. For the first two weeks, he had kind of like moderate level symptoms. He was pretty sick. He was able to breathe. He didn't have any any problem which uh, would have hospitalized him, but he was pretty sick and had a very bad cough. And then within two weeks, that was all gone, and it took a few more weeks. I think it took four more weeks until he tested negative again. So what was happening was he had enough of a viral load still in his body that uh, he was still testing positive, even though he didn't have any symptoms anymore, and from what the CDC believes, he wasn't even contagious anymore. So finally... A few days after his last positive test, he finally tested negative. Upeshka had not had the coronavirus as long as Master Scaler did at that point. So he first tested positive on the 20th, and then negative on the 26th, and then positive again on the 27th. So it must have been really, really close on the 26th and 27th, whether he was positive or negative. Uh, I don't know if he was showing symptoms, but I have not heard he was. Of course, uh, he would not volunteer that he was showing symptoms because... He's trying. He was trying. He was really hoping that he was going to get to play. It's not like he was happy to sit this out or thought it was okay. Like he was very upset about this, even though he knew going in. But he was really hoping they'd find a way to accommodate him. So he wasn't going to say anything if he did feel anything. But 
whatever it is, the required test on the 20th, he tested positive, then negative six days later, then positive again the next day. So he got forced, finished into ninth. His chip stack was taken out of play, so nobody ended up getting his chips. And uh, a lot of debate started on Twitter regarding uh, whether they should have done this. It's an interesting debate, for sure, because uh, on one hand, they stated this beforehand. And on one hand, they're not surprising him with this. They said if anybody tests positive, that if they cannot get a negative test by the time the main event starts, that they are going to be forced finished into ninth and be be paid ninth place money, and their chips will be taken out of play. So it's not like the World Series of Poker made this up on the fly. But at the same time, would it have been unreasonable, would it have been sportsmanlike for the other eight players to say, you know what, we see you're pretty close here. You got a negative test yesterday, then a positive one today. How about we just all agree to delay this for a week and allow you to come? Just just to be sportsmanlike, just to, be, uh, just to not send him out this way. Even though they could, should they... From an ethics standpoint, from a moral standpoint, from a being decent human being standpoint, do it. Some people compared it to something like uh, if your opponent uh, disconnects heads up when you're playing them in an online tournament, uh, should you sit out too to give them a chance to come back or should you just keep taking their chips because they got a disconnection? So some people compared it to that, something beyond your control where you know the consequences, but it, it happened, it's causing you to lose and uh, um, what What's the right thing to do there? By the way, um, I actually witnessed, when I was playing for my bracelet in 2005, there was another table that was uh, next to me, that uh, a heads-up match between uh, Rafael Amit and uh, some other player, and that other player got a penalty for something, and uh, Rafael Amit... You know, this heads up. They got, I forgot why he got a penalty, but, but heads up, he basically got to take the guy's chips. The other guy would blind off during the penalty. So this other guy's friends were screaming at Rafael Amit saying, you're an asshole. You shouldn't do this. You should you should just sit out while his, his penalty's going. And he said, nope, sorry, that's the rules. I, I, get, I get the chips, I get them. It's kind of a tough spot because you know, if somebody gets a penalty, they get a penalty. It's a, Otherwise, you're kind of invalid. Well, it depends what he does, too. I mean, you know, if he's like bantering him, like cursing the guy out, then he gets a penalty. Yeah. You know, then I would take it. If it's some bullshit thing. Cause he I, I agree. And that's the way said, I would have said fuck or something. Yeah, right? I, I agree. I would, And that's the way I would have handled it, too. Like if the guy had done that had been a complete dick to me and I finally had to call the floor and he got a penalty, I'd take his chips. If, you, if, it, if it was just some bullshit thing, I probably would be nice and sit out and just let the time pass. Anyway, uh, Raphael would not sit out and he ended up winning the bracelet and there was some controversy there. But uh, and. That did not happen to my bra- in my uh, my event though. My my opponent Daryl Mixon did not get any penalty. I beat him fair and square. But anyway, um, the question was: Should these people have sat out, or should uh, or not sat out but delayed it, or because he knew going in was this basically like part of the game? So yeah, it's it was a, a reasonable uh, debate people were having. Th- this is what Pesh De Silva tweeted on December twenty eighth. I tested positive Monday, attempted to reach out to Jack Ethel through an intermediary Tuesday, and was informed that Jack would call me. 
Jack called a few hours later, and right when I answered, said, I don't want you to say anything, just answer yes or no. Did you test positive uh, today? That was uh, the, the 21st. He said, I said, no, I tested positive the 20th. He said, okay, I'll see you Sunday for the test. No guidance, no options, no advice, no plan. Well, okay, let's, let's stop right here. He wrote a little bit more. Let's stop right here. What is he talking about, no no guidance? What guidance could Jack Effel give him? If you have the coronavirus, it's not like Jack can say, well, let me tell you how to test negative for the coronavirus. Let me tell you how to get it out of your system faster. Like Jack Effel's a tournament director. He's not an epidemiologist. And even if he was, there is no way to speed up the recovery to a negative test at this time. So if you tested positive on the 20th, guess what? Too bad. You know, you have to wait and, and see if you're lucky enough to test negative by the time the final table takes place. There, I don't know what guidance he was expecting that was done. He says, I was very scared, as you could imagine, and I didn't know if I went public if I'd even have a chance to test after that call. But, but he did, though, so I don't know what the complaint is here. Like, I understand he's saying like he's afraid he was going to be disqualified right there, but why complain about that now? Because he did test again. So okay, I guess he can complain that Jack didn't give him enough information about what was to come, but it couldn't have changed the results because it's not like he could have made himself uh, test negative sooner. He claimed he'd been quarantining since December 10th in preparation for the final table, which was a mistake, by the way. Like, uh, <laughs> when, when did this, uh, like, I would think if you if you know you're going to even play this, you shouldn't uh, expose yourself. I forgot the date it went off, like December 3rd, 4th. I, I don't know when they, when they completed this and... They got to the point where it was nine left. But from the moment you decided you're going to play this, you should have gone into lockdown mode big time. Unless you think you suck and you're not going to make the final table unless it's a total fluke. But given that this is a smaller field than the uh, regular main event, the chance of making the final table is substantially higher. So that is... uh, That's something you need to keep in mind, that since a positive COVID test is so devastating here. It can cost you so much money. I mean, here he was eighth in in chips, but he could have been first in chips. There would have been the same result. So for him to start quarantining on December 10th is dumb. Now he may have said, okay, well that it still gives me three weeks, but here's the problem is that he may not have understood this, but just because you have quarantined for three three weeks before the event. That doesn't mean that you're going to be safe three weeks later to play. That just means what the quarantining is, is if you're not showing symptoms and not testing positive and you're not coming into contact with anyone during that time, then it's safe to let you out, basically. But if you already have it, that's a different story. If you already have it, the positive test can linger for a long time. The symptoms can even linger for a long time. There's some people who have it for months. So there's, there's really not a closed-ended guarantee that if you get the coronavirus, it's going to be gone in two weeks or three weeks. It's that if you don't have it yet, if you stay away for this amount of time, then it is unlikely symptoms are going to show up. And it's uh, – now, I guess it's still possible you could have an asymptomatic version you've had for a long time, but there's only so much you can do. But, but just to say, hey, I've been quarantining since December 10th, that doesn't mean much because if you caught it on the 9th, there's a good chance you'll still be testing positive three weeks later. That's what he missed. I think even Eric Benzamokin, who got over it sooner than uh, Kent Scaler, I think he still took like three to four weeks. So uh, that was a big mistake on his part. He should have given more time. I don't know how old he is. He, he doesn't look very old in his picture. So uh, 
I don't think he had any bad symptoms at any point. He may not even have known he had it. Let me see if I can look up his age. Um, does it say what he does for a living? Uh, he, he's a poker pro. Oh, so, so, yeah, he's a, he's a good player. I mean, there's, there's – and he has a good reputation in the poker world otherwise. So it's not uh, – this is not like a jerk here. I, I can't find his age, at least not looking during the show here. But he doesn't look old. He looks like a younger guy. Not super young, but he looks like a younger guy. In fact, uh, I see he doesn't have any. Uh, let me see his handed mob. That sometimes give me a clue when, when he first cashed in something live. He first cashed in something live in uh, 2015. It looks like 14. I'm seeing. Okay, yeah. So it's it's. He doesn't go back that far. Yeah, I see he was from uh, Katy, Texas, originally from Sri Lanka. And, yeah, it looks like he's probably around 30, is my guess. So he's definitely not in a range of what you'd expect to have severe symptoms, but contagious is contagious. And he made a mistake, even if he really was quarantining. And who knows, his version of quarantining, he may have still gone out to uh, places like, like the supermarket. Who knows what he was, quote, quarantining. A lot of people have different definitions of what that means. So he, he screwed up somehow. I guarantee if this were me... I would not be getting the coronavirus before the final table. I mean, I, I have a feeling that my level of caution was much above his, even at his peak. I have a feeling he just was not cautious enough. So this is something you can prevent, especially short term. I can see why you can't totally stay away from everybody. I know. That's just so good. But you have to. Because even right. if you felt like, oh, he's healthy and won't affect him, that has nothing to do with it. Yeah, it doesn't. So, And it's only a short-term thing. Like, I can understand someone saying, look, I can't stay in my house for a year and, and have no contact with anybody, especially things will come up where I have to go somewhere. And I know this happened with me. I had to bring my dog to the vet. I had to go get a root canal. These were things that couldn't wait. So I took the chance and did them. But everything else... I was not going indoors everywhere, and when I was outdoors, I'd stay away from everybody. So my chance of catching it was so minimal that uh, I haven't gotten it, and it would be very surprising if I had gotten it the way I was showing caution. So you can do an even more extreme version of this if it's only a matter of weeks or a matter of a month when there is this much money at stake. You may wonder, what is the difference of money between ninth place and first place? Well, it's a lot. The top prize is not the same as a normal $10 million main event prize, but it was still $1.55 million, and he ended up getting less than 100000 He ended up getting uh, 98813 So it's a tremendous difference, as it usually is between ninth and first. 98813 versus $1.55 million. So it's, it's more than 15 times difference. That, that hurts. Now, again, he was eighth in chips, but who knows? You can always come back. You can always come back and win. He was forced into ninth. So I say it was his own fault. And notice that I said that this was a bad idea in the first place. This was, I'm talking about for the World Series, not him playing necessarily. But it was a bad idea in the first place that they had this thing at all. This was likely to happen. This is not a surprise. This is not a shock. Trader Risky, were you shocked when you heard that someone tested positive for this? No, absolutely not. Yeah, I wasn't either. Like, I, it was it was an interesting story. It got my attention. I'm like, oh, wow, that's an interesting uh, event. I even told my girlfriend about it, who only has a mild interest in poker. There's, like, big enough to go tell her, oh, well, guess what happened at the main event? But it's not something that I'm like, oh, my God, I would have never expected this. I'm like, yeah, yeah, kind of worried this might happen. <laughs> so, 
So, like, nobody was shocked. Nobody's saying, oh, wow, what a fluke. Everyone's like, how did they not expect this, given that nine people were involved? You had to have nine people that were able to quarantine properly and get a negative test. And as Trader Ruski said, it's not about how you feel. It's not about how contagious you are. It's about whether you can present a negative test the day before the event. And if you can't, you're not in. And so these guys who uh, took the test, I don't even know why they gave a test on the 20th. Like, why not just give a final test on the 27th and that's it? But uh, because that's the, that's the one that determines it. But anyway, with nine people, there's not that low of a chance that one person screws up or that one person caught it and just lingering for a while like it did with Master Scaler, and they don't get to play. So that was a, a big mistake, and I don't know why they didn't uh, imagine that there's a good chance this would happen because it really makes the whole thing look bad and it creates a side story to the whole thing that is not very good for Caesars. Now, some people are saying this is the only thing that got anyone's attention to it, which is true. Like once this passed, I kind of stopped watching. I stopped, I stopped caring who was going to win. This, this is the only interesting story for the moment about the main event. Prior to that, I wasn't even checking who was leading or who was winning. Like I, I didn't care much. We didn't cover it much on the show. Like, nobody cared. The WS- Before this happened, the WSOP tweeted out the names of the nine final tableists, and it got, like, zero interaction. Oh, not actually zero, but very close to zero interaction. And I'm talking about retweets, likes, responses, almost nothing. It was unbelievable that an announcement of the final table at the WSOP main event would get such little social media engagement. But it did. Because nobody cared, because everyone thought this was kind of a bullshit event in the first place. And when this happened, at least it created an interesting story. The chip counts Joseph A. Bear. I don't know if it's A. Bear or Hebert, whatever. H-E-B-E-R-T. I'll say Joseph A. Bear, who is, uh, plays as Colbert, so I'm guessing it is A. Bear. He was the overwhelming chip leader with 13 million. Sean Stroke who's a shade 927 on there, was a 5.2 million second place. Right behind him is a Ryan Haggerty, who's Hags021. Fourth place was Yi Wan, who plays as Yuan365 at 4.8. So these guys are all close, as you can see. Fifth place, also close, Michael Cannon, who is a Gene1x. Then, uh, unfortunately, not uh, Brandon Gerson, but uh, Gershon Distenfeld, 3.475. So close. 3.475 million sixth. Ron Jenkins was seventh. He plays as Sam the Dog, 2.4 million. Upeshka de Silva, 2.15 million in eighth. He is uh, Gomez Hamburg. And ninth place, Harrison Dobin, Harrison D33. By the way, you notice, like, other than Upeshka de Silva, like, I, I don't know who any of these people were. I'd never heard of any of these guys except for Upeshka de Silva. So that's, that's another thing is he, he made the final table. I didn't check. If these guys may have had tournament results, I just hadn't heard of them. But it does kind of look like that these were eight randoms in him. So I'm not saying they were fish. They were probably good players. But uh, he was probably the best player of the nine left. I'm not going to say he was favored to win because he was uh, the eighth stack. However, he had 40% of the stack of the guy in second place. So, look, if he doubles up once, he's right there. So it's not like he was eighth, but he was super short. He'd need a million double-ups just to get back in it. Then I'd say this probably didn't matter much, other than perhaps uh, 
waiting for the guy in ninth to bust. This guy, he really had a shot. In fact, everybody did. Harrison uh, Dobin had 1.58 million. So anyone here could have won. It wouldn't have been shocking based upon the chip stack. Yes, uh, Joseph Hebert was the one who was most likely to win given the 13 million chip stack that was more, more than double anyone else, but uh, he by no means had a lock on it. He ended up winning, but he had, he had no lock on the matter. So definitely, even if you want to not talk about whether Upeshko was going to win, at the very least, he had a fairly decent chance to get deep. Remember, there's a big clump of people with roughly the same stacks. Second, third, fourth, fifth. They're all roughly the same. And then Upeshka has got about 40% of what the guy in second has. So these guys go at it. A bunch of them chunk it off. And uh, Upeshka could just, even without winning, could cruise into second or third and get much better money. So this cost him a lot of money. The prize pool, even second place, was a million bucks. It was a tiny bit over a million bucks. Third place, 529000 He got 98813 Eighth place, which he was in chips, was 125885 which wasn't a huge difference. But remember, he wasn't destined to finish eighth. So since there's not a huge difference between eighth and ninth, his worst-case scenario, had he played, would have been equal to what he was forced to, which is ninth place. But there were a lot of scenarios where he could have gotten something like third or fourth, which is substantially more. And someone did the ICM uh, calculations, which is basically based on everybody's stack, ignoring skill level, but based on everybody's stack and, and the blinds and everything. Like it's, it's, it's a based on that what they are going to uh, – what they would be expected to win if everybody at the table was uh, average skill, what would be your average win. And that's what the ICM calculations are. And they will use those to uh, figure out what people get paid when deals are made. That's what where the ICM comes in. Also, sometimes if there's an end to an event that is premature, that is uh, beyond the card room's control. Like, let, let's say there's a uh, – let, let's say abruptly they lose their license and can't continue the tournament. I'm just making this up, but let's say that's what happened. They'd have to pay everybody still, so they do it based on uh, based upon ICM. Or let's say uh, everybody makes a deal and says, "Okay, we'll uh, we'll split the money according to ICM calculations and end the tournament." That uh, that's where they'd use that as well. So it's a formula. It's not subjective. It's a formula. They ran that, and I think it was worth something like three hundred thousand. I have to take a look, but it was something like that. So way more than what he was paid of ninth place money. But still, he knew going in that this was part of the game. This was written into the rules. He knew before he ever put money to play this event, this $10,000 main event, he knew before he plunked down 10 k that if he got COVID and it was still there by the time the final table came, that he would be forced finished in ninth no matter how many chips he had. And he was not careful enough. It doesn't spontaneously develop. It's not like cancer where just one day you find out you have it. COVID is a is a communicable disease. And by avoiding other human beings, you won't get it. Especially because it is believed that it is rare to get COVID through surfaces now. It, it was believed back in the spring 
that you had to leave your mail out for a few days before touching it and your groceries out for a few days, except for the, the perishable ones that you, you really should not touch very much. And the second you touch anything that anyone else touched, you need to immediately go wash your hands. Now, I still do that because it hasn't been conclusively proven. And it's said that you usually don't get COVID that way, but they're not sure if it's, there's still some danger. And, of course, you can get other viruses that way. You can get other viruses through services like uh, the common cold. So it's not hard to believe you can get COVID that way. But it is believed that at least almost all COVID transmission happens through the air. So that means stay away from other people who have COVID or stay away from other people, period. And you won't catch COVID. And if you live with somebody who uh, is going out and, and interacting with people, either have them stop or go stay somewhere else for a while. But I don't believe this guy has a family or anything. So I, I think this is not hard for him to just hang out by himself. I just think he felt that starting this on December 10th, it was fine. It's even possible he was asymptomatic and didn't even know he had it, given that he's fairly young. A lot of people that age don't even know they have COVID. But it was his fault. This is actually, it became part of the game. It's a stupid part of the game, but nevertheless, it was part of the game. Much like uh, any other thing that can get you disqualified. Now, some people have criticized that it does not just blind out his stack and give him a chance to win. Because let's say you were too sick and couldn't play. Not COVID sick, but let's just say in a normal World Series of Poker main event, you just can't show up because you're too sick. Let's say you have a heart attack, you're in the hospital, and they're doing emergency heart surgery. Okay? As much as you want to play, you can't play. What do they do? They don't, they're not going to disqualify you in ninth. Your stack will blind off. In the infamous Vinny Vin situation, a tournament where I got very deep, the 2007 1K No Limit with Rebuys, where I finished 10th, Vinny Vin was the chip leader, and then he didn't show up to day two, and his huge stack blinded down and eventually busted in 20th. That's how big of a stack it was. But they didn't take him out of play, and had Vinny Vin's stack made it to the final table, then he would have been there, even though his body would not have been there. He would have continued blinding out and finished wherever his stack finally blinded off. So that's always been the way they've handled it when people just disappear and either don't show up or can't show up. Now, sometimes if there's an actual disqualification, they will take the person's stack out of play, but never that deep. Like earlier in the event, if somebody uh, does something to get disqualified, like someone's caught cheating or whatever, they'll sometimes just take the whole stack out. But if someone late in the event just doesn't show up, they're going to let the whole thing blind off. And that's always been the standard uh, policy. However, they said beforehand that's not what they're going to do. I think it was a mistake, but that's what they said beforehand. The reason it is assumed they didn't want to blind off was because it was going to be bad for TV. And that brings us back to why they had this in the first place, TV. It is believed, though not proven, but is believed and assumed by many, that the reason they held this second main event was that the first one was not on TV because it was all online. So by holding a live final table, which is all they televise anyway uh, for a lot of events, the main event they televise more typically, but a lot of events are just the final table, as you guys know. So this way they get some kind of television out of it, and it will fulfill at least some of their contract with ESPN. So it is believed that they were under some sort of pressure by ESPN to do this. 
or maybe they were going to pay a penalty to ESPN for not holding it. It was probably in the contract what happens if they don't hold the event, and there, there may be some penalty they have to pay ESPN for it, because ESPN clears the schedule for it. Who knows? I've never seen the contract, and I never will see the contract, presumably. But it is believed it has something to do with the TV, and that for TV's sake, they did not want a stack blinding off, that they just wanted it pretty much forgotten. And the only way to make it forgotten is to just take it out of play. So that, but Trump, I mean, that would that would make. I mean, why would you have them play? The only reason to leave it in there is because if the guy ends up showing up, he's got to have his chips left. No, that's not necessarily he's true. Not though, be, I, see, I don't agree. I don't well, agree because you can actually in a regular tournament you can actually state you, that you're not going to show up and it'll still blind out. As at the beginning, at the very beginning of a tournament, you just don't show, even if you've paid. They will take your, your money out, or like even like after the first break, you just disappear. They'll probably take. They're probably going to take it out. But if, if you're past the money and you just don't come, you're just not there. Even if you say, "Hey, I've just decided not to come back," they're going to let it blind off. And and uh, I, I think that it's not fair to the person to take it out because they've earned those chips. And the policy is of the tournament that you're you lose chips due to the blinds and the antes. And that if you're not there, it's equivalent to folding every hand. So I don't – but now I'm not saying this is unfair because this was stated before the tournament started. This is the way they're doing it. So they changed the rule, but they made the rule very clear before they played. And it's very likely that De Silva knew that these rules were in place as stated. So I don't think he was taken by surprise. And I think his, oh, I wasn't given guidance thing is bullshit because by then the deed was done. By then it, it was going to go that way no matter what. So – uh, I, I'm not blaming the World Series for what happened to him, and I actually agree with what happened. I actually agree that uh, they should not have delayed it. I agree that the other eight players should not have delayed it, and there's a few reasons why I don't think they should. Number one, it was part of the game. It was part of the whole thing. Number two, you don't know if that same player would have done it for you. And that's the reason you have rules. That's the reason you have it all set up is because even if you do it for him, you don't know if it was reversed, that if it was you who had the COVID and he didn't, if he would have been the one to object and say, no, I don't agree. And all it would take is one objection to where they won't delay it. So since you don't know that, it's, it's not fair. It's not fair to yourself. Even if it sucks for him, he got it. You, you say, look, this is actually part of this tournament that you have to keep COVID free. And since it's within your control to keep COVID free for the most part, in, in the short term at least, that – uh, you can't uh, – the other players shouldn't be expected to make allowances. If they did, I'd say that was very nice. If eight, all eight players just got together and said, you know what, we're going to be nice and we're going to ask the World Series to delay it, then I would think the World Series should, if everybody wants that and he's unanimous. But should anybody be, anybody be pressured to or thought of as an asshole for refusing? I say no. What do you think, Trader Risky? No, that's unreasonable because they're all flying in from places. I mean, depending on the work they did, if they were all professional poker players, then maybe. But even then, I don't think they should be expected to delay. Right. That's what I was saying. Like if they want to, then the World Series should cooperate, but nobody should be expected or criticized for not doing so, especially because this was a known weird feature of it going in and everybody had the same expectation to – take the precautions they needed to take. So it's it would be like, uh, let, let's say they said, uh, oh, next year we're going to have a poker tournament, but 
you have to test negative for HIV uh, in order to make the final table. So, uh, but the tournament's going to be next year. Well, it's it's known that it takes uh, six months maximum for uh, a positive HIV test to show up if you if you catch HIV. So, if that, given that's the case, if you want to play in that tournament, then you just be careful <laughs> about who you have sex with in that time. If it's that important to you to come up with a negative HIV test, you can't say, "Oh man, I got HIV. I didn't expect that. Oh, you know that sucks." You got, come on, guys, you gotta you gotta accommodate me here. Like if, if that's if this is something within your control or mostly within your control, then you can tough it out for whatever time is necessary to make sure you do not get that virus. And that's definitely a case here. He made a mistake. It's too bad. He paid for that mistake. So it's unfortunate for him. I think it sucks he didn't get to play it out, but uh, uh, he didn't exercise the right amount of caution. And similar to to how you have to exercise caution during the hands you play, that you don't go on tilt, that you don't make rash decisions, that you don't make emotional decisions, that you don't make dumb decisions. You have to take a lot of care while you're playing poker tournaments, especially towards the end, that, that you don't screw things up. You also have to take care before the tournament if there's a COVID-negative requirement to play. So I think the World Series of Poker did not do anything wrong by holding it as scheduled, and the other eight players didn't do anything wrong by holding it as scheduled. However, the World Series of Poker should not have held this stupid thing in the first place. They already had a main event. They already crowned a champion. They should have stuck to that. They shouldn't have screwed over the existing 2020 champion who they already crowned. And this whole thing was ridiculous, and it was likely to happen, and it was an embarrassment for poker that this whole thing went down the way it did because it wasn't unexpected. This wasn't a fluke. This wasn't like, okay, well, one in 100 chances would have happened. It did. Oh, well, you know, who, who would have thought that? Everyone's like, no, nah, I wasn't surprised. No, nah, totally makes sense. No, nah, totally expected it. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it's, it's dumb. It's really dumb. It's, it's a dumb factor to come into play here. So this, this is why you don't hold an event like that when COVID is raging throughout the U.S. population. Okay, so I'm going to move on to a side controversy that spawned from this. Matt Stout, he's a poker pro. I've never had an issue with him. I've played with him a few times at the World Series. I was always kind of neutral toward him. Uh, I've interacted with, with him a little bit on Twitter, never anything negative, never argued with a guy. I have nothing against him. In fact, I'd say my overall impression of him, while I didn't know him very well or pay much attention to him, as I imagine he doesn't pay much attention to me either, uh, was like neutral positive, like kind of neutral with a little bit of uh, positivity in that like all my interactions with him have been pleasant and I never heard anything bad about the guy. So I, it was kind of like neutral positive. Somebody asked me what I thought of Matt Stout. So I did not realize until this controversy that a lot of people hate Matt Stout. And I still don't fully understand it. Like, upon looking into it more, I kind of understand it, but I I don't even really agree, and I don't really understand it. But nevertheless, he has a lot of people who hate him. And uh, this is one of these cases where if you already have a questionable reputation where people just don't like you, and when I say questionable reputation, it's not like he's a Chino Reem who's known to cheat people. It's just a lot of people just don't like him. So if you're already kind of disliked and you're going to get a lot of people responding to you angrily with anything you say, you've got to be careful then 
what you say about other people in the community. You've got to especially be careful then. You always need to be careful. You shouldn't put out bad things about people unless you're pretty sure what you're saying is true. But even if you are pretty sure what you're saying is true, you've got to take some caution that people are, are already going to approach it negatively about you and find a reason to blame you. So you really have to have a lot to back up what you're saying, and he didn't do this. So let me tell you what happened. This is a really a, a weird side controversy that I want to discuss on here, and I, I don't think got as much attention as it should have. I, to me, this is actually the more interesting side story once you get past the shock that someone didn't get to play the main event because they got uh, disqualified. He was seeing that uh, people were really, really feeling bad for Pesh de Silva, and they were saying that he really deserves a lot of sympathy, that he's such a great guy, that everybody should uh, try to get together at the final table and say they want to wait and try to let him come there. And so a lot of people were expressing sympathy and expressing empathy toward uh, Upeshka da Silva. And Matt Stout was getting angry about this. Why? Because he did not like Upeshka da Silva because he had believed that Pesh da Silva was guilty of multi-accounting and the people didn't know. So this is what he wrote on December 20th at 8 a.m. Feel bad for Pesh because he got disqualified for the WSOP, quote, main event final table for having COVID? Don't. It's karma. My friend witnessed him multi-accounting the other WSOP.com bracelet events as account Pino, but refused to report him. Retweet for awareness. Oh, boy. So he didn't just talk about this. He's telling everyone to retweet it for awareness so they can be aware, according to him, that Pesh de Silva is a multi-accounter during bracelet events. Wow. So let's look at this again. He's saying we shouldn't feel bad for Pesh because it's karma that he can't play because of all his multi-accounting during other WSOP.com bracelet events this year and that Matt Stout's friend, who he didn't identify, witnessed him playing both as himself and as his P-E-E-N-O account, P-E-E-N-O, but his friend, for whatever reason, didn't want to report him. So Matt is saying he's taken it upon himself to let everybody know about Pesh's multi-accounting, and therefore we should all just have a good laugh that karma's biting him in the ass that he can't play the final table because of getting COVID. So that's already a pretty controversial thing to put out there right after Pesh gets disqualified because it's not, it's not like they're considering not disqualifying him and then he's pointing out, okay, guys, uh, before we do some favor for him, know this, he's not a great guy. It was clear he was being disqualified and it's not going to be modified. So people were thinking that this is kicking Pesh while he's down. And uh, that's already kind of a controversial thing to put out, but it's even worse because it's coming from someone who apparently is disliked by many people. And that I didn't know. When I when someone sent me this, I'm like, oh, wow, this is interesting. I wonder if it's going to blow up and make Pesh look really bad. And I wonder if evidence is going to come out that he's a multi-counter. I thought it might go that direction. Instead, everyone went off on Matt Stout. Like, there was massive bashing of him. One of the uh, more measured responses back to him said, I definitely am bothered 
by being cheated out of equity, if it's true, but to throw accusations like that off hearsay when the alleged person won't even say anything to back you up to try to fuck someone more than they already are is a low blow. That was from someone named John Bornstein. Matt said back to him, I couldn't handle reading the outpouring of support for a cheater any longer. Sorry. I wouldn't repeat it if I didn't have 100% faith in my friend's word. So De Silva is basically saying this guy's a cheater. This guy multi-accounts every event. And uh, my friend saw it. And I don't want you guys feeling bad for him. But the problem is he's not coming forward with who his friend is. And people who don't like Matt Stout could even suspect maybe the friend doesn't exist. Maybe Matt's making this up. Well, you may have a question. Who is this Pino? Who is that person? Well, Pino is uh, a person that, – that person's actually been identified. That is Rory Brown, who's from Ireland but also apparently uh, lives in the U.S. Rory Brown is apparently a good friend of Pesh de Silva. Indeed, it was found on Rory Brown's Instagram – a picture of the two of them drinking a tall beer together. And uh, it said, Happy St. Patrick's Day. Keep drinking Guinness at home. Uh, the world will get enough, will get through this. So it showed the two of them about to clink their glasses together. I'm not sure if this was taken actually in March or if it was taken another year. But whatever it is, these two are clearly closely associated and good friends. So the question is... Was Pesh de Silva really using his good buddy Rory Brown's account to multi-account WSOP bracelet events? It is not hard to believe that two very close friends would agree to do this for one another. It's not like uh, if – like let's say – and they're both poker players too. So let's say Pesh um, won something under Rory Brown's account. It's, he can pretty much be uh, guaranteed that Rory's not going to say anything about this. And it's possible they'd even share in some of the money if this was happening. I'm not saying it was happening. I'm saying if it was, when they're very close friends, you you could see how uh, this could be done and you wouldn't have much concern about uh, getting trouble for it if nobody catches you externally. However, however, the problem is Matt Stout does not provide any evidence. He just says, well, my friend saw it. I trust my friend. My friend told me that it happened. My friend's trustworthy. But okay, but the question is, how did your friend see it? What does that mean he saw it? If he just saw Pino and and Pesh playing at the same time, that doesn't mean anything. They could both be in the event. So was he physically in the room when Pesh was using both accounts? Or was uh, did he know that Rory Brown was not in Nevada to play these events when uh, when Pino was playing and he knew it had to be Pesh? I, I, did Pesh admit it to him? Like, he's, the friend was not even clear, apparently, to Matt Stout how he knew – or if he was, Matt Stout uh, didn't explain it. So that already was a bit of a problem, that the whole story is hard for people to either verify or even understand. And that he, yet at the same time, he's making a very serious accusation. Hey, Pesh was multi-accounting, trust me. And you need more than that before you make such an accusation. You can quietly think, hey, this guy's a, a cheater, and I believe my friend's account, but to actually know that someone is accused of cheating and put it out there that they're a cheater are two different things. And uh, in fact, without getting into it too much, that's basically what uh, Veronica Brill 
had to think about over the Mike Possel situation was that uh, she wanted to out the entire situation that she believed was cheating, but uh, knew that it was a very serious allegation and was struggling for a long time when or how to put this out. And you see the shitstorm that followed. So to just go out and put that someone is cheating is is not trivial, and you have to be sure you have the goods to back it up. For for Veronica, at least, there was a, a year and a half worth of video to go back and look at, but, but here there is not. Here it's just a, oh, my friend knows he was using Rory's account. Well, okay, but give us more. How does your friend know this? How did your friend witness this? How does your friend know he's not wrong? How do you know your friend didn't just make a mistake? Like, There's a lot of questions here. Now, I'm not saying that Matt Stout is wrong. In fact, if I had to guess, let's say somebody came to me and held a gun to my head and said, I know the truth about Pesh De Silva and Rory Brown. And you're going to have to tell me, did he multi-account or did he not? And if you get it wrong, you get shot in the head. If you don't get it wrong, then I walk away and don't shoot you. So guess now. So I'm forced to guess, and I'm forced to guess on whatever side I think is more likely to save my life. I would guess, yes, he did. Yes, he did multi-account. It would be my guess. But that's all it would be is a guess. I would not say I'm certain. I would not say I'm anywhere close to certain. I would say that just usually when these type of allegations come out, it's not all that common that they're just completely off. I've seen it occasionally where it's completely off, but it doesn't happen that much. Usually when something like this comes out, the person has been doing it. Even if there's not uh, immediate proof, eventually it comes out, yes, it was happening. So just based upon that alone, and based upon the fact that the account that's being accused of doing it is a very close friend of his, if I had to guess, I'd say yes, but uh, nowhere near proof exists about this, nor did Matt Stout present anything that comes anywhere close to anything convincing. It's just kind of hearsay. So for that reason, you just have to dismiss it, and in fact, he shouldn't have said it. And that's that's the problem. You, you can sometimes quietly think it. In fact, I'm not going to name any names. Right, but drop. I haven't heard you say that the guy denied it. Well, right. So I was going to get to you next. Pesh has not denied it, which that does raise a few questions. I would think that would be the next thing. Matt says it. You can't get mad at saying it unless the other guy denies it and says, no, I didn't do it. Right? I mean, so. Yeah. Well, okay. So you do raise a good point there. And I was, I was going to bring it up that it is interesting that uh, Pesh has not answered to this. There has been nothing that he's said that uh, about this at all. Like, he just isn't commenting. He's just pretending like this isn't even happening. So that's a little bit uh, questionable. People are saying, well, if he didn't do it, why not just say he didn't do it? Like, let's say I made the final table of the main event online. And someone said, ah, ah, ah. Let's not congratulate Druff too much. He's a multi-accounter. He's been he's been using his friend's account. I would say, no, I'm not using my friend's account, and uh, go ahead and try to prove it. Go ahead and report me, and uh, and the World Series of Poker will verify that I did not do this. I've only used my own account ever, which would be a true statement. I've never used anyone else's account on WSOB.com. So if I were to make a final table there, I could honestly say that, and I would respond. I would not stay quiet. Why stay quiet if you are accused of that? And I've said that before, too, that it's not very common that someone will stay quiet if they're accused of wrongdoing in poker, especially uh, if the public sentiment is mostly behind them. It's not like there's a, a lynch mob coming out for Pesh now calling him a multi-accounter. 
uh, overwhelmingly the support was on his side. People were bashing Matt Stout left and right. In fact, they were calling Matt Stout a scammer because Matt Stout runs some charity called the Charity Series of Poker. And I guess for a while now, he has some haters who say that he uh, steals from the charity. And there's no evidence about this either. I don't believe those accusations. I think these are probably just people who don't like him and don't like his personality. And since he's running a charity tournament, of course, the accusation you can make to to damage the guy is, oh, he's stealing from his charity. I have not seen evidence that Matt Stout steals from his charity. And when I saw that, when I looked into him a bit more, I'm like, okay, this is probably stupid. There's probably just people guessing at it because they don't like his personality. If there's evidence he steals from his charity, definitely show it. I'd, I'd be interested to see it, but I haven't seen any that exists. So I think people just don't like the guy's personality, and they make these stories up. But ironically, he is presenting allegations against someone without presenting proof. And even if he knows it's true, even if the – let's say the friend gave him a very compelling story and said, look, for whatever – forget the reason, but for reason X and Y – I can't come forward about this, and I'm not even going to report him to WSB.com. So just know that this guy's multi-accounting. 100%, here's why, A, B, and C, but you can't ever tell anyone of these details or point back to me, and um, you can't uh, – I'm not even going to report it. I'm just staying out of it. I'm just letting you know. And then Stout sees Pesh getting all these uh, messages of sympathy for what happened. And he gets annoyed and he spouts this off. So even if Matt knows deep down that it's almost 100%, or maybe even his mind is 100%, that Pesh was cheating, the problem is not convincing yourself. The problem is convincing everybody else. And so when you're going to bring out that sort of allegation, especially if your own reputation isn't that great where people just don't like you, you've got to make sure you have the goods. Just saying, he did it, I know it, my friend saw it, isn't enough. And I know because if I were in that same situation, I, I couldn't bring myself to do it. I couldn't bring myself to put out such a thing if I could not provide people with the information which led to them uh, having any kind of proof. Unless I saw it personally. If I saw it personally, then I'd say, hey, I saw A, B, and C happen personally. And then people either believe me or not. The problem is it's once removed from that. There is a third party involved that won't be named and won't come forward who told him. So it's like – it's like, uh, you know, my, my friend told me this happened, and <laughs> people don't like that. They want to hear either – they either want to see evidence or they want to see uh, – or they want to hear it directly from the person who saw it and hear the direct story and see if they believe it. So I can understand why people are angry, and I can understand especially why people went off on him because uh, – they already don't like him. They were looking for an excuse to do so. And that's a lot too. It depends upon the reputation of the person putting it out. If someone who's really well-liked puts that out, they're going to get more of a positive reaction to such an accusation than someone who already is somewhat disliked and people are already ready to jump on. So that's something to think about before you do such a thing. So this, uh, And in fact, uh, Matt Stout's wife even had to jump to his defense. I guess people started bashing her just because she was married to him. And she's like, look, I have nothing to do with this. I'm uh, I'm a separate person from him. I'm not saying I agree or disagree, but just uh, please leave me out of this. <laughs> so she, she wasn't happy with the whole matter. I wonder if she was pissed at him for bringing this up. What a mess. 
But that, that can be a problem. People don't necessarily want to believe your story if you don't have firsthand knowledge or evidence. Heard it from a friend who Heard it from a friend who Heard it from another you've been messing around Yeah, that, that's pretty much the story here. He heard it from a friend who heard it from a friend who heard it from another that he's been multi-accounting. It doesn't cut it, even if you're correct. So let that be a lesson to the other Matt Stouts out there. Be careful what you say. Be careful who you accuse. I'll tell you a little story a little bit related, not to this, but related to cheating allegations. I kind of learned my lesson. I'm not going to say the name of this person, but kind of a hot-tempered person in poker. In uh, the mid-2000s, I I had heard some rumor that they had uh, cheated in some way and uh, were thrown out of it. I forgot which casino. Thrown out of some casino for cheating. So I actually went up to them in Bellagio. And I didn't say it out loud. I just went up to him personally, just me and him standing there. And I said, I I heard you got thrown out of such and such place for cheating. And he got super pissed. He got super pissed. How can I accuse him of that? How can I say this to him? And I kept trying to tell him, no, I just heard it. I'm not saying you're a cheater, but he was furious. Really, really hopping mad about this. And he kept lecturing me over and over. And I just, I said, okay, I'm sorry. Maybe I didn't put it sensitively. Like I should have been more sensitive with the way I put it to you. But uh, like, I, I, again, I wasn't trying to say you're a cheater. I said, I heard you got thrown out. And uh, that's, I, I was asking for you to comment. And uh, so He's, he's like, what do you think? Am I a fucking cheater? What do you think? What, what do you think walking up to me saying I'm a fucking cheater like that? He just he didn't <laughs> he didn't want to discuss it. So I finally was like, okay, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to get you mad here. Never mind. Forget I said it. So that was that. And I, you're not saying who it was, right? Or no, I'm not going to say who it was. But uh, it's, it's someone who has a, 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 a bad temper and they, uh, they, they got very angry at me. It's like in the mid-2000s. After that, though, I did kind of think about, you know, when, when someone – you hear someone was cheating, you've really got to be careful what you say. Even if you think there's a good chance it's true, you got to be careful what you say until you're pretty sure. And, and you, not just pretty sure, but you're pretty sure that you can also back it up, either that you can back it up with evidence or with things you saw yourself. And neither of them are true here. So I don't think Matt Stout did a horrible thing. Like if he honestly believed that Pesh was a multi-accounter in these events and he wanted to bring that out, like I think it was a mistake to do, but for but I, I don't – like he was trying well, to do – Well, for Trump for, was it? If he feels he knows for sure. I mean I've never – I've never seen anything negative about this guy poker-wise like related to scams or anything like that. I mean I don't know – but you're saying people don't like him. I guess I haven't heard. No, I, I haven't. Well, that's there, the thing. Right? I, I, have, I haven't really understood either. I think it's just his personality that they don't like. So I, I don't have a problem with him. And I haven't heard, other than the stupid charity thing, which I only found about when I was looking like more closely at, at the social media interactions he had. But other than people like making what seems like uh, baseless accusations about the charity, I haven't seen anything that's indicative that people think he's a scammer. I think they just don't like his personality. I think they just think he's a smug jerk, from what I can tell. I haven't seen that, but that's what some people seem to think. So that's uh, uh, so I don't think it's a matter of just like he doesn't have credibility. It's just they kind of don't like him. They want to find a reason to uh, to come back with something negative when he posts it. And that's 
so that kind of needs to be considered. But again, I don't think he did something wrong. I don't think Matt Stout, if he really believed it, was a bad guy to put that out there. I just think it was a mistake for his own reputation because people aren't going to believe him without the without any kind of evidence or the person who saw it coming forward. That's that's the problem here. If he wanted to warn people just because he didn't feel that Pesh deserved the outpouring of sympathy, like, I can understand that. I can understand those emotions if he truly believed that Pesh was a cheater. I can understand that. So, like, I, I don't really, I'm not really, I'm not mad at Matt Stout for it. I just, if I were him, I would not have done that. I wouldn't do it myself in this situation, just because uh, if the friend who saw it doesn't want to come forward with it, then that's it. I've had it before where I've had friends come to me with unflattering stories that happened to them directly from other poker players, and I want to out it, and they say, no, 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 please don't. And I say, okay, I won't. I feel we should, but if you don't want to, it's it's your thing. I'm not going to out it. There's some people, believe me, I would love to out for some things they've done, but I can't. More bad debts than anything like scamming or cheating, but still, like there's some people who posture a certain way about their level of success and financial stability when in reality they've they've stiffed people for money and taken loans when they had no money and pretended they did and stuff like that. And I've wanted to blow it up, but I, I was told by the people who were uh, victimized that they didn't want me to say anything. So I, it's up to them. I'm not going to say anything. So I, yes, if I saw that person get all these accolades, I'd feel annoyed and want to say something. But I, I think the most I'd say is that, you know, just, this person isn't as good of a guy as you think he is. Just I'm going to leave it at that. Something like that, where you're at least you're not saying anything specific. That can mean a lot of things. Anyway, moving on. Uh, let's talk about the other main event story, and that is the fact that Damian Salas, who won the GG Poker December main event, that was to come to play on uh, December 28th. The million dollar free roll. And that was the 28th or maybe the 30th, something in late December. He was to come for the million dollar free roll against the winner of the domestic version of the World Series. He was unable to come to play it because he wasn't let into the country. So this wasn't his fault, unlike uh, Pesh de Silva, who got the coronavirus from apparently being too careless. Salas had no control over this one. This was uh, just policy. He uh, tried to come into the country, but he was told since he had been in Europe within the last 15 days that he is not allowed into the U.S. yet. So he was told that uh, he will not be able to come until January 2nd, which is today. Presumably he came. And that he would be able to play at that point. So the World Series did delay this one. They didn't uh, just give the million dollars to a bearer. They, knowing that this was not something that Salas had any control over, that simply the U.S. wouldn't let him in or let anybody in who had been to Europe in the last 15 days, they delayed that table to take place on January 3rd at 5 p.m. So it was previously supposed to be sometime in late December, like December 30th, something like that. So they're still going to have the million-dollar uh, heads-up thing, which, by the way, I don't think is a real free roll. I think it maybe came out of the prize pool. I don't know how it's calculated. Maybe they're just giving the million dollars away as a, f- a free thing, but 
it is something that's in addition to whatever they were playing for. This was something that, again, beforehand they said that uh, there's going to be a flat million dollars they play for heads up in a heads up tournament between the two champions. So supposedly he came today. I haven't heard that he didn't get there. And presumably they're going to have this on January 3rd. It is, I'm not sure the reason that he couldn't have been in Europe in that time frame. It might be because of the new strain of the coronavirus that showed up in the UK. But of course, that's already shown up in the US anyway. So I don't know what they think they're preventing. But they told him he can't come in until uh, January 2nd. So he must have been sweating a little bit. He must have been going, crap, are they going to get a million bucks to the other guy? Like he, he probably wondered, because they, they, they didn't, this was not in the rules. This actually was not stated beforehand. Like what if he can't get into the country? As far as I know, they did not have that contingency planned beforehand. But I, I think this would have looked really bad if they disqualified him based upon U.S. policy as far as just letting him in the country. And I don't think I think the thing about Europe is a new requirement. So it's not even something he could have known about beforehand. So and that one's more understandable why they're delaying it. Also, it's a heads-up event, so it's not just taking away one person out of nine who's eighth in chips. It's taking away one person out of two and automatically giving the prize to somebody else. You might wonder, was COVID involved at all here? Did he ever test positive for COVID? No. He did not test positive for COVID. All of his tests were negative. And the WSOP gave him a, quote, exemption certificate, whatever that means, to U.S. officials to try to get him exempted from that rule. But the U.S. officials laughed at that and said, uh, yeah, uh, are we going to let someone into the country to play the World Series of Poker just because the World Series of Poker said so? (laughs) That would be a big no. So that did not happen. I bet he's happy he's playing uh, this Hebert guy instead of Upesh de Silva. Still, he's not going to be playing a fish. He'll be playing the guy who won the mostly online main event and who had a big chip lead going into the final table. I think between the two, between uh, Joseph Hebert and uh, Damien Salas, I believe that uh, Salas is the more accomplished player prior to this I don't know that much about either of them. According to Hinden Mob, uh, Damien Salas, who is from uh, Argentina, has caches that date way back to 2009. And he uh, he has some big scores. He won... Uh, he was 7th place at the main event. I didn't even remember that. But yeah, I guess he was 7th place at the main event in 2017 for over a million dollars. And I have not heard of... Uh, I guess I had heard of Damien Salas. I just forgot the name. And Joseph Eber, I had not heard of him at all for sure. And he... He has some caches. I actually have more money in caches than he does. Prior to this... Uh, not anymore, but prior to him winning the domestic main event. It's funny, Hendon Mob doesn't count this yet. It's very weird. It shows he has that $1.5 million, but it shows his live earnings are 667000 <laughs> I don't understand that. But anyway, he, he has a number of caches over the years. Uh, it doesn't look like that many were all that big. 
There were some five-figure caches. He goes back to 2008, so they go back about the same amount of time. It's just uh, Bear never really broke through to do anything big at tournament poker. He did finish uh, in the money in the main event, in the regular main event, uh, in at least one other year. So I'm sure the guy is a, a decent player. Yeah, he, he cashed in the 2016 main event. He cashed in the WSP circuit main event in Tunica last year, or two years ago now. So he's like a long list of kind of small to medium caches, this guy, until this big score. But obviously not quite the same as uh, Upesha Silva or even Damon Salas. So Salas is definitely the favorite in this favorite in this one. I'm sure there's a way you can bet on him through like poker shares or something, but I haven't looked. Joseph Hebert is from Metairie. I think that's how you say it, in Louisiana. That's in the New Orleans area. And, uh, again, I hadn't really heard much about him, or at all, anything about him prior to this. But that's the way tournaments go. People just kind of come out of nowhere and win them. And if they're big, they can get known pretty quickly. Materi, if you know New Orleans, is uh, a little bit northwest of New Orleans, but in the general area. It is on the uh, southern end of Lake Pontchartrain. Traders, have you ever been to New Orleans? I, I have never been to New or- to uh, Louisiana. Oh, you're not? Orleans. Wow, I was going to guess you have been. I was, my guess would have been Traderuski has been to New Orleans, but uh, apparently the answer is no. I did not go until I was 30, and I was sent there for work. It wasn't even a voluntary trip. I was, it was a mandatory trip. I was sent there for work. The company was putting on a uh, presentation there, and I was the one to, assigned to go do it. So I traveled there. And uh, this is actually, they have this convention center. In fact, if you had gone, I'm sure you probably would have been to this convention center. But they have this right. convention center that is super long. And when I say long, I mean it's long. It's not deep, it's long. So it is actually a mile long. So it was hard to find parking there. And I stupidly parked on one end of it, not knowing how long it was. And I was carrying this heavy computer tower in 2002. And I thought, I, okay, i got to carry this some distance, but no big deal. And, you know, it's not super heavy. And, you know, how long could this be? I, I walked a mile inside of that convention center, an actual mile, carrying that heavy uh, tower the whole way. Actually, no, it was two uh, towers. Yeah. It was two towers I was carrying, not one. That was a workout. That was a workout. I did not expect that. My, boy, my arms were getting tired. Boy, I was regretting this. Boy, I was regretting for not parking on the other side. It was- and it was probably all humid and stuff, too. Right. Time. It was in June. Oh, it was God. in June. So it was very humid. Now, I quickly realized that I should be walking indoors and not outdoors. You could do either one. But uh, I learned pretty quickly that the walking outdoors, given that it was a long way, uh, was not going to be smart. So I, I walked indoors. It was a little harder, but I, I walked indoors. I had to keep going through doors, holding the the uh, towers, which is why I was paying the ass. But at least it wasn't hot and humid there. But what was misleading is there kept being these signs, convention this way, convention this way, like the one I was going to. It kept having signs this way, this way. It didn't say the, a mile walk this way. It just said this way. So that was awful. The next day I had to go back, but I knew where to park. It was, it was etched into my brain where it actually was. So I made sure not to make the same mistake the next day. That was not pleasant. I went back to New Orleans as a tourist later on, and I've been there uh, – I think 
two or three times since. I think two. I think I've been to two times since, and uh, I stayed at Harris, New Orleans both times. Lake Pontchartrain is a big lake north of New Orleans. And what's interesting about it is that there's a bridge that's, that's 17 miles that stretches all the way across it. It's a 17-mile bridge across the lake. So I said when I was there with the family, I said, we've got to take this. I know it's out of the way and pointless, but I want to – 17 miles? Yes. That's incredible. Yes. So, so I drove to the north side of Lake Pontchartrain in Mandeville, and I got on the bridge, which cost money, like, like 15 bucks or something, whatever it was. And I drove it, and it was so weird because it's so long that you cannot see the end of it. So you really feel like you're driving the ocean. You feel like you're getting on a bridge and driving over the ocean because you just drive and cannot see anything but water. And then, yeah, as you get about halfway like there, the bridge, like it, I'm sorry, Jeff. Does. When you get about halfway, then you can see New, the lights of New Orleans in the distance. So then you can tell you're not in the ocean anymore, but it feels like you're in the ocean, even though you're in a lake. So what were you going to say? I was going to say the one up like near Foster City, I think it's the 92 maybe in Northern California. It's kind of like that where you're going for a while and it's like you're above the ocean. You know, you're in the ocean basically. But it's not uh, certainly not 17 miles, but it's, yeah. it's a good distance. It's, you know, it's, you're coming from the East Bay kind of cutting over like mid peninsula. Yeah, and then there's also the bridge you, you can drive to Key West where it's this long thing that's somewhat over land, somewhat over water. That that uh, Route 1 from from southern Florida to Key West. Right. I've driven by that. I've never, I don't think I've been on it. Yeah, I've, do, I've done it twice. But this Lake Pontchartrain, I've never been anything like that. And it was interesting. Like, I recommend doing it because of the weird feeling like you're driving on the ocean. If you just kind of ignore the fact that you really know you're on a lake – and just kind of picture like you're just driving out into the ocean on a bri- on an endless bridge. It's kind of a cool feeling. So I, I said I saw that bridge and I said I got to do this. I've got to go to the end of this thing. And it, it takes a little while to drive around it because you can't just. It's 17 miles, but you got to go all the way around the lake, which is a lot more than 17 miles, to get to the other side of the bridge. So I did that. We got into this tangent because we were talking about uh, Materi, which is on the other side. Of that bridge, it's on the south side of that bridge, closer to New Orleans, and then uh, Mandeville is the north portion of it. Something else I recommend, by the way, if you go to New Orleans, is to take a bayou boat ride, where you can go by those houses that are actually on the bayou that you can only get to by boat, and you can sometimes see wild boars if it's the right time of year. You can also see uh, the alligators. I I wasn't there that I was there like December, so. The alligators weren't out because they're hibernating. But if you're there in the spring or summer, you can see them. So it's it's interesting. Definitely an interesting side trip to do. And they, they'll even pick you up. Some of these services will even pick you up. It's not right in New Orleans. It's like a little bit north of there. But they'll, they'll pick you up if you don't have a car. So that's an interesting thing to do. It's not even that expensive. Anyway, enough New Orleans talk. Let's move away from the World Series of Poker and talk about the Poker Hall of Fame. Remember... There were 10 finalists, or I think 12 finalists, actually, for the Poker Hall of Fame. And they're only electing one from now on, 
which I, I don't know why, but they changed it at some point. I don't know if it was this year or the year before, but they actually changed. Wait, they changed it from two to one? Yes. It should have gone the other way. It should have oh been two God, to three. That's yeah, so it's, retarded. That exactly. is so fucking stupid. So, so There's here, really no explanation to that. What's so, what's so dumb about this is that there's going to be a big glut of players that were very good that are going to age into being eligible very soon because you have to be 40 minimum. A lot of the good players from the mid-2000s who accomplished a lot and who stayed good over the years that, that you think could qualify are going to be 40 fairly soon. So why, why would they reduce it, especially because you have players and non-players competing? So to remind everybody... You had uh, Lon McCarron and Norman Chad. I, I thought they were separate, but they were actually together. They're either both elected or both not elected. Then Isai Scheinberg. So, of course, these two entries are non-players. Uh, Matt Savage, another non-player. Then the players were Patrick Antonius, Elia Lezra, Antonio Asfandiari, Chris Ferguson, Ted Forrest, Mike Matisau, and Huck Seed. So I went over this on a previous show, on the show we had two weeks ago. And I gave my opinions. Uh, I know that Trader Ruski was very pro Huxied getting in, and looks like that uh, you were correct because Huxied was the one they selected to bring in, and everybody else, of course, was turned away because they only bring in one person. Now the voting system is bullshit, and I've said this for many years, and I'll continue to say it: the voting system is bullshit. But I'll tell you the number of votes each got, then I'll explain it. Huxied won fairly easily. He got 76 votes. Second place, a non-player. Not Isai. Matt Savage, 51 votes. Isai, close behind, 45 votes. Everybody else wasn't that close. Elia Lesra, 30. Antonio Esfandiari, 23. Lon McCarran and Norman Chad, 20. Ted Forrest, 20. Mike Mattisau, 17. Patrick Antonius, 15. Chris Ferguson uh, got in last. I guess there's a lot of hatred for him there. Three votes. <laughs> Who's voting? It is the living Hall of Fame members. So if you're in the Poker Hall of Fame and you're not dead, you vote. Now, let's go back to the voting. Huck Seed is 76, has 76 voters. votes. Did he really have 76 people voting for him? Answer, no. Let me explain how it works. I'm not sure how many people are voting. I'm not sure how many living members there are, and if all of them actually voted. Some may just have declined to do, to do it at all. But the way it works is that uh, they give you, uh, I guess it is 10 entries. I thought it was 11 or 12, but it was it was actually 10, because Lon McCarran and Norman Chad are together, as if they're one person. So you're given a ballot with all 10 names on it and a line next to it. And on this ballot you have to either write a number next to the name or leave it blank. And the number you write is the ranking of how much you feel they deserve to get into it, and you leave it blank if you don't think they deserve it at all. So if you think only five people deserve to be in, then you would put one, two, three, four, five for each of these five people, and then the re the other five leave blank. So let's say hypothetically, I thought that... Uh, Huxseed, Matt Savage, Isai Scheinberg, Elia Lezra, and Antonio Esfandiari were the five I thought should get in, and the other five should get nothing, or should not get, should not be in at all. So I put one next to Huxseed, two next to Matt Savage, three next to Scheinberg, four next to Lezra, five next to Esfandiari, the others I leave blank. How is that scored? Huxseed gets 10 votes, 
because I gave him number one. Matt Savage gets nine votes. Isai Scheinberg gets eight votes for being third. Alezra gets seven for being fourth. Esfandiari gets six votes for being fifth. And the other five who are on the ballot, who I left blank, all get... Zero point zero. So there's a big problem with this. There's a huge problem with this. And that is that you can really allow one person to jump way ahead of the others by just voting for that one person and voting for nobody else. Or maybe voting for two people you like and voting for nobody else. So if I were to vote for, say, Huxseed and Matt Savage 1 and 2, I'd be giving 10 to Seed, 9 to Savage, and 0 to everybody else, which means Seed and Savage jump up 10 and 9 points on everybody else just for my one vote. And yet, if another person voted on all 10 people, then Seed and Savage do not get as much of a jump on them because, like, the guy in third now will, will they'll only get ahead of by one and two points instead of ten and nine. So it's a very big deal if someone gets left blank instead of given a rank from one to ten. So, of course, the Poker Hall of Fame members are not stupid. They realize very quickly that if a few of them get together and agree to vote for the same people they like, and then they leave everybody else blank that they've pretty much rigged it. A few people together can rig the whole thing to where they can give someone such a big lead by through this voting method that uh, it's almost impossible to catch up. So that's what has happened before. I don't know if that's what happened here, but that has happened before with others who have been elected. So when you've seen surprising elections, and Huxley's not surprising. I mean, he was he, he accomplished a lot in the 90s and 2000s in poker. He was once very dominant. In the 2010s, not so much, but in the 90s and and 2000s, he really was dominating the tournament scene. So I'm not saying that was a bad election. I'm just saying that uh, in the past, this has been manipulated, and it's possible it happened again. Now, Ferguson got three votes, and uh, I have to imagine there was some influence here. Now, yes, I'm sure there's some people who are bitter at him for what he helped do to poker, by the uh, the full tilt debacle, where they ended up stealing all the money on deposit, and he was one of the people on the board who either knew it was happening or should have known. And he still has never told the whole story. He put out that one idiotic video trying to kind of half-apologize that really apologizing. There's a lot of people who don't like him. But Poker Hall of Fame members, they're not poker grinders. A lot of them uh, don't care as much about that. But... Nevertheless, he only got three votes, despite the fact that he is uh, pretty accomplished poker-wise. Not just winning the main event, but he's also, uh, if you look at his results, he's had a lot of tournament results over the year. So why would he only get three votes? Well, I know one person who really doesn't like him, and that would be a Poker Hall of Fame member who's also a very influential person in poker, known as one Daniel Negreanu. Daniel does not like Chris Ferguson. And it would not surprise me if Daniel influenced a lot of people not to vote for him at all. There's a lot of influencing going on, a lot of voting blocks going on, and I guess in this case a voting non-block or a non-voting block. So that's a little suspicious that Ferguson only got three votes. I'm not sorry to see that happen. I, I said that maybe there should be some criteria that the person didn't harm poker much like 
they want to bring people in the Hall of Fame and have brought people in the Hall of Fame who have helped poker and that the criteria for bringing them in was helping poker, not so much being good at the tables. And even on this ballot, you had Isai Scheinberg, you had Matt Savage, you had Lon McCarron and Norman Chad. These were not great poker players. These were people who were perceived to have been positive figures that helped poker. So should this something be taken away from people who hurt poker? So I can actually appreciate that. But at the same time, if this was done through some sort of voting block, that's kind of BS. And I suspect that. Like when I saw this, I, I should have predicted it because I kind of felt it. I was reading, I'm going, you know what? I know Negranu does not like Chris Ferguson. And I thought to myself, I, I bet he's not going to get many votes. And I was right. Now, something I am predicting, that when Doug Polk is old enough to be elected to the Poker Hall of Fame in like eight years, seven years, whenever he turns 40, either he won't be nominated or if he gets nominated, it'll be something like this where he gets like three votes. Because again, I'm sure Negranu will see to it that people do not vote for him. Now, when I say see to it, I mean... Negreanu can't force people not to, but if he's friends with the people who are voting, then I have a feeling that a lot of them will go along with him. And that's kind of always the way it's been. It's bullshit. Like they should. This really should just be a well, system. Jeff, hold on, hold on. You can't. How can you? How can you just say it's Negreanu when you basically fucked everybody? Because he only got I mean, three votes. You know, that's why. Because he got three well, votes. I, I, I know, but. Right, but three votes, but didn't you just... I mean, wouldn't that have to be that, like, only one person gave him three points? Well, he could, have, he could have had, like, ten people... Him last? Well, so I think it's a combo. I, I guess it's not just Negranu. I think it was a combination of Negranu uh, speaking against him and convincing people not to give him points and others who already just were pissed at him anyway that would have left it blank anyway. This this was clearly a message to him that you're not getting in because you were you were a piece of shit with Full Tilt and, and F you. So, uh, but but I have to say that I bet I bet if Negranu like was never born, I, I have a feeling Ferguson would have done better on this uh, ballot. He wouldn't have gotten in, but he would have done better. That's my guess. Uh, if you remember, they had a they had a dispute not too long ago about Player of the Year, where he was accusing Ferguson of just intentionally min caching in a ton of events and just playing at a tremendous volume and min caching. In order to be the player of the year, which he ended up winning. And Negrano was going for player of the year also. So he was furious about this. He felt that uh, Ferguson was exploiting the min cash thing where min cashing gave you more points than it probably should have. And so what Ferguson's strategy was to just to knit it up and, and coast into a min cash. And I, I watched him do it. I watched, uh, I actually saw him min cash at some events I was in at the World Series that year. And he really was just like super tight. And just, like, playing to min-cash. And the truth is, if you play to min-cash, you actually can uh, min-cash fairly often. Not enough to be profitable, but he doesn't need to be profitable. He's super rich. So if your goal is just to accumulate points through min-caches, then you can play a certain style at, 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 like, large events at the World Series, which are where min-caching is not all that hard. It's not trivial, but it's not all that hard. So, like, I, I've noticed myself, I don't try to min-cash, but at some of these very large field events, I notice that I can just pretty much, like, win one or two decent pots and just kind of coast the rest of the way and min-cash. I don't try to do that, but I, I've seen it where I've just, like, card did, where I, like, win one or two early pots to get a, an okay stack going, 
that I go card dead, but I don't really take any bad beats or anything. And uh, and I mid cash because I don't have to win anything further. I can just kind of coast and uh, and win. And again, I don't want anyone to think I'm trying to be an Alan Kessler here because I'm not. I want to win. I play because I want to win. But when I'm card dead, I'm card dead. And I have noticed where I'll mint cash and go, it's kind of weird that I've outlasted like 90% of the people because I've hardly won any hands. Like, how did I even do this? Like, I didn't really deserve to win anything here because I, I didn't win many pots. But somehow here I am and I've just cashed. It's like it's weird. Especially now that they pay 15% of the field, it's gotten even easier to cash. So uh, so Chris Ferguson was doing that and Negreanu was mad because Negreanu was playing to win and he ended up like narrowly losing and and he was pissed off. And you know, he, it's not like he had a reason to be mad at Ferguson, but he just felt like it was not in good faith the way he was winning, and that he was just basically, basically, as he had all the time in the world, he was just uh, traveling to mid-cash. I have a feeling Negreanu is involved. I'll never know. Not that he was going to win. I'm not again like Traderisky saying a lot of people probably were pissed at him anyway. I don't because there's no way Negreanu got to everybody, and he still only got three votes. That's interesting. Now let's get back to Huck Seed. As I said on a previous show, Huxley had a lot of uh, accomplishments. He did kind of peter out and was not uh, that relevant, especially in the second half of the 2010s. Uh, I think some of this was from bad uh, bankroll management or maybe management of his money in other ways, but he did kind of fall out of the dominance in the poker scene and he's kind of just sporadically cashing here and there. But uh, he was dominant for a very long time in poker. He wasn't just like a Johnny-come-lately who won for a few years and disappeared. He was at the top for a very long time. So, obviously, he deserves to be in. He definitely had a long enough tenure to do so. I saw a tweet from Jessica Wellman on December 30th, and I was I kind of laughed at this because it's exactly what I was seeing the second I heard that Huck was elected. She wrote... Over under number of people texting Mickey Doft today their condolences. Now you may say, what is that? Who's Mickey Doft? Well, Mickey Doft was, and I think still is, a poker news reporter. He is the younger brother of a poker pro, or I think former poker pro now, uh, Ellie Doft, who was known on Poker Stars as What is 7 Times 6 Mickey has been reporting for poker news for a number of years now. I like both him and his brother. I, I was never like really close to either of them, but I, I got to know each of them a little bit. Always got along with them well. I haven't seen Ellie in a number of years, but I, I, I see Mickey every year at the World Series. In fact, he was the first uh, tournament reporter to see me bust, and he kind of like put on a sad face as I walked away from busting. And I thought, oh, that's kind of nice. Like, like he kind of looked genuinely sad that I was out in, in 128th place at the main event. Kind of looked like he was kind of rooting for me to to win it, so that was cool. So uh, anyway, Mickey Doft had an incident with Huxied in 2012, and Jessica Wellman must have known about it, so that's why she wrote as kind of a little inside joke over under number of people texting their condolences today to Mickey Doft about Huxied getting elected. I know about this incident because I was there. I was not only there; I actually had a, a part in it. What happened was Huck Seed was uh, the early chip leader in the 5K Limit Hold'em event at the World Series of Poker. So he was doing really well. He was listed on top of the chip counts. And then uh, they stopped counting the chips very well. 
Why? It's because Poker News was just short-staffed. They didn't hire enough people, and it was just kind of a frantic thing. Everybody was stretched too thin, and they, they couldn't get around to, to counting everybody's chips that quickly. And in Limit Hold'em, you know how it is when the blinds get bigger, that you can lose chips very fast. You, you play three hands to completion, you can go from the chip leader to short-stacked. Anyone who plays a, a Limit Hold'em World Series event knows that. So that's what happened to Huck Seed, where he went from a lot of chips to short-stacked in a short time. Well, he started getting all these texts from people who were congratulating him for what a great start he's having. And, yeah, come on, you got this, man. I see you're kicking ass here. Yeah, you're going to win this one, Huck. And all these people are texting him about how great he's doing. In the meantime, he's fuming inside because he's frustrated that he lost his lead like that, and now he's short-stacked. So it's bad enough to lose your, your chip lead like this and to be struggling to even stay alive there, but he's getting all these congratulatory texts telling him how great he's doing. And he's getting these texts because Poker News is still showing he's on the top of the chip counts. So I understand it's, it's irritating. I wouldn't love that either. But you have to understand why it's happening. You have to understand that Poker News is stretched thin and why you can be pissed at Poker News for doing a poor job. You can't be mad at the individual reporters who are tasked to follow you because they're not just doing a bad job. They just have too much of a job to do and just can't get to you fast enough. So I had seen that the entire World Series, I had seen that the year before, and I was used to it. So I wasn't even expecting them to keep uh, running an easy count of the World Series. So I, uh, you know, I noticed this too when I was looking on my phone and I saw it showed Huck is one of the chip leaders and I see him right at my table and he's not doing very well. But uh, he finally started muttering about this at the table. Can you believe this shit? It shows me, it shows me the fucking top there. What the hell? Like, look at my stack here. Is this top? I keep getting these fucking bullshit texts about how well I'm doing and congratulations. Like, what the fuck? Why can't they list it right? Why can't they fucking see this already? He was, he was saying that at the table, getting angrier and angrier. Um, everybody was afraid to say anything to him because, you know, it's Huck Seed. He's a known player. In 2012, he's even better known than he is today. Uh, nobody wanted to start up with him. And he was just like in a foul mood. Like, nobody wanted to, like, really explain it to him. So everyone just kind of nodded their heads or ignored it <laughs> and just let him keep muttering about it. Well, Mickey Doff got over there to take his counts, and the second Mickey Doff looks over his shoulder, he just went off. And he just went off about how incompetent he is and, and he's getting all these fucking texts because of him and why can't he do his job right and just said a lot of rude and inappropriate things to Mickey. And I didn't think it was fair. Again, if he went to the Poker News manager and said, you guys, you've got to do a better job with this. You've got to staff properly. I'd understand. But he went off on the individual counter, which, you know, it's not Mickey's job to staff there. And, uh, like, I, I totally understood Mickey's position. I know Mickey. I know he's competent. I, he's not, he wasn't slacking. He just had too much to do. And and the chip counts can change very quickly in these limit hold'em events. So um, as this was happening... And he's yelling at Mickey, and Mickey didn't try to fight back. Mickey just kind of sat there and took it because you know, he's not. They're not supposed to talk back to the players. They're not supposed to get in an argument. It's one thing for two players to argue, but the the poker news guys aren't supposed to argue with the players. You know, the players being a dick. So finally, I spoke up, partially because I, I knew Mickey and liked him and knew his brother, and partially just because I felt this was wrong. So I, I said to Huck, I said, you know, actually, this isn't his fault. Poker news just hasn't been staffing enough people for whatever reason. So. I, I, he's trying his best here. They just can't get around because they have so much to do. So it's, it's not it's not this guy's fault. It's, it's the fault of Poker News and the management and how they staff. So just so I, I wouldn't blame this guy here. 
And so, uh, anyway, I, I wasn't even sure if Mickey heard me, but he later told me that he heard me say all this and he appreciated it very much that I was the only one to speak up for him. But it was funny that he must have told enough people and they must have remembered this, that Jessica Wellman, eight years later, <laughs> wrote that tweet. And I was going to – it was funny because right when I saw Huxied 1, I was going to go make some kind of reference to Mickey Doft on there, like a cryptic reference. She would already done it. So that was the story. That was the Mickey Doft story. So I, I doubt that Mickey Doft was rooting for Huck to get in. Everybody else uh, mostly had positive stories about Huck. Because, you know, he didn't really get in any scandals. He was known to be kind of a degenerate, sometimes to have a bad temper, but uh, he, he nothing really bad ever happened involving Huck that I know of. So he's just kind of one of these guys who was very dominant on the scene and then kind of just fell off somewhat and maybe mismanages money. But that's super common, nor should it be a factor whether they get in. Now, I have I have said before that if somebody is dominant for a relatively short time and then disappears completely, then I don't think they should get in. So if they mismanage their money, even if they were a great player who could have been a Hall of Famer, much like a baseball player who's really good but after like four years injures himself and can't play anymore, shouldn't be in. I I don't think a poker player who doesn't last all that long, or even who lasts kind of semi-long, but then disappears... I don't think they should get in. So I I said the litmus test, and this doesn't apply to Huck, who goes back to 1990, but I was saying the litmus test is anybody who entered around the boom in 2003, when poker was also easiest for those years, that if if they're unable to last to today and still be today's games, that they shouldn't get in. And I don't, like somebody who was great in the 80s and 90s, I don't think they should be able to beat the 2020 games to get in because they're different eras. But someone from 2003, which wasn't that long ago, 17 years ago, if they can't, if they didn't make it to today, and they couldn't beat today, even if you gave them money to play, then I don't think they should be in the Hall of Fame. Because 2003 is recent enough that just dominating for a short time during the poker boom, or even for you know several years during the poker boom, to me that doesn't make you a Hall of Famer. That might make you someone who played at the right time and who took advantage of the opportunity, and that's great, and I give you a thumbs up for that. But that doesn't make you a Hall of Famer. And I'm one of those people. I mean, I'm, one, I'm still playing today, but I, I did my best in the years of the poker boom. It was easiest then. I'm actually a better player today than back then, but I did better back then because the game was easier. So I don't feel I'm a Hall of Famer. And I don't feel anybody who really dominated during those years but, but hasn't been able to keep up. And if you put them in a game today, they'd lose. I don't think they deserve to get in because they just didn't dominate long enough. Again, if you dominate a different era, that's a different story. If you were like Huck dominated for a long time, so even if he couldn't beat the twenty twenty games, that doesn't matter. He was he was good enough for long enough that it's fine. But I don't think two thousand three to now, if you couldn't beat today and you came around in oh three, I don't think that's long enough. Especially given that there was a period where it was much easier to beat the game. Anyway, Huck is in. I don't know why they cut it down to one person. That's stupid. They're going to have a big, big backlog. What they need to do for the, the Hall of Fame is, number one, separate election of players and non-players. Two different elections. Number two, expand the number of people, maybe two players and one non-player each year. And number three, make the voting system just a regular voting system. Just everybody votes. Maybe you, you just uh, 
Maybe you vote for three people, and that's it. You can, you can even do the one, two, and three, but you have to do a one, two, and three. There's no one blank blank. You would have to do one, two, and three, and you have to do the one, two, and three, and that's it. So everybody, so whoever gets first gets three points. Whoever gets second gets two points. Third gets one point. Everybody else gets zero. And force everybody to, to vote for at least three. And that should be it. That would be much more fair. Now, you, w- you wouldn't be able to stop the voting blocks where people talk behind the scenes and decide to vote together. But at least this will stop the rigging through this bullshit where people vote for one or two people and leave the rest blank. But they don't change it because the people who are voting, the Hall of Famers themselves, don't want to change it. They like their own system, so they don't care what outsiders think, and not enough people are objecting. Just because I'm objecting and a few other people on Twitter are objecting, that's not going to be enough. So it's not going to change. I just think it's bullshit. Okay, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to take a break. I'm going to take a bit of an earlier break for two reasons. Uh, One is a good reason, one is a bad reason. The good reason is that I actually need to use the rinse on my throat because I think I'm talking a little bit differently because I'm hearing my own voice back and it's making me kind of talk in a different way subconsciously. I'm not even thinking about talking a different way, but I can kind of feel more stress on my voice as I talk. And and then the second thing, which kind of is my fault, I forgot to bring my computer charger. <laughs> I was so concentrating on setting up the sound card that I forgot to bring the computer charger and gave me a low battery warning. So if I don't get up shortly, this show will be off the air very soon anyway. But don't worry, I will return with many topics. Trade risk, you can be here maybe about, uh, I don't know, 10 minutes or so. I will be going out of, of uh, that. I'm going out of battery like this. Right, you, already sound, you already sound like it. You can hardly understand you. Okay, well, uh, I'll have to go at it alone here. When we return, we're going to talk about Seals with Clubs and then Chris Moneymaker's departure. So... I'm going to play the commercial that you all know and hopefully love and hopefully don't hate too much by now. The Eric Benzamokin commercial. He gave money to the free roll tonight. He gave a lot of money tonight. Very generous. Very generous and a very good attorney. He produced a beautiful anti-slap motion for me. You can see it. It's right there. You can look at my Twitter. You can look at the thread. If you want, you can text me, 775-372-8355. I will send you a copy. It's a beautiful anti-slap motion, if you'd like to see it. And I have a feeling it's going to be very successful, especially if the opposition has no attorney. Make sure to contact him. Don't be afraid to contact him if you have a need. He's a very nice guy, very easygoing. He's not the type of person who gets uh, hot under the collar easily. He's not a huck seed. If Eric Bensamokin was at that table and listed as the chip leader as he was losing his chips, he would not have bitten Mickey Doff's heads off. I, I can tell you that. I will be back shortly. Trader Ruski, is, is this goodbye for the night? Goodbye. Wow, he sounds. He sounds, <laughs> <laughs> he sounds very bad there. That was that did not sound good. That sounded like I was talking to Charlie Brown's mom. It's probably better off that he got off at this point if it's going to sound that way. Maybe it's the battery dying. I, I can't put all the blame at his feet. But thank you, Trader Ruski, for being here with us. 
and I will be back and uh, give me some feedback of how I sounded this week, since this is on the new computer on the new external sound card. And I'll have to learn. I think I'm talking like kind of louder or just stressing my voice more because I can hear myself back. And kind of when I hear myself back, I kind of feel like you can't hear me over me. If that sound, if that makes any sense at all, which makes no sense to me as I say it out loud, but I think that's what I'm doing. So I will be back shortly, and we will do the rest of the show. Okay, now most of you guys know that I'm very picky regarding which sponsors I take. If I don't believe in the product or service being offered, I don't take the ad. And that's why I lose money on the site every month, even though I'm a cheap Jew, and it kills me to send out that money every month knowing that it is not coming back in. But I'm really, really excited about this new Poker Fraud Alert sponsor because I feel he's providing a service to the poker community that they really, really need. Eric Bensamokin is an attorney and a longtime poker player who provides arbitration and mediation for poker and gambling-related disputes. Now, simply put, if someone owes you money or if they think you owe them money, he's a fully impartial third party you can trust to listen, understand, and decide who's right. The reason you can trust him is because Eric is a licensed attorney in the state of California and federally, and he's able to arbitrate and mediate for you no matter where you live. So you don't have to be in California. You can be anywhere, and he can arbitrate or mediate for you. What makes Eric perfect for this is the fact that he's an attorney bound by the rules and ethics of the state bar, and he's also a longtime poker player, so he understands the issues of our community. And at the same time, he's an outsider, and he, he's probably not likely to know anybody connected to your dispute. So you're not going to have to worry that he's friends with a guy that you're disputing with, or even friends of a friend. He's really an outsider to the community who plays poker for fun, but knows the community really well. It's perfect, and he's a licensed attorney. You can't do better than that. This means you will get a completely impartial decision from a qualified attorney who understands everything. And I'll be honest, if I had a poker-related money dispute with someone, Eric is the exact type of arbitrator or mediator that I would be looking for. Take down his email address, eric at eblawfirm.us. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. If you feel you're being scammed or if someone owes you money or if someone's accusing you of owing them money, just send Eric an email. It's not going to cost you anything. It's not going to hurt you. Just send him an email, and he'll tell you what he thinks of the whole situation, and then he can go from there. Eric can perform both arbitration, where he decides who's right, and mediation, where he helps both of you figure out your own agreement. Keep the email address around, even if you don't have a dispute at the moment, because you never know when one will come up, and Eric is exactly the man you need for the job. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. That's attorney Eric Benzamokin. Eric at eblawfirm.us. Okay, I'm back. Took a little break. I'm going to have to get used to this new sound card because uh, I'm definitely speaking a different way. As soon as I came out, uh, my girlfriend was actually still awake and... When I talked to her, she said, oh, you sound different. So she, she heard my voice got worn down. She said it sounded stressed. So that wasn't good. That probably means I'll wake up with a sore throat after I go to sleep following this show. I always have the same thing during times of COVID. Is I, The next day after the show, I feel a sore throat. I go, crap, did I catch COVID? I go, oh, wait a minute. No, it's the radio show. It's the, the disease of the radio show. And here's a guy who I hope doesn't have any diseases. Uh, Matt the Rat. Hello. <coughs> oh, he does. Oh, no, boy. No. Hey. How are you today? Well, I'm okay, other than, uh, I think, stressing out my voice, trying to talk over my own sound card. 
I, I think I missed it. Like when the commercial played for the fourth time, I refreshed the radio page and then it was blank silent for a bit. Uh, it was probably silent for like one second as I turned it off and put myself oh. on, but I hope it wasn't too blank silent. I guess I'll go see no. it at the end of the show. So what what was the break for so long? Well, I always do this break at like kind of the middle end of the show so I can just go use the dry mouth rinse on my throat, make it feel better, and then just take a little but break not, from talking. But not for four commercials. No, it's usually that long. I just I used to rush through it. Now I I don't anymore. And it, for the oh. archives, it gets edited though. Maybe if you listen oh, to the archives, that's why I listen yeah, to yeah. the archives most. Of the okay, time. no, I, I don't torture the archives people. I'm I'm going to leave this in for the archives people to appreciate it to understand <laughs> that uh, I I'm not perfectly timing it. I used to race around the house and go do everything in the two minutes, whatever. And I'm like, why am I doing this? I'm just gonna I'm just gonna take my time, and then when I'm back, I'll edit out the rest afterwards. That's that's what I do. You you heard the the edited show that uh, cleans things like that up. So anyway, you were, you were asking about the um, your sound quality. The sound quality is pretty good, but several times when you're talking, all of a sudden gets real loud, and then it kind of goes back to normal. Like uh, it, it's almost like you hit a a volume surge button or something. Okay, well that's a problem. Yeah, I'm testing this card. I, I appreciate that uh, that feedback. I'm testing this card. There's two ways I can do this. Right now, I have it going through a preamp. And then into the sound card. But since the sound card is a, I think it's also a preamp itself in a way, I can, I might be able to cut out the middleman and just plug directly into it. Maybe that will improve the situation. But yeah, that's, that's, yeah, it was, it was weird. The quality was good. It just got really loud all of a sudden for about 10 seconds and then it would go back down again. That is strange. Well, okay. I hope that's not, uh, I hope that's not. The permanent thing here, I'll have to return this thing. I'm trying to find a solution because I, I got this new computer, which after some fine tuning is working well, but the thing it just cannot get going, there's no way to make the sound card work with stereo mix, which I need. So I bought an external card for this, and then that didn't work, and then I just got this one, which does work, but has that weird quirk as you're talking about, and plus I can hear myself back. So never perfect. It's always a challenge here. But I will find is that, something. Is that the gaming computer you bought? No. I actually bought two computers. One was about two months ago, and one was very recently. The gaming computer was very recently. This is a, a laptop, which just uh, replaces my other laptop, which the screen had gone bad. Just just as a uh, an, another nerdy tech guy, what what is like the processor and the memory on your gaming computer? That has an i9 processor. It has 32 gigabytes, and it's got the uh, the 3070 NVIDIA graphics card, which is one of yeah, the best ones nice right one. now. So that's it. Run, like it runs Flight Simulator really well. I'm very impressed with how it runs that. When I've heard others complaining that it's jumpy or they don't get very good frames per second, I don't get any of that. It, it runs very well. It, it's great. So I'm happy with how that's performing, but uh, not that happy yet with how the sound card situation is going here with this show. So have to get this all going in an optimal way as much as I can. Yeah, I, about every four years I get a new computer. I recently got a, a Ryzen 7 with 32 gigs of RAM. And I don't – I got it kind of a – I just got like a $300 gaming card. I don't really play games, but just in case I do, um, mostly I use it for poker and, you know, Office and Adobe stuff. But um, 
it's always nice to get a new computer. Yeah, I do it actually every six years usually. And in fact, the last computer would have made the six years for sure, but the screen just started flickering really badly. And it was, I, I had to switch. I was only using it for radio for the last two months. And now I finally got this computer, this new one, to where I can use it for radio, which makes it much easier because I don't have all the flickering and all the other crap going on while I'm uh, doing it. It's just I have this sound issue. Do you, do you know about um, Flash? You know how it's, it was supposed to end uh, at the beginning of the year. Do you know what the actual rule is? Because there's like some sites that I play on, uh, let's say, let's say a roulette or something. It's a Flash based and it's still working. Okay, well, then it hasn't been done away with. I guess all the browsers are supposed to stop supporting it on December 31st, but maybe some didn't. Well, I'm using the latest Google Chrome, and it works. Okay, so maybe it's been delayed a bit. I don't know what to say. Yeah. Just a couple other small things. Some, something that might be of interest to some some people uh, is kind of – and it might it kind of ties in maybe with your, your next topic. Um, uh, with Bitcoin and Micon. Um, you know, it's always been kind of a mystery. People were always kind of guessing of like, you know, does Micon really have a lot of Bitcoin or does he or doesn't he? Uh, my only input on that is a, a couple times on Twitter, uh, someone had done a poll and uh, something like, you know, were you one of these guys that was into Bitcoin years ago and held on to it? And then Micon said, yes, I'm one of them. And then recently there was somebody that said, uh, if you can guess the price of Bitcoin, um, you know, at the beginning of the new year, um, I'm going to give away one Bitcoin. I some real rich guy or whatever. And Mike on put his bid in and said, if I win, you can donate it to this charity. Nobody's going to donate to charity a $30,000 unless you got a lot of Bitcoin. Well, but here's another way to look at it. He could be so, he could be thinking it's so unlikely he wins that it makes him look good. And the equity he's donating away is tiny. So yes, if he gets super lucky, he'll, think, okay, I didn't really mean to do this, but he'll do it. I'm sure he'd do it anyway. I don't think he'd say it and not do it. But I'm saying that uh, it's it's easy to say. It's like saying, well, if I win the lottery, I'm going to go buy a dollar lottery ticket. If I win it, I'm going to donate it to charity. Well, True. It's I, I just I have a feeling that he – I don't think he's loaded, but I, I think he did hold on to some of the – Well, I'm, I'm, and... I'm actually going to explain what I think about that in the next segment. But it's it's a – Stuff you're bringing it, up here, yeah, and uh, especially with the the bull run lately on on Bitcoin, it's nobody knows, you know, with PayPal getting behind it and uh, institutional investors buying it. Uh, uh, I don't know if it's going to crash or keep going, but um, yeah, it's always hard to tell. Uh, yeah, uh, one one last thing uh, uh, while I got you on here is kind of a, a personal thing. How often do you actually go out? Well, it depends what you mean by go out. Uh, as far as going anywhere indoors that is not my own house, almost never. Okay. As far as far as uh, leaving the house at all, uh, a few times a week I'll go out to pick things up, which are like curbside or other stuff like that, where I can get something without actually having to go indoors anywhere or interact with another person other than through the car window. Uh, the reason I was asking, I have a Wells Fargo uh, business account that I've had for many years, and it's become dormant because I haven't made uh, done a, a transaction. Usually I do everything online, but I guess if you don't use an ATM or make a deposit in person after like a year and a half or something, it becomes dormant. And I need someone to stop by a Wells Fargo and make a in-person deposit for me. If you want to mail it to me, I, I can. I mean, you can 
contact me privately and I'll give you the address to send it to and I can go to an ATM or something. I, I can do that because those are outdoors. Well, it, it, the, the the problem is my ATM card is is toast now. Oh, okay. Well, then yeah. I can't. That, that's okay. Then I can't I, do it. I, 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 I was I willing to help you, people. but... Yeah, that's okay. A couple other people. I just need someone to go in and just say... Because, you know, anybody can deposit to anybody's bank account. Oh, actually, no, bank they, will... no, they can, not, not here they can't anymore. That's done. Really? Yeah. In the U.S., you can't do it. You can't go and say, hey, I want to deposit to this account? Uh, not cash. I guess I could with a check, but uh, not cash. I guess I could put a check in for like a dollar if I wanted to, but uh, cash they would not let me do. Oh, wow. I thought – like here in Canada, you can go to any bank and say, here's the account number. Uh, it's my buddy's account, but I owe him money or whatever. No, those, were, those were the good old days. That was in uh, the 2000s and early 2010s, and they they rapidly started doing away with that, and Wells Fargo was one of the last ones to stop it. Really? But uh, a check would be if somebody made a check out to it. Yeah, it, it would probably still work, yeah. Okay. Well, I got a couple other people I can contact. They can stop by and uh... – and do that but anyway that's it but yeah the volume is uh is uh, the volume is going up and down not right now but it's is good but someone else too made a comment in here this uh blubber nuffle said he noticed the volume going up and down too yes yeah you're talking about the bitcoin volume no 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 the your volume oh my volume oh right, crap <laughs> volume. I, I wish it was bitcoin volume okay <laughs> yeah okay we'll talk to you later okay good night bye all right. So I'm going to have to work on the volume here. I apologize for those listening this week about the volume up and down. I'm going to work on it for next week. Okay. Well, thank you, Matt. So let's talk about MyCon since he just brought him up. And since it's our next topic, let's talk about MyCon and Seals with Clubs, which we haven't discussed in a while. But every time something happens, I think it's worth discussing here just because MyCon and I were once friends and are no longer friends is not a reason I should just avoid the topic. I would cover this if I never knew MyCon, so I should cover this no matter what. So anyway, give you the quick background in case you don't know it. Most of you do, but in case you don't know. Brian MyCon and I were friends for a number of years in the 2000s through the early 2010s. And then we had a falling out. I actually met him because I signed up for Never Win Poker, which was a forum he created in 2004 to actually be a fan site for Dustin Neverwin Wolf, who was like an up-and-coming poker player at the time. Dustin was a rival of mine on PokerStars, and I went on there, you know, I'm talking about Never Win Poker, I went on there to kind of troll him. Now, when I say troll him, it wasn't something serious, like I wasn't trying to really hurt his feelings or insult him. It was kind of like good-natured trash talk that we would do back and forth at the table that I thought would be funny if I'd bring over to his fan site on his forum. So that's what I did. I actually signed up as a guest originally. I didn't even think I'd be sticking around there. Anyway, once I made a few posts there, then I made a Dan Druff account. And then people were like, oh, Dan Druff, I see you on PokerStars all the time winning over there. Okay, hey, can I ask you this poker question? Hey, I can ask you this question. So, like... I started answering serious poker questions, too, and it kind of evolved into a combination of, like, poker advice and, and like, a free speech environment where everyone could say whatever they wanted, and there's no censorship, like, on 2 plus 2, and it took off very quickly because the poker boom was really taking off in 2004, if you think about it. So, I was never a mod there. I didn't start, right? No, never. I didn't start out a mod there on Never Win Poker. I was just a user, and I was an active poster, and a few years in... I was made into a moderator. And then Mike wanted to sell it because he was broke, and so was Neverwin. 
And uh, I said, okay, well, am I going to get anything here? Because I pretty much built this whole thing up, which I did. Like, it wasn't my site, but I was the one who built all the traffic there for the most part. And, or like, I had a big hand in it at the very least. And they said, oh, no, we can't give it to you because, you know, we're the ones who are broke and you're not. You technically don't own anything. So, anyway, we got past that. They gave me a token percentage. And, you know, I didn't get that much. They got a lot, way, way more than I did. But I stayed on. And then eventually, Poker News, who bought it, decided to close the forum and let us just take it for free and start our own thing. So we started a new thing called Donkdown. And uh, two years later, I was forced out of Donkdown. By two years later, I was no longer friends with MyCon. I won't go into the whole story. It's not worth rehashing. But um, it was partially due to the site itself, partially due to other things. As I said, it's a complicated mess. I don't want to get into it. But I felt uh, pretty screwed over in the whole thing. And I was unhappy. And not only did I quit that forum, I quit all forums. And I wasn't sure if I was ever going to come back to any poker forums ever. And I was already banned off 2 plus 2 over a different thing. Actually, over association with MyCon, strangely enough. But I was banned from 2 plus 2. I was forced out of Donkdown. So I had no forum. And for six months, I occasionally wrote a blog on dandruffpoker.com, which still exists. You can go back and look at some of those blogs. And then people started saying, hey, uh, can you start your own forum? And, and so I was like, no, I don't really feel like doing that. But I had left the idea open, like maybe I'll do it. I even told Micon when I left that I'm just letting you know. Yeah, I was forced out of there. When I say left, I mean when I was forced out. And I finally just agreed to leave because they were forcing me out. And I didn't want to be there anymore if they didn't want me there. But I did mention when we did our separation agreement that I may start another forum in, quote, six months or so. I wasn't sure if I was. I, was, I wasn't, like, I wasn't uh, sure if I would or not. But I ended up doing that. That was that was uh, Poker Fraud Alert, which I started in March of 2012. But uh, the whole thing, it, it pretty much destroyed our friendship, which was a pretty good friendship at one point. And uh, then we had some pretty hostile years in there, and then we kind of just left each other alone. In the meantime, MyCon started, or he got involved with a site, with a very small site at the time, called Seals with Clubs, which was a Bitcoin poker site, but pretty much nobody was playing there. And MyCon said to the owner of Seals, hey, I'm good at promoting things, I'm good at blowing things up, and I'm a known name in poker, would you like me to be kind of the face of Seals with Clubs? And the guy's like, yeah, okay, sure. So they struck some sort of deal where MyCon had some kind of ownership or something there. And MyCon became the face of Seals, and he seemed like the main or only owner of Seals to most people who played there. And uh, MyCon made a lot of Bitcoin through Seals. And keep in mind, when he started it, or when he got involved with it, uh, Bitcoin was very low. He got involved with it right around when he and I stopped being friends in like mid-2011. But uh, Bitcoin, what was it worth, like 10 bucks or something at that point? So it's tremendously appreciated, of course. They used to hand out free... Bitcoins, like an actual Bitcoin they'd hand out to people who signed up new. And I'm talking about you didn't have to verify or anything. You just make a new account without any verification information at all. And they just, if they saw you on, they just hand you a free Bitcoin, which is funny now that you think how much it's worth. But they made a lot of Bitcoin over time on seals before it got busted, I think in like early 2015. And then they all scattered to the winds. 
at the time, Mikon announced on YouTube from Antigua, where he fled to, when they, they raided his house but didn't arrest him. So that gave him time to pack up and leave. It was a mistake. They should have arrested him and not let him do this. But uh, they stupidly raided him and then didn't arrest him, which allowed him to escape the country and then only agree to return through his attorney if they give him a sweetheart deal, which is what happened. That's why you didn't see him in prison. But And that's all past him now. He's past that. He's completed his probation. He's done with all that. But he announced while he, right when he left and got to Antigua, he left a very defiant YouTube message up there saying that he's starting a new seal. So the old one got taken down by the others involved who didn't want to continue challenging the government. But Mikon went forth and started his own seals called SWC Poker. And you get it, seals with clubs, SWC. So he started SWC Poker. He said he started SWC Poker. He said it was his. And then, sometime after that, he claimed he was, quote, stepping away, and he was selling it to somebody else in Europe, and that he wasn't going to be part of it. And that was the last we heard. And now, in the last several years, ever since he, quote, stepped away, he's never promoted it, he's never said it's his, but the site has continued. There still is SWC Poker. And I have always believed that he has some association with it that there's people friendly to him actually running it, but that he put a distance from it, between it and himself, where before he didn't, before he was the only one foolhardy enough to be the face of the site, and it got him busted and nobody else busted. All the other people involved, they never found. They only busted him. So he realized he was kind of a chump to have been the face of the site all that time. So he probably changed things around. It was no longer the face of the site, and had just kind of people behind the scenes running it. And maybe he wasn't even technically the owner, but they had a gentleman's agreement that he's going to get a certain percentage of the profits. I'm just making these things up. I'm just guessing. But I think there's a very low chance, in my opinion, that he doesn't have some kind of involvement with it still. Now, I want to be clear. I don't have any information on this. I don't have any proof of this. This is just my guessing from what I knew of him then and from some things people have said to me. But I don't know any of this to be fact. This is just speculation. But my speculation is that he still has some association with it, even if he's not technically the owner. And I think that's his main form of income. And if that's true, whatever. Like, okay, if he wants to take the risk, then fine. Like, I don't have that much of an opinion of that. I'm not going to criticize it. I'm not going to say I think it's smart. I'm not going to say I think it's dumb. I mean, if, if he is, I guess he's gotten away with it. I believe that's what's going on. I think that that's how he makes his money. And you may say, what do you mean that's how he makes his money? This, this guy was into Bitcoin when it was $5 per Bitcoin. And he's been saying he's one of the guys who's held onto it the whole time. So he's he's got to be worth untold millions. Well, I think it's more complicated than that. Uh, he lost or sold those Bitcoin many times over from what I had witnessed and heard. Combination of uh, degenerate gambling and uh, paying off debts and stuff like that. I just I, I heard there were a number of times where he just didn't have any or much Bitcoin. I'm talking about from the early days, not now. But then he'd make it back because of seals. I'm talking about the first seals. 
But I do think he made a lot of Bitcoin from SEALs, and I do think he held on to some of that Bitcoin. I think when SEALs went down during the busting almost six years ago, at that time, he had a substantial amount of Bitcoin, which was worth a lot less in those days than it is today. But still, I, I think that the dollar value of Bitcoin that he had at that time was fairly substantial. And then, of course, he started uh, SWC Poker. Whether he's still involved is in question, but I, my guess is that he is, and I think that's his ongoing income. But does he have any Bitcoin right now? I think there's a good chance he has very little Bitcoin, other than what maybe SWC is generating. Why? Because at the end of 2017, MyCon was bashing Bitcoin. Yes, you heard me right. MyCon, Mr. Bitcoin, was bashing Bitcoin at the end of 2017. Now, was was he on drugs? Did someone kidnap him and replace him with a fake MyCon? No. MyCon was good friends, and still is friends with, to my knowledge, Roger Ver, who is a big figure in cryptocurrency. So not only was Roger Ver very involved with Bitcoin, but Roger Ver became very involved in something that split off from Bitcoin called a hard fork, called Bitcoin Cash. Bitcoin Cash was something that actually split off from Bitcoin. So on the day it split, whatever you held in Bitcoin, you automatically got in Bitcoin Cash, and then they became two separate coins from there. Again, it's called a hard fork. So Roger Ver was one of those people who became disenchanted with Bitcoin and was all in on Bitcoin Cash. He may have even had some role in developing Bitcoin Cash. I, I forgot his whole story. But anyway... Mikon was close to Roger Ver. He's been in Roger's jet. I've seen pictures of Mikon in Roger's jet. And when Mikon was bashing Bitcoin, he was doing it from the standpoint of Bitcoin sucks, Bitcoin cash is the future. Now, there's also another Bitcoin cash that split off of the original Bitcoin cash called uh, Bitcoin Cash SV. And that one uh, Calvin Air is very big on. But... MyCon seems to be big, or at least he was as of the end of 2017, he seemed to be big on Bitcoin Cash. And I believe, and this is just a guess, but from his bashing of Bitcoin and from his closeness with Roger Ver, I believe he converted his Bitcoin to Bitcoin Cash, which is very easy to do. You just sell your Bitcoin and buy Bitcoin Cash with it. You actually sell your Bitcoin for Bitcoin Cash, which, as I said, is not hard. So... I think he has very few Bitcoin, but has Bitcoin Cash. You may say, well, who cares what he has? It's still Bitcoin, right? It's still, it's still a cryptocurrency. Shouldn't that still mean he's very crypto-rich? Well, the problem is that Bitcoin Cash has not had the same history as Bitcoin. Aside from the fact that it came much later than Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash also has not uh, had the same success as Bitcoin in uh, its history, in its, in its entire history. Bitcoin Cash, keep in mind, during the very first run-up, when it began, it very quickly, as I said, went up over 3,000, then went up and down. But even at the the bottom point of one of the crashes, it it was still higher than it is today. And then it again got as high as close to $4,000 at the end of 2017. Now, 2017 was the first Bitcoin... uh, not the first, but the, the last big Bitcoin run-up prior to this year, or the, shouldn't say this year, it's 2021 now, but the last Bitcoin run-up prior to the one that occurred in 2020. So it went up to almost 20,000 at the end of 2017, then it crashed 
all the way down to 3,000 and didn't start a real run-up until 2020. So that was Bitcoin's history. But with Bitcoin Cash, it's a little bit different. In fact, it's a lot different. Bitcoin Cash also had its run-up at the end of 2017. But once it went down in 2018, it never came back up. So Bitcoin right now is doing substantially better than it was at its peak in 2017. Bitcoin, which never even hit 20K in 2017, last I looked was close to 30K. Is it even over 30K now? Let's see the Bitcoin price right now. Yeah, oh, 34,000. I, I wasn't even looking. I, <laughs> well, this makes, it makes me feel bad because I sold my Bitcoin off when it was 19. So it's almost doubled since then. But yeah, Bitcoin's 34,000. So it's almost double what it was when it hit its 2017 high. And yet Bitcoin Cash, it's way lower than its 2017 high. Not just lower, but way lower. So again, let's go to 2017. November 24th, I just picked that out of the air. Bitcoin Cash was worth uh, $1,626. Uh, let's go to early in uh, 2000, or at the end of 2017, December 24th. It was almost $3,000. Uh, on May 8th, it had another run-up after the early 2018 crash. It had another run-up, got all the way back to $1,653. At this time, in May 2018, May 8th, 2018, it was worth 17.6% of what a Bitcoin was worth. Okay, remember that. 17.6% of what a Bitcoin was worth after Bitcoin had crashed a good deal. Let's get to today. That was May 2018. Let's get to today. Today, Bitcoin Cash is uh, in the 300s. Not 3,000s, the 300s. Let's look at the exact uh, amount here, so I don't get this wrong. Yeah, 366. $366 today. Well, you just heard me say that the price was in the 1600s in May of 2018, when Bitcoin was way below where it is today. So how much of a Bitcoin is it worth today? Well, on this chart I'm looking at, it is worth about one hundredth of a Bitcoin, about one percent of Bitcoin. That's a big difference. It was worth 17% of Bitcoin in May 2018. It was worth uh, even more than that. In uh, It was worth over 20% of a Bitcoin at the end of 2017. Now it's 1% of a Bitcoin. So Bitcoin Cash is a failure. Now you may say, okay, well, maybe it crashed so low that it still jumped a lot. Maybe it's not compared to Bitcoin what it was back in 17 and 18, but maybe it appreciated a lot this year. Answer, no. Like January 4th, 2020, I'm looking at. $223. Today it's worth 366. Is that, is that a good run up? I mean, yeah, that's, it's a, it's an appreciation of about 50%. That's not bad, but keep in mind that it kept going up and that in February, like in February, on February 3rd, 2020, which is uh, 11 months ago, Bitcoin Cash was worth 383. Today it's worth 366. It's actually lower, not by a lot, but it's lower than it was 11 months ago. So Bitcoin Cash has lost value since 11 months ago. So even though it's gained 50% of value since a year ago, it's lost value since 11 months ago. Now, let's look at Bitcoin by comparison. Let's go back 11 months on Bitcoin. Bitcoin, in February 2020, was worth, uh, in the low 9,000s, 9,200 or so. 
Today, it's worth 34500 So it has appreciated by almost four times. It's, it's now four times bigger in value. The same Bitcoin you'd be holding in February, uh, beginning of February 2020, it's now worth four times as much today. Whereas Bitcoin Cash has actually gone down. But most importantly, when Micon converted it all, it was worth so much more. Had he held the Bitcoin, he'd have 20 times more money than whatever he has now, provided he converted it all. 20 times! Because at the end of 2017, Bitcoin was about, uh, a, a Bitcoin cash was uh, 20% of a Bitcoin approximately. And today it's 1%. Now, does that mean Mike poor? No. Because if he was holding a lot of crypto, even in Bitcoin cash, he still should have a good amount. And there probably is Bitcoin coming in through seals, provided he's still getting an income that way. Because you have to look, what do you think his income is? If you don't think it's seals, what is it? What, what is he doing that's generating money right now? You can't just say holding Bitcoin. What is he doing that's generating an income, either in crypto or in U.S. dollars? And that would be SEALs if he is getting an income from that. If he's not, then it's it's, it's nothing. So either he's getting no income and he's just sitting on his, his crypto and selling as necessary to live, or uh, he has an income coming through SEALs. If it's, if it's an income coming through SEALs, then yes, it's coming in through Bitcoin, and then he's selling it so that that is worth more than you would think. But he would be doing way better if he just sat on the Bitcoin because there was a big cr- crash from Bitcoin Cash from when he converted it that it has not come close to recovering. Not even close. And Bitcoin has done more than recover. It's getting near than double the, the peak value in the past. So it's a tremendous difference. Now, I guess it's possible that what Micon did at some point was hey, say, hey, screw Bitcoin Cash, I'm going back on Bitcoin. And maybe Micon ditched his Bitcoin cash or some of it and got back into Bitcoin. But from what I remember of him, he's a pretty uh, stubborn guy. And once he gets an idea about something, it's hard to change his mind for a while or ever. So if he believes that Bitcoin cash is the future and that Bitcoin sucks and that Roger Ver is right, then he's going to stick with it. So I have a feeling he's just stuck with Bit- he's stuck with Bitcoin Cash and probably regretting it big time. But that he still has plenty of money and he has probably an income coming in. So I think he's doing fine. I don't think he's broke. But I don't think he's like filthy rich because of this transition to Bitcoin Cash. Had he not done this, I would have a different opinion. Had he really stuck with just Bitcoin or kept a lot in Bitcoin, then I would say, you know what? I have a feeling, provided he has been conservative with holding his Bitcoin, that he's going to really, really be kicking ass now. But I I have a feeling, I have a feeling that he converted all or most of it to Bitcoin Cash. Maybe I'm wrong. But let's get to SEALs. That's, that's my opinion. Again, I have no information backing this. But let me get to SEALs. And... The reason I even did this little segment on MyCon is because I get people asking me all the time. I have people asking me various ways. I have some people who ask me nicely, like, hey, how do you think MyCon's doing there? You think he's super rich? You think he's broke? You think it's somewhere in between? What do you think? And I have others who come to me in a hostile manner, 
saying, oh, man, man, why didn't you stay friends with Mike on? If you just stayed friends with him and followed what he was doing, you could have many, many millions of dollars like he does. Man, you could be filthy rich like Mike on is now. Ah, you screwed up. Ah, Mike on beat you. And like, well, first of all, this isn't a competition. Like, when we stopped being friends, we didn't enter a who's going to have more money competition. And, and second, I, I probably would not have gone along with his Bitcoin obsession back then because there were, there were many other obsessions he had that were totally wrong, that ended up not being correct at all. So just because that one happened to be, it was like the boy who cried wolf. I just wasn't going to believe him <laughs> had we stayed friends. Now, he was telling me about it just at the end of our friendship. And I was already kind of dismissing it then. Now, yeah, sure, if I go back in time, I'd buy as many Bitcoins as I could get for five bucks each. Yeah, sure. But so would everybody. If he has a lot of money, great. Like, I'm not going to resent it. Like, great. If he, if he did well that way, that's great. And if he held on to it, that's great. I think those that believe that he bought a fortune in Bitcoin at $5 and sat on it and now has untold money in Bitcoin, now that it's worth 34 k each... I don't think those people are thinking of it correctly. I don't think they've been observing. But go back to his Twitter from late 2017. You'll see how he's ripping on Bitcoin. Ripping on it. And very much pushing Bitcoin cash. And he's the type of guy who puts his money where his mouth is. He's not going to just write that shit and not actually buy Bitcoin cash. I mean, he's close with Roger Ver when the big faces of Bitcoin cash. So why would he not convert it? Think about it. Okay, so let's get to SEALs, what's going on. There's a reason I bring all this up. SEALs has had a problem. SEALs um, is down. If you go to SEALs, it's, it's not working. And they acknowledge it's not working. So what is going on with SEALs? Well, SEALs has lost its domain. Here's what they have tweeted that has occurred. SWC Poker made a critical oversight regarding our domain, failing to update information before Brexit. We are At this time, we are moving the site to a new domain to be announced shortly. All funds and accounts are safe. We will run apology free rolls when we come back up. <laughs> what a mess. So there's some kind of paperwork that needed to be done for their .eu domain before Brexit came into effect, and that uh, they didn't do it. So it looks like they lost their domain. I don't know if they can get it back. I don't know enough about this EU thing. But something involving paperwork you had to do for your domain, and someone screwed up and didn't do it. Uh, So they're actually getting a new domain (laughs) while they try to sort this out. I don't know why they couldn't just grab a, a... domain super quickly or just use a domain one of these one of them already had but i guess they didn't want to tracing back to who the owners actually were but uh do do i believe this story is it possible they're just doing this stall and they're running off with everybody's money i don't think so i think they're telling the truth i think they really made this mistake and that they lost their domain and now they're panicking and trying to get everything back but that all the money is still there and the site is still intact and they're just getting all that back in order. Like, I I have no reason not to believe this, and I'm not saying this like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I'm saying like, no, I really believe. I really believe that it's coming back up, and that this has nothing to do with the liquidity of the site. It's just funny they let this happen. And if Mike is still involved, I'm sure he's yelling at someone today. (laughs) But That's what happened. Uh, What do I think of SEALs? Like, 
I mean, it's been around for a while. I haven't heard of anyone getting screwed in the last few years. I say the last few years because when they closed down, they did screw people. And that should be remembered. That when they closed down and everybody scattered to the winds, they gave everybody 30 days to collect their funds. And then some people had trouble withdrawing. Like Jesse Martin, I remember, had trouble withdrawing. And then, like, they weren't very helpful if you had trouble. And then the 30 days ticked by and you just lost your Bitcoin, which is really crappy. Mike claimed he didn't get any of that, which is possible. I don't know how the way they had it structured. It's possible his partners screwed people, but that's, that's not a complete excuse. You know, he was the face of it. If his partners screwed people, he should have outed them. But they definitely screwed people. They definitely only, they gave like a minimal amount of time to get the funds and then ran off with it after the 30 days passed. Like, wh- why 30 days? Why? What I don't understand is the U.S. government has never had a hard time with people getting paid who are players on illegal sites. Any illegal site that's gotten busted, the players have always gotten paid if the money was there. So why didn't the owners of SEALs transfer the Bitcoin to a trusted and uninvolved third party after those 30 days and use them to distribute the funds? Maybe even pay them something for it. Why not that? Why just run off with everything? They were trying to say, hey, we can't sit here forever and let the government find us. But you could transfer the Bitcoin to somebody who's not involved, who's willing to distribute it. And then leave them the information for distribution. It's better than just running off with everything. So, again, may not have been Mike on's decision, but he, he certainly didn't do anything to get the funds back for those like Jesse Martin who got screwed. So, that did happen. This wasn't something that they wanted to see happen. This happened because Mike got busted. But still, they did run off with the funds after 30 days when some people couldn't even withdraw. And, and like, what if you're gone for 30 days? What if you're vacationing? What if you're just not checking into SEALs for 30 days. Like, there's a lot of people, I'm sure, who lost money out of this, including people who have, like, micro-balances that kind of added up Superman 3 style. But other than that, I haven't heard anything bad that's occurred. I would never play on there just because uh, I had a falling out with Mike on. I don't want to support him. I didn't appreciate the way I was treated, and there's no way I would play on a site where he makes money. In fact, uh, I even quit playing under an affiliate code where... uh, he was going to get money on a different site, not SEALs, but there's a different site where he would have made some money, where I would have gotten rake back, but he would have gotten a piece of it. And I quit playing there after we stopped being friends. I said, I'm not going to make any money for him through my poker play if uh, we have a falling out like this. So I would not play on there, but that's my personal choice. And I believe what happened here was really an oversight, and I don't think there's a long-term danger for your funds. I don't think it's all that active of a site. I think it's kind of a small site that has a niche following. It's not a large It's not like an ACR or Bovada, by any means. Kind of interesting. They let the domain expire. It may never come back. They may never get swcpoker.eu back, maybe gone for good. It's kind of interesting that happened. Reading the chat... Bobby Orr said that I think Todd is off on this one. I think he's closer to rich than just doing okay. Well, it depends what uh, you mean by that. And by the way, Blubbernuffle said that uh, all who had Bitcoin at the time received Bitcoin cash in the split. I think Druff may be aware, but hasn't mentioned it. No, I mentioned it earlier in the segment. Maybe he joined the segment late. I did mention that. But that's it's one thing to just get Bitcoin cash because you happen to be holding Bitcoin. It's another thing to get as much Bitcoin cash as you can because you believe in that and you think Bitcoin is trash. And that that's definitely the way he felt at the end of 2017. He definitely felt Bitcoin was trash and Bitcoin cash was great. Go look at his Twitter. So, like, why would he not convert it all? 
Sure, he could have had both, but why not convert everything if you think one sucks and one is great? It wasn't hard to convert it. So, I think that's what he did. And I think Bobby Orr's correct, too. I think he is closer to Rich than just doing okay. I don't, I'm not saying that he's barely getting by or he's kind of like, uh, you know, that, that he's not struggling, but he, he's not rich. I, I, sure, I, I think he has money and, and will be comfortable for uh, a long time, maybe for life. But some people imagine that maybe he has like $100 million. I, I'm sure it's nowhere close to that. Whereas if he just held on to Bitcoin and was conservative about spending them, even though he blew it in the early days, even if he held on to it from when he, he got it from back when it was worth a few hundred, and then he kept making them from seals and just held on, held on, held on, then, oh yeah, I believe he'd have a fortune. Provided he was handling them well. But the conversion to Bitcoin Cash, which again is like a 20-fold mistake at this time, that's what really changes it. Unless he didn't. Unless he was just all talk or didn't convert as much as he was saying. He, I don't think he actually explicitly said he's converting at all, but I'm just knowing him, I, I, he, he really is not just a talker. Like he, he does like to try to do what he says. He'll, he'll sometimes over-promise or over-promote, but he's not going to be the type who says Bitcoin Cash is great and then not convert his Bitcoin to Bitcoin Cash. That's not the Micon I knew. That's just food for thought. I don't think we'll ever know the truth, but that's just food for thought. Okay, moving on, I want to talk about uh, Chris Moneymaker, which I'm surprised I, I left to this late in the show. It's actually a pretty big topic. Chris Moneymaker, who has been with Poker Stars ever since he won the World Series of Poker main event in 2003, has decided that he is leaving Poker Stars, and for the first time since 2003, is no longer going to be a sponsored pro on the site. This was not expected. Chris Moneymaker was the untouchable pro there, the one who they were never getting rid of. They got rid of Raymer, they got rid of Joe Hatcham, they got rid of tons of other American-sponsored pros, because other than in a few states, they are not in the American market. So they just don't see it as cost-effective. They even didn't stay with Daniel Negreanu. Presumably they didn't want to pay him as much as he wanted, so he quit there and eventually moved over to GG Poker, which I think did pay him what he wanted. So... Chris Moneymaker was the guy who was just always there. Every year, Moneymaker was renewed as a sponsored pro. Now, in the early days, I believe he was getting a lot of money. In the early days, between tournament buy-ins and between uh, and between actual cash payments, I believe he was getting one million dollars. That's what I believe his compensation was for several years. I don't think that's what he's still getting or any time recently. But in the poker boom, I believe he was getting about a million dollars compensation between tournament buy-ins and actual cash payments. We actually saw for uh, uh, in that tax dispute with Jonathan Duhamel that he was getting that after he won the main event. And I came closest in my poker career to winning the main event that same year as Duhamel. I was 88th that year, and I had a million-dollar offer on the table from Poker Stars had I won. So that doesn't surprise me. But I believe Moneymaker was getting that for several years, not just in the year after he won. I think that he got this for several years, and then they reduced it, but he was still probably getting decent money and some tournament buy-ins as well. 
So he was there from 03 all the way through the end of 2020. Now I'm going to play you his announcement and then we'll talk about it. You know, 2020 has been a weird year for everybody. Um, myself and... Okay, I'm going to start this again a bit louder. You know, 2020 has been a weird year for everybody, um, myself included. I haven't traveled all year, um, which has actually been really nice. It's been nice to be reconnected with my family and uh, not be on the road as much. And it's led me to a very interesting decision um, that I will be leaving Poker Stars effective immediately. Um, going to be at home more and uh, play a little bit less poker potentially. We'll see how things go. But I want to thank everybody at Poker Stars. It's been an amazing 17 years. Be able to travel the world, play poker, meet a ton of wonderful people. Um, I can't even tell you. Uh, how many people I would want to thank for this. So I'm not going to go into it because make the video forever. Um, but I want to wish everybody well at Poker Stars. Uh, it's been a great company to work for. Um, really uh, sad to leave, to leave the company. Um, but the time is right, uh, being 2020, and uh, I'm going to go try and explore some different endeavors. Uh, again, it's been a phenomenal experience with a great company, and uh, I'll miss you guys, and thanks for everything. Okay, so let's unpack this here. What's going on with this? So Chris Moneymaker, first of all, you have to understand his background. He started off as just a, a real everyman, just average guy in the South in Tennessee who was not a poker pro, was not expecting to be a poker pro, and wasn't even all that good. He won a $40 satellite into the 2003 World Series of Poker main event. He then went to play that main event and won it for $2.5 million. He then got this million-dollar sponsorship with Poker Stars. Remember, that's where he won his way in for every year for a while. And then they probably reduced it, but he was probably getting decent money from them every year. And he continued to be one of the sponsored pros there. The reason they never let him go is because he was just kind of forever associated with Poker Stars. It just seemed like heresy to let money maker go he kind of put poker stars on the map in some ways and they also put him on the map he, he won I mean, that's really a big part of the poker boom was chris money maker the everyman winning his way using 40 dollars to win the world series of poker main event everybody looked at him and said okay he's not this intimidating poker pro like phil ivy this is just a regular dude this is just a regular dude who just put $40 on and became the main event champ. I can do that. If he can do it, I can too. That's what a lot of people around the world thought, and that's part of the reason poker exploded so much. Part of it was also because of the WBT and, and the whole cards on TV. I understand that, but he was an inspiration to so many people because they thought they could be him. They could identify with him. He was an everyman you could relate to. He wasn't someone who seemed like... Uh, if It seemed like he was the type that you could see yourself in his shoes. You didn't need Phil Ivey's skill to be Chris Moneymaker. So, for them to drop him would have looked very bad. So they kept him on. And there was some value. You know, he had name recognition. People would never forget him. So they kept him on. He was worth a lot more than someone like Greg Raymer or Joe Hatcham who came afterwards. Moneymaker was really the one who fueled the poker boom. He had the great name. I'm talking about his actual name, Moneymaker. He had the great story. Uh, there were so many reasons to keep him on compared to some of the other main event winners. So, of course, the first question came, was he fired or did he quit? Now, you heard he said a lot of good things about poker stars. And 
if you've seen the other departures, some people have said a lot of great things about Poker Stars, and then Poker Stars said nice things about them back. And in other cases, they either said nothing or they had some bad things to say about Poker Stars, and Poker Stars had nothing to say back. Like Vanessa Selps. Vanessa Selps left and kind of put out a, a curt statement that made it clear she wasn't very happy with them. It didn't directly say so, but you could read between the lines and see that. And sure enough, the Poker Stars had nothing nice to see, say about Vanessa. They didn't give her any kind of farewell. They just uh, said nothing. And there's been others who've left Poker Stars who have bashed them that uh, also didn't get a nice farewell. Compare it to people like uh, Jason Mercier, who left and then put out a, a nice statement about Poker Stars, and they said something nice back about him and wrote a nice blog about him. So here it did go both ways. Here he put out this statement, said he enjoyed Poker Stars, it was great 17 years, they're great people, etc., etc. And then they put out a nice retrospective about him on their site. So clearly this was not a situation where they were leaving and hating each other. But that doesn't mean that everything was perfect. So let's talk about why he would have left. He said it's to spend time with family, but that's so cliche. I mean, how many people say they're spending time with family when they're leaving their position for another reason? There are a few cases where people actually want to spend time with family. I'm talking about not just this industry. I'm talking about every industry. There's people who leave to, quote, spend time with family, and then you find out later, oh, okay, this is why. So there's a few times where people just say, hey, you know what? I'm barely spending time with my family this just isn't worth it to me. I'm making good money, but it's just not worth it. It's too hard, taking too much of my time. I want to spend time with my family. That does happen. But more times than not, by a wide margin, when someone, quote, spends time with family, is leaving to spend time with family, it's because uh, there's some other issues going on, and that's a nicer way to say it. So what is really going on here? Chris Moneymaker, despite his $2.5 million payday in 03 and his million-dollar compensation package in subsequent years, is not flush with cash. He is not doing all that well financially, last I heard. Who'd I hear this from? Him. Why am I revealing his secrets? I'm not. He has revealed it publicly. Chris Moneymaker has been in documentaries. He has said before that he had a big sports betting problem, that he chunked off a lot of money betting sports. A few years ago, he was involved in a an embarrassing sports betting situation with a player named Jason Young, another poker player, and it appeared when the whole thing played out on 2 Plus 2 that the two were free-rolling each other. That basically, uh, Jason Young made up a fake bookie. This is what it appears. It was never proven, but this is kind of what it appeared to me. It looked like to me that Jason Young made up a phony bookie that didn't exist that he referred Moneymaker to and that the bookie was really him and that Jason Young didn't have the money to back his uh, bets, and in fact, he owed money to a number of people. And then Chris Moneymaker, who was betting with this, quote, bookie, Chris Moneymaker was... uh, He he didn't seem to have the money either at the time. But the difference was that Chris Moneymaker had an income, because remember, he was a PokerStars pro, he had money coming in from PokerStars. So Chris Moneymaker, he wasn't betting looking to stiff Jason Young. He was betting hoping he wins and then figuring if he loses that he'll stall him with payment until PokerStars pays him and then he can send the money. So that's probably how he justified it. And then uh, Jason Young was just kind of trying to get out of it. It looked like he was just trying to outright free-roll Moneymaker. So sure enough, um, 
what happened was that um, Jason Young won, but then Moneymaker uh, started hearing that this bu- that this bookmaker was fake, that there was no bookie, and that he was being free rolled, and that Jason Young himself was broke when he made the bet, and Moneymaker was refusing to pay him. So then, when the whole thing blew up on two plus two, which was Jason Young's doing. He thought he'd embarrass Moneymaker, but then Moneymaker embarrassed him back by basically saying, hey, I think you were free-rolling me. And then pretty much everyone unraveled it and said, yeah, we think the book is fake. Um, The whole thing made everyone look bad. It made it look like Moneymaker was trying to free-roll him, and he was trying to free-roll Moneymaker. Again, the only difference being that Moneymaker was eventually going to have the money to pay and probably would have paid. But Moneymaker was, at the time, refusing to pay because he felt he was being free-rolled. And I actually agreed with him. I said, you're right. If if someone bet with you without the ability to pay, and they bet with you through a fictitious person, then you owe the money to the fictitious person, and if the person doesn't exist, you don't have to pay them. The the whole thing is BS. That that whole thing went on a few years ago. But Moneymaker has admitted that he's gone broke many times from betting sports. And he hasn't admitted this specifically, as far as I know, but if he did not have his PokerStars contract all these years, I don't think he could have gotten out of being broke like this unless he went back and took some regular job or made speeches or whatever. So PokerStars really was keeping him afloat, despite his degenerate tendencies. And again, I'm not revealing his dirty laundry here. He put this all out himself publicly, even in a documentary. So if he told me this in confidence, or I just kind of heard it through the grapevine, I wouldn't be dragging him through the mud like this, because I'll tell you something. Chris Moneymaker is a nice guy. He really is a nice guy. Everybody that has met him has liked him. When I have met him, I've liked him. He's very humble. He's very down-to-earth. He doesn't act arrogant. He's never acted arrogant, even when he was very well-known and one of the most famous people in poker. When poker was at its peak, Chris Moneymaker was never arrogant. And... Uh, I'll give you a, a quick example. I've, I've talked about it before on the show, but uh, while he was like at his height of popularity and everybody knew him and during the poker boom, we were at a table in the World Series of Poker, and he said to me softly, Hey, um, I'm really sorry about this. I kind of feel rude, but I don't know your real name. I only know your dandruff. So he's apologizing to me that he doesn't know who I am. And he doesn't know my real name. He knows who I am, but he doesn't know my real name. He only knows I'm dandruff. I'm like, okay, whatever. Like, yeah, you're way more well-known than I am. I'm not insulted. Like, I'm, I'm happy you know I'm Dan Druff. <laughs> that was good enough for me. But uh, but he was actually, like, apologetic. He wasn't, like, some arrogant jerk who felt like, oh, well, why should I know this guy's name? I'm the famous one here. Like, it, it wasn't like that. Like, he felt legitimately bad that we were talking and he didn't uh, know my real name. He just knew I was Dan Druff. Just a very nice, soft-spoken guy. And... Like, I don't think he was going to stiff Jason Young in that situation. I think he really believed that he was a degenerate and wanted to get action down, but he thought, okay, if worse comes to worse and I lose, I'll just stall him a bit and I'll pay him the money that comes in through PokerStars. I know it's coming, so I'll pay him then. I I don't want to tell him now or otherwise he won't let me bet. So I'll I'll tell him, I'll stall him a bit, and I'll I'll really pay him, so no problem. Then the whole thing blew up when it turned out that he learned the bookie was fake. So, anyway... The reason I'm bringing all this up is not to bring back the stories of Chris Moneymaker chunking off money sports betting. It's that I don't understand why he would leave Poker Stars if this was what was rescuing him from his own degeneracy for so long. 
if this was a steady income for doing very little. Now, yes, he had to travel and play tournaments, and yeah, it's a pain in the ass after a while. You may think it's glamorous to travel the world and play tournaments, but eventually you get sick of it. So it's possible he just got sick of it. But then, but then what? What does he think he's going to do? I don't. Th- I don't think he's going like, to get a regular job. Could you see Chris Moneymaker just like going and getting a regular job at this point? Like I wouldn't want to do that if I were him. I'm not even criticizing it. Like if I were Chris Moneymaker, I would say, yeah, I don't think I want to get a regular job at this point. <laughs> I I would be happy to live off my 2003 fame forever. I'm not kidding. Like why not? If if you're going to get paid for something you did in 03 that continues to give you fame, why not? There's there's actors and actresses who do this all the time. There's nothing wrong with it. If you did something to earn yourself a name and then you can make money off that name for years to come for the rest of your life, do it. Great. Whatever makes money. As long as it's legal, as long as it's ethical, do it. So he's right to do this. Like He's right to stay with Poker Stars as long as he did. Even if he wasn't chunking off the money. In his shoes, I would have stayed with Poker Stars. In his shoes, you know, I wouldn't have chunked off the money, but I would have stayed. It would have been like free money. Now, maybe at some point I would have gotten sick of all the travel, but the difference is I wouldn't have chunked off the money, but he did by his own admission. So either he has saved up a lot of money and been more responsible in the last few years, but I don't know how much he could have saved up. He's not making a million bucks a year anymore. Either he did that and figures he has enough to avoid traveling the world anymore and he doesn't want to, or there was some kind of falling out, or what I think is most likely is that they didn't offer him that much on renewal. That they just came to him and said, Chris, let me tell you something. We've been dropping all of our American pros. We've kept you on all this time. But we just can't keep you on for that much money anymore. We can keep you on. We like you. But we can't give you that much anymore because we are a site that is dedicated to non-Americans. Because aside from those few states, which we don't seem to be expanding in very quickly anywhere else, U.S. players can't play here. And you're best known in the U.S. And to people outside of the U.S., especially the younger people who don't even remember you winning anymore, you're not as relevant to them. So there's only so much we can give you. It's not 2005 anymore. So we'd love to keep you on. You're a great guy. You're a nice guy. Everybody likes you. We like you. But we can't give you the type of money we were giving you before. But here, here's an offer for you. And I say this because he has revealed that it wasn't their decision and that a, quote, offer was on the table. He said that on 2 Plus 2. He said that on Twitter. And I believe him. He's never been known to be a liar I don't think he's making this up. I think he was offered a renewal. Remember, he he announced this on December 31st. And we've seen other people who've left in the past announcing it at the end of December that they're leaving. So it looks like his deal ran through the end of the year, each year. And that December 31st was the day it became final that he's leaving. He, he announced it on the very last day of the year. So it looks like they probably offered him too little, in my opinion. And that he just he was sick of traveling, and that for enough money he would do it, but not for what they offered him. And he said, "Forget it; it's not worth the trouble." So I think his explanation was probably half true, if my theory is correct. It was; it's true in that he probably is sick of the traveling that's required, and that he enjoys spending time with family, and he got to spend more time with them this year than. He usually does because of COVID and with with tournaments being canceled. But that they came back with an offer for 2021 that just wasn't enough to justify it. So instead of saying, hey, they gave me a lowball offer and I didn't want to take it, so I'm leaving now. He said, uh, 
yeah, I'm spending more time with family. I want to spend more time with family, which which is the truth. He wants to spend more time with family partially because the compensation he's getting for not spending the time with family is not enough. He's just leaving out that second part. And it makes sense because he's not mad at them. He probably understands. He probably understands why they can't give him that much anymore like they used to. That all things have to come to an end like that. Now, if you were an asshole, he would feel entitled. Don't oh, know you're, you've got to pay me a ton of money for in perpetuity. But but he's not. He's not an asshole. He's a nice guy, and I think that he was sensible enough to realize that it's not their fault they can't continue paying him enough for what he wants, and that uh, it's just not worth it for him to continue. This is just my guess. Again, there've been a lot of guesses on this show, and I want to emphasize I don't have any inside information about this. But that is my guess. I don't think there was any scandal. I don't think there was any big falling out between them. I believe that he's just uh, done and that they're just not paying enough to continue. In a way similar to Negranu. Remember, Negranu left, and I said something along those lines. So with Negranu, I felt it was a little bit about his behavior. I felt they offered him less partially because they thought that he was less value than before because he was very opinionated on Twitter and that he was starting to turn off a lot of people. I'm talking about Negreanu, not Moneymaker. Moneymaker on Twitter is pretty uh, low-key. He posts and occasionally gives his opinion, but he's always kind of polite about it. He doesn't really get much involved in politics. Uh, nothing like Negreanu puts out a lot of strong opinions and gets a lot of people angry. So I think that Poker Stars was kind of sick of all that. They got sick of the fallout from a lot of the things Negreanu has written. And that he was made fun of about the more rake is better for a long time, which made them look bad. So I, I think a lot of the, the Doug Polk stuff, even though a lot of it was instigated by Polk, I think a lot of that kind of may have played into PokerStars' decision to not want to pay him as much. But I think PokerStars has decided he's not worth as much as he used to be, partially for that reason, and partially just because they're not in the U.S. market. So they gave him an offer that wasn't that great, and he left. And then he decided he'll seek endorsement opportunities elsewhere and he found it with GG Poker which is growing and wanted to get attention and they did and they signed Negranu and I, I imagine Negranu is making a lot of money with GG now that brings me to my next question do you think that Moneymaker will be landing on his feet elsewhere do you think maybe some other site will sign him well for sure he will have opportunities but how much they'll pay him I don't know and also, it's not clear what his responsibilities would be. If he just has to sign a paper to be a sponsored pro and have his face up there and not have to travel anywhere, then he may be willing to go for it. Now, these may be some sites that don't have the best reputation, and he will have to deal with that. At least Poker Stars, even with the Amaya ownership having some controversy, at least they weren't scamming people or screwing people out of cash-outs. But he will have to watch out that other sites that may want to sign him, I'm talking about Moneymaker, that he's signing with a site that he can really trust. And I'm not sure if he's really paid much attention to that because he's been with PokerStars all that time. And all this time you could at least trust that PokerStars was going to pay you if you win and wasn't going to scam you. They did some unethical things like the Supernova Elite stuff, but you you knew they were going to pay you if you won. So he never had to really worry, is PokerStars a site that's going to cheat everybody? But if he signs with another site, you do have to look into that, and hopefully he will. I don't think he would knowingly sign with a scam site, but he may just not be aware enough not to. I don't know how much he follows the whole thing. 
but he might be willing to sign with another site if it's easy, if it's just stamp his name and his face across everything and he doesn't have to do much. And again, I'm not criticizing that. Uh, if someone wanted to sign me and put my name and face on there, provided I believed in the site and thought they weren't shady, if they just want to stamp my face and name on places and give me money, yeah, I would do it. Not for pennies, but yeah, if I, if I got paid a decent amount, they wanted to stamp my name and face as the name of the site, uh, sh- uh, sh- sure, you know? Like, I'm not going to say no to that. Why, why would I turn down free money like that? Only time I'd say no is if it's a scam site or something that looks like I can't trust. I'm not sure what the whole story is here. We may never get the whole story. PokerStars tweeted, After 17 years as a PokerStars ambassador today, we say farewell to Chris Moneymaker. Thank you for everything you've done for PokerStars, the game of poker in the industry. Without you, knew, without you, who knows where we all would be today? We can't thank you enough. Farewell, but not goodbye. See, it was, it was, it's a nice statement. I mean, it's right. It's actually true. Like, who knows where we'd all be today? Who knows where I'd be today? Like, I'm not even kidding. I think that it was a contractual thing. He just didn't like what they were offering him. And it's partially because they're just not in the American market. So it'll be interesting to see if maybe he goes with GG Poker or some other site. We'll see. Maybe that's in his plans. Maybe he figures he can catch on with some other site. I don't know otherwise what he's going to do. I guess he could do public speaking. Maybe once those sort of things start up again. Right now, public speaking isn't very good because people are not going to gather together to listen to you. But maybe if the vaccine is successful in wiping out COVID, then things where you get together in a room and listen to someone speak will become a thing again. So he could do that. I don't know if he has a talent for that, but he could. He has a story that would work well for motivational speaking. He has a great story, and people have heard his name. So he, and he has a great name for it, too. So I could even see like a corporate events for him to come out and speak, and people would enjoy that. He'd have to be good at public speaking, and he'd have to come up with a rousing speech, or at least have someone help him come up with a good speech. But I, he has a good enough story to where that would be something that would be uh, not too hard for him to do. So I, I guess that's an option if he were to go do that. So it's not like he has no options. I don't see him just like going and taking a regular desk job somewhere. But we will see. Anyway, I wish him well. He seems like a nice guy. He's, he's a good representative of poker. He has kept himself out of scandal. He has always been nice and pleasant to everybody. I have to admire that. I have to admire when somebody gets a lot of notoriety and fame and when everybody's kissing their ass and when they or they just act like a normal person. They just act like they're one of you. And I'll say something else. He got a lot of criticism for his poker play over the years. Where people are ah, he's a donkey. Ah, he just got lucky. Ah, he sucks. You know, he gets too much credit from the general public. All these people talk shit because he won as an amateur. But okay, he won as an amateur. What do you expect? Like, that doesn't make him a bad guy. He made, made him an amateur who, yeah, who got lucky and won. And he worked on his game to improve over the years, but he never claimed to be one of the best players in the world. He was a guy who put on $40 and turned it into $2.5 because he got lucky and had a good name and had a good story. So, so why bash the guy? Like, I never understood the bashing of Chris Moneymaker. Like, I think it was just people who were jealous. Even though he had that bashing, even though he had that uh, hanging over him from, like, trolls saying that online, he never let that get to him either. Or if he did, he was not public about it. He, he didn't fight with trolls online about this. He just... He just let it roll off his back. Okay, whatever. You, know, you can say this about me. I'm not. He didn't respond. 
didn't respond, didn't let it upset him from what I could see. So I have nothing but good things to say about Chris Moneymaker, and I honestly hope that he ends up well. I was actually happy to see in that story with him and Jason Young, which probably was his low point, that he wasn't trying to scam anybody. That even though the bet itself was a free roll for the moment, that he really did honestly have plans to pay him and had money that he knew was coming in to pay. And I actually agreed with his decision not to pay when he realized that he was betting with a fake bookie. I argued with people about that. I had people saying, no, once you make a bet, you've got to pay it. And I said, no, if you are betting with a fictitious person, then you don't owe the money. Because the fictitious person can just disappear at any time if you owe them money. I was on his side with that one. I've never heard any story where he's actually like set out to screw anybody. So I, I'm very pro-Chris Moneymaker. And by the way, he has agreed to be on this show at some point. That's not recently, but like early this year he agreed. And then I never followed up on it. So uh, I can try again. Now that he's left Poker Stars, uh, it might be interesting to talk to him about. I don't think he's going to reveal much that wasn't revealed publicly, but it was his choice to leave, but maybe because the contract wasn't good. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. You can also text that number. Remember, you can text it at any time, and I will read it on the air if you don't ask me not to at the beginning. Let's see what we have gotten tonight. From the 505, any chance moneymakers headed to GG Poker? Yes. I don't have info that he is, but maybe. From the 916, the show's sounding good tonight. Okay, but some people said I have the volume just jumping up, so that bothers me a bit. From the 641, you see Larry King is in the hospital with COVID. No, I did not. That's not good for Larry King. He is not a young guy. From the 609, I see you have a Seals of Club story. Relevant, considering it's now 12 years to the day that the Bitcoin network was created. Happy birthday Bitcoin, January 3rd, 2009. As always, F my cunt. <laughs> That's interesting. I didn't know that was its creation date. I didn't hear about it till 2011. There is a story with Bitcoin, and it's crazy to think about today, that there was actually a 30,000 Bitcoin transaction to buy a pizza. That's As a test transaction, someone sent someone 30,000 Bitcoin to make a pizza purchase. Can you imagine? 30,000 Bitcoin? With a Bitcoin being worth 34000 now? So, basically, uh, it's like like $100 million? That's insane. <laughs> or is it a billion dollars? Wait, that's a billion dollars, isn't it? That's a billion dollars, not, not, not $100 million. It's a billion dollars. It's a billion dollar pizza. That's great. From the uh, 602... They're looking forward to the uh, Chris Moneymaker story. I'm going backwards here. I probably shouldn't. Well, I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, let's see. Someone wanted me to play this and comment on it. So, okay. It's a little bonus segment. Someone asked me to play Hello, everybody. Daniel Granu here with some good news from the GG Poker Network. We've been preparing a promotion for the new year called GG Care. As any poker player might know, sometimes you find yourself in what we call unfortunate situations, you know, some ugly bad beats, right? Well, that's where GG Care comes in. GG Care will take care of you with huge prize pools available every day. Okay. Let's see how you can get... Okay, this already sounds stupid, but let, let's hear the rest of this. Your GG Care benefits. 
Aces versus Kings. Yep, all in before the flop. I mean, nobody's going to fold that, right? It's just a setup. It's a cooler. I can't imagine being, you know, at the final table of the World Series of Poker heads up and this happening to me. It's just brutal. Bad beats should never be a thing. But, eh, they are. Thanks, GG. So it looks like it's giving you some kind of prizes for being in certain bad situations. It's hard to see what's... This isn't even a well, well-made video because he says, thanks, GG, and then they, you hear that little ding. That's like something popping up on the screen that it's giving you, but it's shown very quickly and it's, it's like kind of small and I'm kind of too old to read the small print by this point. So <laughs> let me see the next one. I, I couldn't even read what was going by there. I flop the top set. Very nice. Some fucking idiot chases a runner, runner straight to suck out on me. Unbelievable. But in my darkest moment, GG Care was there. Thanks, GG. Okay, so let me see what's popping up. It said no bad beats, no no more bad beats, no more suckouts. I, I don't know what they're even doing here. Is this like something you sign up for or they just give you automatically? Let me see. Okay, GG takes care of your cooler. Uh, something about plus 2,000, but I don't know what the plus 2,000 is. Plus 2,000 dollars? Like, this is not made well. I saw, I, I've been watching this for a minute. I don't understand what this is. Flop, the second nut set, the middle set on the flop. It's an impossible cooler. How can you be beat there? The guy has top set. Nobody's folding that. Sometimes it just feels unfair. Thanks, GG. As you can see, in the most unfortunate of situations, GG Care will appear for you. Are you curious how to get these benefits? Don't worry. You don't even have to lift a finger. First, simply enjoy the game as usual. Whenever something unfortunate happens, GG Care will be there. Uh, I see. Okay. So, see, they're doing it backwards. They were popping up these little things, and then they should have explained this first and then showed situations with it popping up. See, now now it's making more sense. So there's a bigger version of this that says, thanks, GG, plus 250, bad B, GG Care, $691. I still don't know what plus 250 is. Like, plus 250 what? So you're getting it says six ninety one dollars. Is that saying you get six ninety six ninety one dollars from them? And I don't know what this plus two fifty means. Like let's see if I can understand. Secondly, when confronted with such circumstances, GG Care automatically will register you into a flip out tournament with a huge prize. Just check the pop up window. Thirdly, take a rest, have yourself a nap, get yourself a good night's sleep, clear your mind of all the bad beats, and when you wake up the daily GG Care prizes will be waiting for you. That's- so wait a minute, it doesn't pop up? See, I'm confused now. So it was popping up during these examples of set over set or aces over kings. So that was happening. But then he's saying now you need to go to sleep and, and come back the next day. It'll be there. See, this is this is a lousy ad. I, I kind of get where they're going, but it, it needs to be done better. That's all there is to GG Care. Pretty simple, isn't it? Just play the game as normal and GG Care will take care of you. And the prize money will only grow more and more in the future. So keep your eyes posted and good luck, everybody. I hope you don't have too many bad beats. But if you do, GG Care will be there. Uh-huh. Thanks, GG. All right. So I, I understand this is not a bad idea to give people something back in certain situations with uh, bad beats, suckouts, and coolers. But they can't give too much or they won't make money. They give, they, there's only so much they can give away because remember, there's only so much they're creating in rake. And they they have to make a profit. So let's see here. I'm I'm on the website about GG Care. So it says there's a daily thirty thousand dollar GG Care flip out. I'm not sure what a flip out is. It might just be it's not a tournament. They just 
it may be just that everybody goes all in automatically and whoever wins it goes on. It could be something like that. A flip out sounds like no skill. Sounds like just a they're just going to deal everybody cards and see who ends up with the best hand. Okay, so let's go through the FAQ. I, I enjoy this topic. Thank you to the person who suggested this. I just found this as I was going through text. That's why I didn't prepare this, but I'm doing this on the fly. GG Care Fact. What are the exact conditions that trigger a bad beat suck out or cooler? The specific details vary by game and often change based on numerous outside factors. As such, the exact conditions that trigger these events will not be specifically enumerated. Our team of game experts will continuously look for unlucky situations throughout gameplay and will award trigger points. What determines the amount of stack that I get to enter the flip-out tournament? The participating stack will vary depending on the pot size and severity of the situation. GG Poker will optimize the formula continuously to provide a fair flip-out to players with different situations. But see, they don't even explain what a flip-out is. I think that's later. Okay. What happens if it happens more than once? If you have two or more qualifying hands, you will accumulate additional tournament chips each time, increasing your starting chips. I think maybe that's what that, like, plus 250 was. I think you're accumulating... Chips. I don't think you're getting money from this. I think you're getting these chips to do the flip-out, which isn't all that exciting. Where can I check my GG Care hands? You can check your GG Care hands on the PokerCraft timeline, whatever that is. Flip-out tournament? A flip-out tournament is a type of automated tournament where each hand, every player is pitched all in. Oh, yeah, see, I knew it. Within seconds, a winner is determined. Players don't need to be online for the tournament while the tournament takes place. That's a good point. I guess they can run the flip-out with you not there, because there's no skill. A monkey could be there. There's no decisions to be made once the tournament starts. GG Care runs every day from midnight to 11.59 p.m., and the flip-out tournament will begin each day at uh, 1 a.m. But then it says 1 a.m. Uh, universal time constant minus 8. Why? That means L.A. time. Why, why are they basing this on L.A. time? That's really weird. So it sounds like they're beginning at 1 a.m. L.A. time, 9 a.m. Uh, London time. I, I don't know. It's weird. How do I get my money from GG Care? Cash is paid out as soon as the flip-out tournament is over. You can check your results at my tournaments tab in the PokerCraft timeline. Which games can I play to get GG Care benefits? Games that are eligible for this promotion are all cash games that include Hold'em, Omaha, All-In or Fold, Rush and Cash, Spin and Gold, and Short Deck. Tournaments will be added in the near future. Okay, I understand more now. So, first of all, I don't know why they even have like a money value on there. You'll see if you watch this video, which is on... Uh, Negranu's, I think it's on Negranu's Twitter. It's on Negranu's Twitter or GG's Twitter? Let me see. Let me scroll up here. Oh, it's on GG's Twitter. If you go to at GG Poker, you can see this tweet that was posted on January 2nd at 5.03 a.m. Pacific time. So you can look for it there, at GG Poker. But I don't know why they're showing like a dollar amount there. It says like plus 250 and then $1.691. Well, it doesn't look like you're getting $1.691. It looks like you're getting 250 of points that you can use that have to do with what stack you start with in the flip-out tournament. But what I'm also not understanding is, in the flip-out, uh, how does your stack play into this? So, is it just it just keeps running hands super fast in this flip-out format, and some people have a bigger stack than others, and if you, can, if you lose, you get another shot at it with the remaining chips? I'm not sure. Maybe it's something like that. But it looks like you accumulate GG Care chips and then whatever you have, you bring it to the flip-out, where you don't have to be there, and it automatically runs the hands as if everybody's going all in each hand, and then the winner 
gets, uh, or the winners, I guess, get a share of this $30,000 prize pool that they run every day. Okay. And it's only for cash games, but not for tournaments at this time. But they also will not tell you what earns you points or what the formula is. You just have to wait for it to happen. I mean, okay, it's... I guess this is kind of interesting for a low-limit player. For high-limit players, this is not very exciting because you 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 have a small chance at getting a piece of thirty thousand dollars. So for high-limit players, this is—I mean, I guess you'll earn the points. You don't have to be there for it. But I wouldn't go. Oh yes, all right. I took a bad beat, but I still get flip-out points. Yes, it's not going to mean much if I'm if I'm playing one cent, two cent. Sure, if, if I'm playing five ten or ten twenty, no limit. And I take a bad beat or a cooler. I'm not going to say, oh, oh, well, okay, at least I get the flip out points. I get my chance, a, a tiny chance at winning a piece of $30,000. Man, I'm, I'm, I'm there. I'm excited. So I know it's a gimmick and it, it's creative. I'll give them that. But I, the, the commercial that they had there is very misleading. It looked like they were going to give you cash. It really looked like when you get bad beat or you get coolered that they're going to give you some kind of cash back. Which they could actually do, by the way. They they could actually do that. In fact, uh, you know, they should hire me as a consultant. But another thing people could do, another thing they could do for people, th- this is actually brilliant. If you think, if what I'm about to tell you is brilliant, if I don't say so myself. How about instead of rakeback, where a site based upon how much you play, you start building up credit for bad beats. And then when you take a bad beat, and it doesn't ever tell you what your credit is, but just they say, the more you play on here, the more we will refund bad beats for you. And then you build up a certain amount of credit, which would otherwise be rake back, but they don't call it rake back. And then you take a bad beat, and if you've built up enough credit, they actually can pay you out out of that credit. So let's say you've you've built up $400 of what should be rake back, but they don't display this to you. And then you take a bad beat for uh, $300. A window pops up and says, hey, we see you just took a bad beat and we feel bad for you. Here's $300. Like, think of how happy most people would be. Now, yes, the very observant people who are knowledgeable of the industry would be aware that this is just a gimmick replacing rakeback. But I think a lot of casual players would totally go for this, that they're getting refunds from bad beats, which in reality is just being paid out the way rakeback would be, except it's a lot more exciting. You take a bad beat. Oh, look. Here it is. Like, it'll be triggered by a bad beat. And then once you've run out of it, then they stop giving you as much. Or then they'll eventually give you zero. So one of these things, like, the more you play, the more you accumulate uh, uh, bad beat insurance that will give you back uh, money for bad beats. I think that would be smarter than this. This is kind of convoluted with the flip-out tournament. So I like where they're going with it, as, like, as far as casual players are concerned at lower limits, but I don't think they're doing it right. I think the whole thing is, is kind of weird. It's kind of a pain in the ass. It's kind of cumbersome. I, it's kind of confusing. I'm still confused. <laughs> I, I think they need to hire me to design these promotions. I, I know what the fish want. I've been playing with these fish for two decades. I know what they want, believe me. Believe me when I say I know what the fish are looking for. And it's not quite this. This isn't bad. It's just not as good as it could be. GG Poker... Hire me as a consultant. I'll make this stuff better. I promise you. Let's move on past our bonus topic, and I will talk about something else with PokerStars, and that is they have signed somebody now. I don't know if it's to replace Moneymaker, but they have lost someone and brought someone else new. 
So, I don't know if you follow soccer at all. I don't really follow soccer. I'm not a soccer guy. I actually played soccer as a kid. I played AYSO soccer. And something that might surprise you is that I was actually a very good AYSO goalie. I've probably mentioned before on this show, I've mentioned most things by now since I've been doing this show for almost nine years, but I was once a very good AYSO goalie, and I do not exaggerate. I'm telling you, when I was in second grade and third grade, I was the best goalie in the league and probably the entire city. Why I didn't continue with that is a complicated story, but uh, I was the best goalie, and I just naturally had an ability for it. I didn't try to become a good goalie. I just found I was. They just put me there one day, and I'm like stopping everything. I just had, I had really good reflexes in figuring out like where the ball was going and putting my body in front of it. So that's what I was best at with soccer by far. And I, I don't know how far I could have taken it, but uh, I don't think I could have been a professional soccer goalie. But like you know, for kids playing uh, soccer, I was really one of the best goalies there was. So anyway, I've never been a soccer fan, and uh, I haven't actually played soccer, except for with Benjamin in the backyard. I haven't played soccer in a long time, a very long time. So I don't follow it much, but I do know about Neymar, who is a very big name in soccer. He's a Brazilian soccer superstar. And five years ago, he signed with Poker Stars in what was an attempt to sign major stars from places outside of poker to attract new people to poker, which I have to say is smart. See, the original belief was that in order to attract people to poker sites, you sign big names in poker, like Daniel Negreanu. The problem is that people who are interested in Negreanu are already interested in poker, and therefore they've probably already found where they'd like to play. Now, that's not to say that people like Negreanu have no value, because if you're looking for a place to play and your favorite poker pro is representing a certain site, you say, okay, well, if Negreanu is behind it, yeah, it's got to be a good site, and then you'll sign up. So I can see value in signing people like Negreanu. I don't think that there's much value in signing kind of fringe names in poker that you'd only know if you're really a big fan of poker. So those people are not providing much value in that approach they used at full tilt where they had like 120 pros, most of whom you've never heard of, that was throwing away money. That was mismanagement. But signing big names in poker had some value, but I think even bigger value came from signing people outside of poker that might bring in new players to the game. So if you're a very big soccer fan and you love Neymar and... Neymar is now representing poker stars, and you've kind of had a casual interest in online poker, but never really wanted to go as far as playing. Maybe you're going to do it now, because you see Neymar promoting it. So I think, as far as new customer acquisition, signing a famous person from outside of poker to represent poker is probably a better idea than to sign existing poker stars. So I think poker stars realize this. And they brought him back. I'm not sure why he left in the first place, but they originally signed him five years ago. He's now 28, so he's not old now. He's just not as young as he was when he signed in 2015. And uh, the funny thing is, Neymar doesn't need the money. Forbes said that he is the fourth highest paid athlete in the world and that he's worth $200 million. So how much could they be paying him or would it be worth it? Like if they paid him a million a year. 
Is that going to mean much? They paid him $2 million a year. Is it going to mean much? I mean, yeah, sure, it's $2 million, but is it going to mean that much to a guy who has $200 million who's still making a fortune? But nevertheless, he signed with Poker Stars, where he has been before. There's some belief that he signed up with Poker Stars because he actually does like poker. He actually has a dog named Poker. That's actually his dog's name is Poker. He said, when, I, when I'm not playing football, referring to soccer, I, I love playing cards. Competing with my friends is a huge passion of mine. I love the sense of community, the fun, the unpredictable moments that can occur in any game. I, I think that, I mean, obviously that's a prepared statement, but I think he may really like poker. He may be one of these guys who just has an interest in poker that isn't doing it for a living and isn't going to be as good at it as he is in soccer or anywhere near as good in poker as he is in soccer, and the two don't really translate. It's not like some of these like Magic the Gathering guys who became great poker players. That makes sense because they're both card games. Soccer, Being a good soccer player isn't going to translate to being a good poker player, but you can be a good soccer player with a ton of money who enjoys poker. You can be that. He's also hosted uh, charity home games, uh, and it's believed that he actually enjoys playing poker. So that might have played into why he came back to Poker Stars as a sponsored pro when he probably doesn't really need the money. It's also possible that he's just going to, that he's not getting peanuts. He's obviously getting paid well, and that why not? Maybe he feels it's easy money, and why not take it? Even though he doesn't need it, it's extra money, why not? It's not like he's Jeff Bezos who has $100 billion. You know, he's, he has $200 million, which is more money than anyone who listens to the show has. But uh, it's still... You know, if you want to make a million, two million a year extra for not doing very much, for representing a poker site when you love poker anyway, why not? I understand. I understand why he'd do that. Since he's Brazilian, presumably Poker Stars brought him because uh, there's an untapped market in Brazil, and there are already some Brazilian poker players who have had a lot of success. There are actually some uh, bracelet winners who are Brazilian. Andre Akari is probably the best known one. He won a bracelet in 2011. He was also once a Poker Stars pro, by the way. But other uh, Brazilian poker players who've won bracelets include uh, Alexandra Gomez, who won the first one in 2008, uh, Thiago Nishijima uh, in 2014, uh, Roberto Felicio in 2018, uh, Murilo Souza and Yuri Dzvensky was uh, in 2019, and in uh, 2020, Leonardo Matos, Luis Associado, uh, Marcelo Jakovlekovic, I can't say these names, and, and then this Yuri guy won a second one. So these were online bracelets. But anyway, this uh, it, there, there is popularity of poker in Brazil, but it's still a largely untapped market. It's still not as big as it could be. So presumably they think that Neymar will bring a lot of these potential players out to actually try to play. There actually is a Brazilian series of poker, the BSOP, the BSOP. Neymar, he actually played and made a final table, a high roller final table, and they actually agreed to postpone it so he could be the best man in a wedding. (laughs) I bet they wouldn't typically do that for anybody else. But for Neymar, they're like, okay, we'll let you go to your wedding. Also, he has 50 million followers on Twitter. 
So he's not just popular in Brazil. He is popular everywhere. He's also especially popular in places where soccer is very big, like pretty much all over Europe and all over South America. So they believe that he's a global superstar and that whatever large amount of money they're paying him is worth it. Now, why they didn't continue with his partnership uh, and he left and then came back, I'm not sure. That's, I'm not sure why there is a separation at some point. It probably was just contractual. I'm forgetting even when he left. But he's back now. And it makes sense. It makes sense they're going this direction. They're, see, Isai Scheinberg, he was more of a pure poker guy. He was less likely to do this. I'm not saying he wouldn't do that. I'm saying that he was like, he was more thinking, I want the poker pros representing the site actual like poker players. Like he, that's where his mind was. He wasn't thinking of who do I hire that's going to be most likely to bring uh, people to the site. That was on his mind too, but he really wanted to keep the purity of poker on poker stars, as I've mentioned before. And some of that is to make the faces of the site people who are actually poker players. Whereas Neymar is great for marketing, but he's not a poker player. He's a recreational player, but he's not a a great poker player, and probably never will be. Okay, so I want to move on and talk about the disaster that's occurring with uh, Caesar's rewards and screwing over a guy who has been on this show before. I'm talking about Eric Sonstegard, also known as Willing to Die. That's Willing number two, then die on Twitter. Nice guy. I think he's around my age. He had an incident some years ago, I think seven years ago, with the Rio, where uh, he actually appeared on the show over that incident, and he was 100% in the right. And I felt bad for him. I gave him advice on the show. The advice worked, and he got paid. He got the money. So here's what happened to him in the past, and then I will get to the present. And neither of these was his fault. So in 2013, he was staying at the Rio for the World Series of Poker, and the Rio screwed up and either double-checked somebody into his room, a stranger, or gave someone a key to his room when they shouldn't have, whatever it was, someone was able to get in his room when the front desk gave them a key to his room, believing that this was their room. Again, it was either double-checked in or they just accidentally uh, told the person they were in a different room and, and gave him a key to his room. So a stranger was allowed by the Rio to enter Eric's room. The stranger walked in and saw $3,000 cash sitting in Eric's suitcase and Eric's iPad, and promptly swiped them both and ran. Well, Eric came back, noticed the stuff gone. Now you can say Eric was foolish to leave the stuff sitting out, and I agree, but okay, it's a small mistake, whatever. He, he learned his lesson. But uh, he noticed the stuff was gone, figured someone got in and stole it, complained, and uh, they acted really funny about this at the Rio. They were really trying to avoid dealing with this. But finally they admitted, okay, okay, yeah, we kind of let someone in your room by a mistake. We, we told them it was their room. We gave them a key. They came in, and uh, we talked to this person. We're not going to tell you who it is, but we're, we talked to this person, and they said it was a mistake. They, they said it was a mistake. that They, they came in the room, and, uh, and somehow they thought that your cash and your iPad were theirs. <laughs> come on come on the person claimed they were tired or something and confused yeah right 
So they walk into a room, they see some guy's stuff, they see a suitcase that looks nothing like their suitcase, they see clothes that are not their clothes in the suitcase, they see nothing in, their, in the room that looks like it belongs to them, and somehow they think this is their stuff, and for some reason the only stuff they walk out with are the two valuable things that are easy to carry out, an iPad and cash. What a coincidence. So obviously it was a, a BS story. Obviously the person realized that they were assigned to the wrong room and figured they could just steal things and there'd be no proof uh, that they were the ones who did it. Or that, or that they had done it. They'll just say, hey, I, I walked in and I didn't steal anything. So anyway, it wasn't a very smart crime, I'll tell you that. So they brought the guy in, and so the guy admitted it, that, but he said it was a mistake. So he said, okay, no problem. I'll go get the money in the iPad, and I'll give it back to you guys to give to him. So he, he goes and, and gets the iPad, and he brings back $1,000. <laughs> Not three, one. Here you go, guys. Uh, this is what I took from the room. $1,000 and an iPad. Okay, bye. So they, they called uh, Eric back in and said, okay, good news. We got your stuff back. It was all a mistake, all misunderstanding. Uh, here's your iPad back the guy accidentally took. And here's the $1,000 he accidentally took. And Eric's like, uh, no, no, it's uh, it's actually uh, 3000 So there's 2000 missing. Well, he said it was 1000 so I don't care what he said. He stole 3000 and he probably chunked off the other 2000 in the pits and now does not have it anymore to give back. So if he cannot come up with that other 2000 you need to, because it was your mistake. And the Rio basically said no. So he was really pissed off. They said, you know, we have no idea. You, How did we know there was 3000 there? Well, look, it's not like he was asking for 100000 He was saying 3000 The guy said 1000 The Rio admitted they made the mistake. Give them the damn 2000 They can afford it. That's, that's what they have to do. It, it sounds realistic. And yeah, if, if Eric was making up that 2000 which I don't think he was, then oh well, that's what they get for the mistake. But they shouldn't screw him. Anyway, he went back and forth. They would not budge. They tried to, he tr- they tried to refer him to the insurance. The insurance was offering him very little. Anyway, he appeared on this show, and I advised him to mention this show's appearance and to also say that he's going to go to other media and that soon there's going to be in all the papers, it's going to make him look really bad, that all he wants is the 2000 back and he'll drop it. And sure enough, that scared them. They gave the 2000 and the matter was settled. So, happy ending, but they, they only did this because they were afraid that this was going to be a publicity nightmare and it was worth it to pay the 2K to make it go away. That's why. That was seven years ago. Let's go to 2020 now. Let's move up seven years. Eric Sansegard is still a customer of Caesars. He's a Caesars Rewards member, former Total Rewards. Now it's called Caesars Rewards. And uh, like many people, including myself, he accumulated a lot of rewards credits over the years, which as long as you earn at least one every six months, that you can bank in perpetuity and use when you need them. Reward credits are worth one penny each at any Caesars property. You can use it to pay for food, for hotel rooms, for gift shop stuff, whatever. As long as it's not, you can't use it to, if you trade it in for gambling chips or credits, it's two to one, so you only get half value. But as long as you spend it just like for on-property stuff, it's worth full value, one cent per reward credit. So he noticed that even though he hasn't been to any Caesars property recently because he has not been going due to the coronavirus, he noticed that in October and November, 70,000 RCs worth $700 disappeared from his account. Hmm. 
How does that happen? It didn't expire because uh, they were not expiring any RCs until December 31st due to the coronavirus. So how in October and November, when he did not set foot in any Caesars property, did 70,000 RCs worth $700 disappear? Well, they were stolen. How were they stolen? Well, someone got a hold of his card or duplicated his card or something. Someone had a card of his and used it around Paris and Planet Hollywood in Las Vegas. They used it at different outlets. They didn't just do it in one place, but they went around those two hotels and were, I don't know, restaurants, gift shops, whatever, but $700 was spent. Now, you may say, okay, well, Eric probably dropped his card somewhere and someone picked it up and used it and he didn't report it and it's his fault. No. For that reason, because it's so easy to lose cards or leave a card in the machine, they don't make it easy to steal people's reward credits. The only way you can use reward credits at Paris or Planet Hollywood is by showing ID. You have to have the person's total rewards card, and you have to show ID to show that you are that person. I know this because when I spend my rewards credits, they say, can I see your ID, sir? And I pop out my ID showing Todd Wittellis with my picture on it, and they say, okay, sir, thank you, and they run my card, and they spend my RCs. I think one time, I forgot where, but I think one time they forgot to ask me for my ID. Other than that, they're pretty good and and persistent with asking for ID, and they should be for this reason. So I I don't get annoyed when they ask for ID. I'm happy when they ask for ID because it means that they're protecting me in case I lose my card. So uh, somehow they went around to places, not just one place, but they went around to various outlets in Paris and at Planet Hollywood and spent $700 worth of his RCs. He wrote, I've been dealing with 70,000 reward credits being fraudulently spent out of my account in October at Paris and Planet Hollywood when I didn't set foot in Nevada the entire month. It's been a two-plus month battle with customer service. I guess it was just October, not October, November. But ever since October, when he noticed it, he's been battling with customer service to get the $700 worth of RCs back. Now, you may say, well, why do they have to give him it back? Well, because they were obviously negligent with checking ID. Do you think it's likely that someone made a fake Eric Sonstegard ID in order to spend $700 worth of RCs? Do you think that would be worth it? Obviously not. Obviously someone either duplicated his card, who's an insider, or, uh, or just knew from experience in some way the outlets where they're just negligent about checking people's IDs. So I think this is an inside job. That's my guess. My guess is some shady employees there knew of certain places in Planet Hollywood in Paris where either intentionally or unintentionally they just never check ID. So it could be like someone who's in cahoots with them. It also could be that uh, they just know where they're lax about it. Maybe they went around testing it to see where they're asking for ID and figured it out. So that's not his problem. This was the problem of Caesars for having properties that have outlets where they don't check ID. So Caesars needs to eat this. Caesars needs to go clean their own house stop these mistakes, and give him back the money. And keep in mind, it's only rewards credits. It's only credits he can spend on the property. It's not even real cash. So what happened is he he asked me actually back in October for advice, and he asked, what should I do about this? And I told him to email customer service through the total rewards portal, The C- or actually I guess it's called Caesar's Rewards Portal, but whatever, that if you email customer service through there, that's actually the best way to get people responding to you because he was having a hard time getting anyone answering him. So I told him that's the way to do it. Well, the good news was through that portal, he was getting response. 
The bad news was the response was garbage. And he's been going back and forth for two months. Now, what do you think they were saying in those two months? What do you think was the excuse of why he's not getting the RCs back yet? Do you think it was because they thought maybe he's lying about it? No. Do you think that uh, they believe this is his fault in some way? No. It's because in order to give him a refund for these $700 worth of RCs that got stolen, they need the receipts from everywhere that was charged. And they've requested these receipts from all these outlets in their own properties. And some of these outlets have chosen not to send the receipts and are dragging their feet. So they say they can't do anything until they have all the receipts. (laughs) You have got to be kidding me. So their own employees are lazy and are not providing the receipts. Maybe on purpose because they don't want to get caught for what happened. But whatever it is, Certain outlets just haven't given the receipts. And these are this is their own company. These are not third parties. And they're like, oh, well, well, these other departments aren't providing this with the receipts. So keep waiting, keep waiting, keep waiting, keep waiting, keep waiting. That's what they're telling him. So he keeps trying to follow up with them. And all they keep telling him is wait longer. So he wrote in, uh, he posted a screenshot of this interaction he had with Laquana at uh, the Total Service Center, which is at Caesars. So she she wrote, uh, Hello, Eric. This is on uh, November 11th. Thank you for contacting us again. We are still waiting for the copies. This this is back November 11th. There's, quote, still waiting of the receipts. Once we receive the receipts, we will request for the credits to be added to your account. We appreciate your patience while we resolve this matter. Please let me know if you have any additional questions. Okay, he accepted that. This is after already he was waiting for a full month. 16 days later, November 27th, he wrote, Hi, Laquana, just checking back again. It's closing in on two months since the points were stolen from my account. Just wanted to see what remedy Caesars is going to come up with. Thank you, Eric Sonstegard. Her response three days later, Hello, Eric. We reach out to our support team requesting an update. Once we receive a response, we will contact you and advise you of the outcome. Thank you for your continued patience. <laughs> Come on. Okay, let's move forward to December 18th now, 18 days after that. Hi, Laquana. Just my periodic check-in to see if we can come to some resolution with this issue. It's been two months now. Please let me know if there's someone else I need to speak with to get this taken care of. Thank you very much, Eric Sonstegard. Then, three days later, December 21st. Hello, Eric. Thank you for contacting us again. They have received some of the receipts... I, I reached out to the outlets that have not sent them in to request them again. We truly appreciate your patience while we work to resolve this matter. <laughs> oh, jeez. It's been almost three months. What a joke. He said it's clo- on November 27th, he said it's closing in on two months. Now we're at January 3rd. It's not resolved. They're still waiting. They've got some of the receipts. They've just got to get them all. Here's a solution, guys. Okay? Laquana, I don't want to teach you how to do your job. I don't want to overstep my bounds here, but I want to tell you something. How about you give Eric his $700 in rewards credits, give him back his 70,000 RCs, and then afterwards, you guys go back and get the receipts to do whatever paperwork you have to do. How about you give him the the RCs first and clean house later? Don't make him wait because your outlets are incompetent or lazy. How about that? 
How about at some point you say, this has taken too long, we're going to take his word for it, here's your $700 in RCs back, it's not even real cash, you have to use this stuff on property and it doesn't cost us very much, or anything. So, here you go, Eric, sorry, sorry for the wait, we're, we're going to take care of it on our own with, with, with getting these outlets to give those receipts. But basically, as long as the outlets want to drag their feet and not send receipts, he just has to wait. Makes total sense, total way to, to treat your customers who likely were victimized by insiders at the company who had access to make a, a duplicate card. This is just my guessing, but uh, uh, that would be my best theory here. Made a duplicate card and then knew how to use it at certain outlets that will not ask for ID or will be in cahoots with the thieves who are doing it. How about that? How about you just give him his 700 back? What a mess. What a total mess. And keep in mind, they're, they're trying to keep customers happy right now so they'll come back during COVID, and this is the shit they're doing. Unbelievable. But not really that unbelievable, because it's Caesars. They, this is typical Caesars. This is typical Caesars. Okay, I have a, a chat room message. Adam Antium in the chat wrote, Is the radio host too busy to read the chat? Uh, the usual answer to that is Yes. The radio host usually is too busy to read the chat because the radio host is doing many things. The radio host is is trying to run a show where there's nobody else on with him and he has to constantly speak for hours upon end. And he has to think about what he's going to say next. And he has to consult the source material in front of him. And he has to uh, run the technical aspects of the show. So yes, the, the radio host is too busy to read the chat, but not all that busy in that I can't occasionally pause to read the chat. So, if there's something else you'd like to say, Adamantium, you're welcome to say in chat, and I will probably read it, though no guarantees. 775-FRAUD-55 if you'd like to call, and that's a plus one if you're outside the U.S., plus one seven seven five three seven two eight three five five. Let's move on here. Next topic, also about Caesars. Caesars Southern Indiana is a place I have never been to. In fact, I will admit I have never been to the state of Indiana in my life. That's one of the U.S. states I have not visited. There are some. I've been to most U.S. states, but there's some I have not been to. Indiana is one of them. Caesar, Southern Indiana, from what I remember, the video poker was not particularly good, and there was nothing that exciting regular poker-wise. So, why would I go? No point. But if I were a local in Southern Indiana, it would make sense to go to Caesars Southern Indiana because it's a Caesars property and all the tier credits you earn there are good in Vegas or anywhere else you want to go. So it's nice to earn your status there or if you earned your status elsewhere that you can use it at a home casino. So it, it would be nice to have a Caesars property if you lived in a place like Southern Indiana and there has been one. It's called uh, Caesars Southern Indiana. I didn't even know it was called Caesars. I thought the only Caesars Palace... It's not called Caesars Palace, but I thought the only Caesars that existed... This is actually a surprise to me. I had thought the only Caesars that were there at all were Windsor, and that's in Canada, Atlantic City, and Las Vegas. I thought that was it. I thought there were three Caesars total. It was actually called the Horseshoe Southern Indiana from 2008 to 2019. It did begin, though, at Caesars Indiana... From 1998 to 2008, I guess I wasn't paying attention then. Then by the time I paid more attention, it was called Horseshoe, and then it went back to being called Caesar Southern Indiana. But they are selling it. They are selling this for $250 million to the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians 
it's actually going it, it's a little bit of a complicated sale because remember Caesars had this spin-off company they made called Vici Properties that would technically own the properties and then uh, lease them back to Caesars Corporation. So apparently the tribe is going to lease from Vici for 33 million a year. It's going to continue being called Caesars Southern Indiana under license from Caesars. That's an interesting sale. That is an interesting sale because it looks like here that they are selling the property, but they're just going to be selling the property in who makes the profits from it. But it's going to remain a Caesars property, and it's also going to be a total rewards property. Like I think it's going to be a Caesar rewards property. I think it's going to keep the same name. It looks like the only thing changing is who actually owns it. And that's going to be the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. Now, why is this happening? What's the point if they're going to keep it as Caesars Southern Indiana? And if it's going to be a Caesar Rewards property, why sell this to the Cherokee Indians? The reason is they had to. Remember, there was a merger where Caesars merged its operations with El Dorado Gaming, who had a lot of existing properties. And uh, as an agreement, when this merger happened, they they made an agreement uh, with various jurisdictions about selling some properties so they were not too dominant in any particular market. So certain markets objected, okay, now that you two companies are merging together, you're going to have too many properties in this particular market, so you've got to agree to sell some of these properties once the merger happens, or we're going to object to your merger. So certain markets did that, certain markets demanded that of them, and they agreed. So Indiana was one of those markets, and they they had to do it. The Indiana Gaming Commission forced the new Caesars to sell at least three of its Indiana properties if they're going to merge. So this is the first one they are selling, to my knowledge, but they have to sell two others. And this is of combined properties. Remember, they combine their portfolio, Caesars and El Dorado. So of, of the properties that they now have, five properties together, they have to sell three of them. And Indiana Gaming said that if you don't, we're going to do all we can to deny your merger. So they, they went along with it and agreed to do this. So they're in the process of doing this. I see here. They they said they're going to sell the Evansville and Hammond properties as well. That's a Horseshoe Hammond. And I'm not sure about the Evansville ones. But those, those are the ones that uh, they're going to get rid of in addition to this... Uh, Caesars, Southern Indiana. The World Series of Poker circuit had stopped at Caesars, Southern Indiana often. Remember, it was the horseshoe before. I don't know if that's going to continue. Now, Cherokee already does run uh, other Caesars properties. There are two Cherokee properties in North Carolina. There's uh, Harris Cherokee and then there's a, a second Harris Cherokee with a slightly different name. It's Harris Cherokee something, like Cherokee River or something like that. The, the better of the two, from what I have seen, like video poker-wise at least, is just Harris Cherokee. That one also has a good location right next to Great Smoky Mountains National Park. 
it's a scenic area and it's, you can drive right into the national park there, so it's very nice. You can also go the other way towards Asheville, which is nice. So I know that uh, those are owned by by Indian casinos, and this is not the, the first time this is happening. I've also no, I also know of many other Caesar's properties that are owned by Indian tribes, including Harris Rincon in California which is now called Harris Resort Southern California, but that has always been an Indian tribe because only Indian tribes can operate casinos in the state of California. I'm talking about full casinos. And there's a lot of states like that. So this is not unprecedented. This is not a new thing. But they they are letting go of Southern Indiana, which they own themselves, and they're going to let the Indians own it now. And it looks like the Hammond and Evansville properties, this is happening as well. They said, as a from a guest's perspective, almost nothing will change. So it is going to remain a Caesars property, as far as you can see it. But just know that when you lose money, the Indians will be getting it, not Caesars. I don't know if you'll feel better or worse about that. Okay, we have another topic to move on to. Another series of topics, and that is the coronavirus segment. We're up to our coronavirus segment. The first one is going to be about the UK version of COVID, which is starting to plague the world and is scaring people. The UK strain of COVID, as is known. The scary thing about this strain, and it was first noticed in the UK, is that it is significantly more contagious. And keep in mind, COVID-19 is already extremely contagious. That's why it has spread so much all over the world. That's why it's so easy to get. That's why I recommend you don't go indoors if you don't want to get it, because it is so easy to get through the air indoors. So it has mutated, and it's actually mutated thousands of times. Some people think this is the first mutation. No, there's actually been thousands of mutations, and that's very common. You may think, oh my God, thousands of mutations, what is this virus doing? No, that's actually common. In this time period, it is not unusual for a prolific virus to mutate thousands of times, and it's not all that uncommon for viruses to mutate enough to where they become different enough to where vaccines don't work against them and have to be modified. The one that's best known, the flu. The flu, you have to get a different flu shot each year because it mutates to beat the previous vaccine. So that may be the case with COVID. COVID may be something that's always here, like the flu is, and that uh, mutates enough to where it can never completely be stopped, and you just have to keep vaccinating against it year after year. It's also not known if... You can get it a second time once it mutates, like you can with the flu. The flu you really could get every year. Most people don't, but it could happen. It's also a lot more contagious than the flu. But this is more contagious than previous COVID. So it was thought that about uh, it was about 70% more contagious than the original COVID, which was already very contagious. A report on December 31st, said that this new strain tripled the number of infections in England during the November lockdown. And the number of new cases that were caused by the previous variant actually went down by 33%. They said that uh, the reproduction rate, which is known as R, which determines how contagious the disease is based upon the number of people infected by each infected person, was 0.7 versus 04 even with the high levels of social distancing at that time. 
in order the number of new cases to start falling, it does have to be less than one, which it was, but they were really locking down. They said that, uh, however, the latest estimate shows that it's gotten above one, meaning cases are increasing, and it was between 1.1 and 1.3. But overall, it is believed to be 70% more contagious than the previous one. Now, you may be wondering, is it also more deadly? Answer, no. They have not found it's less deadly, but they said it's definitely not more deadly. So, it's also been found, interestingly enough, that it seems to be hitting younger people more. And old people not as much. Now, that could just be from social distancing measures. But it it was seen that uh, it's not hitting old people as much as the previous one uh, proportionately. But what has gone up is that children are getting a lot more. So it's being said that it's more infectious in children by 24%, more infection and, and less infectious, I'm not sure by how many percent, among people over 60. Overall, it is said to be a lot more infectious. I'm looking at a graph here, and it does look like... Uh, once you get to 60, it's actually less infectious. For children, it's a lot more. And for, oddly enough, in the 40 to 49 age group, it's a lot more. That's got to be some weird outlier. Everybody else who's not old and not a child, it's roughly around the same, a little bit more infectious. We'll have to see as we have more time studying this thing. It's not totally clear why it would be more infectious to younger people. It is possible that the virus has adapted because older people die more from this. Or that older people, uh, once they get it, are knocked out pretty quickly to where if they don't die, they don't get to spread it around very much, and children do. So it's possible that the virus has actually adapted to those most likely to transmit it, which would be children who are not affected by it very much. I don't understand why the 40 to 49 group was also fairly high in uh, increase in infection. Viruses in general mutate to be less deadly because viruses are not there to kill. They do kill, but that's not their purpose. Their purpose is to replicate and survive. Their purpose is to spread. And viruses cannot spread if the host has died. If the host dies, then the virus inside the host dies as well. So it's to the virus's benefit that the host survives and that the virus, uh, that the, that the host of the virus is healthy enough to continue walking around spreading it. So, uh, the coronavirus is not really trying to kill you. It just is the effect of what happens when you get it in, in many cases. So this virus here, if it's going to mutate for survival, it's typically going to mutate to be more contagious and also to be less deadly. Though they're not seeing evidence as less deadly, but it's not more deadly. Ebola is an example of a virus that gets people very quickly to where they just can't spread it that fast. That's the reason Ebola uh, hasn't wiped out populations even when it gets to a population provided there's some caution taken because even though it's got like a 50% percent 
deadly rate, which think if that happened with coronavirus, think if coronavirus was killing 50% of people, that would be a super devastating. But the problem with Ebola and spreading is that it debilitates people who catch it so quickly that they don't have time to spread it around. You can't spread it around much if you're lying in bed and can barely move. You can't spread it around at all if you're dead. So the coronavirus spreads so much because it's most contagious in the early phases before the people feel it at all or when they're feeling it just a little bit. So when you're healthy enough to walk around and maybe not even know you have it, that's when you're most likely to transmit it to people. And yet, then once it gets going, it can be pretty bad. And that's why it's got this rare combination of being deadly and very contagious, which you don't see very often otherwise. You don't see viruses that spread around that much. I'm not talking about just the ability to infect. I'm talking about how it is spreading. You don't see viruses spread like this to mass numbers that are deadly for that reason. Because once they're deadly, then it knocks people out where they can't go around and spread it. And where it becomes obvious very quickly they have it and everyone stays away from them. So a virus is going to survive best, actually, if people are asymptomatic and transmitting. That would be the ideal. If the coronavirus went to its ideal state, it would be to where everybody is asymptomatic and to where people transmit it to one another, to where nobody feels anything, and to where it can keep mutating, to where people who already had it can get it again. So people can just keep giving coronavirus to each other again and again and again and keep mutating, and and it'll never go away, but it doesn't hurt anybody. That would be to the virus's best benefit. But it's not there and may never get there. But if it's going to mutate, you don't have to fear deadliness. That's not, not likely. But unfortunately, it doesn't look like this has gotten less deadly, other than the fact that it seems to be spreading less to old people, which is interesting. Like, has the virus actually adapted, knowing that old people die and that many of them get very sick and don't go out? So maybe the virus has adapted. Now, the virus doesn't have a brain. It can't think about these things, but this naturally happens where it starts to thrive under certain conditions and not under other conditions, and that's that's what causes the mutations. It causes the mutations where uh, conditions are favorable for it, it thrives, and when they're not, it doesn't thrive. And then the thriving version does better. That's that's basically a very simple version of how viruses mutate. They don't sit there and reason it out, obviously. But it would be interesting to see if it's mutated to infect children more, because children are typically asymptomatic. Listen to what I just said earlier, that if everybody was asymptomatic then that would be best for the virus. So if instead of mutating to where everybody's asymptomatic, which may be based upon like kind of random things that are that the virus can't really mutate to do, if it could just be random characteristics people have to where some would be, some would not get it. Like so, When I say some would be, I mean some would be asymptomatic, some wouldn't be, and the virus would have a hard time mutating to accommodate that, but something that is fairly constant is that kids are far more asymptomatic on average than adults. So wouldn't the virus be smart to mutate to give it to kids more often, to have to infect kids more often somehow? So maybe that's what it's done. It's the the, the mechanism of how it infects people is not that well known yet. So you may think, well, how can the virus infect young people versus old people? But there may be something that makes it more infectious to young people than older, 
And the virus has adapted to do that because the virus has started to thrive better when it's, it's spreading through kids. Maybe just because kids, number one, aren't knocked out and often don't even know they have it. And number two, because kids don't social distance well. And that's well known. Kids have a very hard time social distancing. I witnessed it myself with my own kid. He was the best social distancer and he still wasn't very good. So it would make sense for the virus to prefer children. So that's what's being seen in the early days of this. It has shown up, to my knowledge, in three U.S. states. One of them, unfortunately, is California. It also has appeared in uh, Florida. And uh, there's one other state. I'm forgetting what that is. But I know California and Florida are two of the three. And unfortunately, with this virus, as we've seen, it spreads so quickly, especially this more contagious version, that you're not going to stop. It's going to get to all 50 states. I think the U.S. made a mistake by not preventing people from the U.K. coming here while this was happening. I think they should have really just locked down and not allowed anyone from the U.K. in. and not They, they, they made it too lax, and, and the, the quarantine period was too short. And There were too many exceptions that you allowed just one person in with it, and it's too late. Now, it's possible some already got here with it and started spreading it. That might be, It's possible it was too late anyway, that there was no way to stop it. They do not know how the vaccine is going to do against this new strain. Is this new strain able to avoid the vaccine? Or is the vaccine going to take care of this one too? That's not known yet. We will know soon. It's disturbing. Anyone hoping that the coronavirus is just going to be taken care of by the vaccine, you may have a little bit less hope now, seeing that this mutation has been major enough to where it has significantly altered how it is spreading. And that would make it more likely it has the ability to mutate to beat the vaccine, and then another vaccine will have to be developed. Now, you may wonder, how are they come up with another vaccine fast enough to do this? Well, they do the same thing with the flu. These aren't major modifications, and it's even easier to modify the mRNA vaccines. So once the mRNA vaccine for the coronavirus is uh, considered safe, which it already is, but once we have even more experience with it and it's generally accepted as something good to take, then a small modification to handle the the mutation is not going to require the same approval process and should be out very fairly quickly. I wouldn't worry too much about that. But we may have a situation where you have to really keep up with the vaccine. And of course, the U.S. has to keep up with as the rest of the world does, with manufacturing enough of it to keep vaccinating everybody who wants it to keep up with the coronavirus's mutations, which, believe me, I'm going to do. There will be some who won't. In fact, there's a number of healthcare workers, even, who are on the first priority list who are refusing to take the vaccine. In some areas, they're having a lot of problems with that, where up to 70% of people who are eligible to get the vaccine in healthcare positions are refusing them. Now, they may not be refusing them totally. They may say, I don't want to be the guinea pig. I don't want to be the first ones. Come back to me in April when everybody else has taken it. And if it looks good, I'll take it at that point. That might be what some are saying. I can understand, especially the younger healthcare workers, why they don't want to do it. Think about it. If you're a 25-year-old healthcare worker, do you want to be in priority one vaccine? If you're a 75-year-old worker, sure. If you're a 60-year-old worker with pre-existing conditions, sure. Maybe even if you're my age, with no pre-existing conditions, that makes sense. 
I'm starting to come down a lot more on the side that I want the vaccine. I'm starting to come down a lot more like, yes, there's risks taking it at this point, but there's also risks not taking it. So I'm starting to believe for my age group, given how this is spreading so quickly, given how bad the problem's getting, that it's probably better for me to take the vaccine than to not take the vaccine and wait. I will take it at some point. I'm just saying, like, I, I had thought maybe I'll wait even longer from when my spot comes up, but... I have a feeling I'm going to take it as soon as it's available, which won't be for a few months. So I, I think I will have seen enough by then anyway to determine if it's safe or not, which I'm assuming I'll determine is safe. I don't need it to be 100% safe. I just need it to be safe enough to where it doesn't scare me more than COVID. I realize there's a risk on both ends, but I think the risk to me is much higher from COVID than it is from the vaccine. So I'll, I, I really am starting to be of the mind that I'd like to take the vaccine as soon as possible. For elderly people, if you're not taking it as soon as possible, you're making a mistake. All elderly people should take this. 100%. Right now, if you can. Everybody else makes more sense to wait. Young people, though, I I see why they want to wait, and I see why the healthcare workers, many of whom are young, are saying, screw this. I, I don't want to be among the first to take this and have it screw me up. And what's COVID going to do to me? Uh, hardly anyone my age is getting that affected by it. So F it. If I get it, I get it. That's, a lot of young people feel that way, and for good reason. There's also concerns with a vaccine about fertility. There's some concerns that fertility has not been studied, and there's some people who believe, I don't know if, how valid these beliefs are, but there's some beliefs that it can interfere with fertility or even make people sterile. Now, if there's a mass sterility from this, it would not be deemed safe, but they have conceded they haven't really studied fertility. So younger people who want to have children, they are concerned about this. Older people are not concerned. Like older women, like women over 40, they're not going to be having kids anyway. Older men, they can have kids, but typically they don't want to. So I'm not concerned. I'm not concerned at my age. If if, if it makes me sterile, I'm not going to go, oh man, I can't have kids anymore. Like I'm not planning to have kids anymore anyway. Like it, uh, first of all, the woman I'm with couldn't have kids anymore at this point because she's close to my age. And I, I'm not going to be leaving her, so I, I, I wouldn't have a need to have kids. But even if I were not with her, I'm getting kind of old to start with new kids because I would be so much older than the child. And I wouldn't want to have the child lose its father early on. And I, like if I knew I was going to live to 90, it's a different story, but I don't know that. So once you get old enough and you have kids, it starts to become a bit of a selfish decision in that the kid is going to, there's a high chance the kid's going to lose their father at a young age. So I'm already close to the point where I I think it's getting there as far as how I would be too old for being a father at this point to to a new baby. But it's a moot point because I couldn't be a father at this point uh, given who I'm with beyond my only child. So that's fine. So like if I, I, w- I wouldn't want voluntarily to become sterile at this point, but if I did, okay, fine. Like it's, it's not a big deal. Before I had Benjamin, that would have been a huge deal. Today, you know, like whatever. Like I'm not planning to have kids and right now I couldn't have kids with the only woman I'm with. So it's not a worry for me. But for young people, yeah, I see why it's a worry. I'd be very concerned about this if I were younger. And I'm thinking, why am I taking these risks for like very little benefit? So, yeah, that's what happens. 
I, I told you in 2021 we're going to have a problem with vaccine compliance. I told you that. It is happening. So we will have people die who just don't take the vaccine and get COVID, including people who are vulnerable and should take it. I'm not talking about the 25-year-old who gets really unlucky and doesn't take it and gets COVID and somehow dies. I'm talking about middle-aged and older people who choose not to take it and then get COVID and die. I'm of the belief you should take it because there's there are some... Like middle-aged and older, there is a, a chance that's not totally out there that you're going to get it and die even if you're middle-aged and healthy. Young and healthy, it's it's a fluke. Middle-aged and healthy, it happens. Middle-aged and healthy, people really are dying of this who had no belief that they would die from it because otherwise they seem okay. Not a lot, but it's happening to some. It's it's not a total fluke. So I, that's why I'm starting to be more of the belief that I should take it. And also, the, much what's much more of a chance is lung damage. And I definitely do not want to get that. And that's much more likely than death. Not as bad as death, but it's much more likely for someone my age. So we'll be monitoring the UK version of COVID and see what happens with that. It's in the early stages. We'll see where that goes. And we'll see how the vaccine does against it. Now, let's talk about the vaccine. Let's talk about the distribution of the vaccine in the US. Why has there been so much trouble getting the vaccine out in the U.S. Because there's been headlines, but I don't think enough. I think this is not being covered enough that they've had a hard time getting vaccines out. And some have called it a disaster. Some have said this is a a big mess and that the U.S. should be ashamed of itself. There are other countries like Israel who've done a great job at getting the vaccine to a decent percentage of their population already. Now, Israel's a much smaller country. It's a lot more densely populated country because it's a very small land mass, so they have a lot more people per square mile than the U.S. does. The U.S. is big geographically and much bigger population-wise, so it's a lot harder to vaccinate people in the U.S. than somewhere like Israel. So it's not an apples-to-apples comparison, and I agree with that. But still... There is an issue that the U.S. was aiming for 20 million vaccines to have been distributed by the end of 2020, and they got like 2.6 million out. So it was not even close. They they didn't even get to like, they got to about one-eighth of what they said they would. And that, that was a pretty big failure. So was this a disaster? Was there good reason for it? Who do you blame? Well... A lot of people just are, are the reflex is to blame Trump because he's still the president. Oh, Trump screwed it up. Trump didn't get it out. Uh, Trump, you, you got to treat him like the CEO because he's the president. I, I hate that statement. You got to treat the president like the CEO because it's not like that. The, if the president were a king or a dictator, then yes. But the, the president is not a king or dictator. Trump wishes he was, but he's not. And if they're not, there are many things beyond their control. There's many things that are under the control of state and local government, that as much as the federal government wants it to be different, it is not. There's also a lot of incompetence in government. So you can say, as president, I want such and such to happen, and if those under you don't make it happen, then it just doesn't happen. And sometimes it's the people's fault way under you, not even someone directly under you. So it's not as simple as a CEO not getting something done and having to take the blame. And I always hate that, oh, the president should be blamed for such and such happening under his watch. No. You have to look and say, okay, 
Could the president have foreseen this? What could he have done? And once it happened, how did he react to it? I'm not saying Trump has been perfect with this, but you can't just say it's his fault because he's president. So whose fault is it? The problem is that uh, they haven't uh, really... Okay, the problem began with the CDC and their idiotic uh, recommendation for who should get it and who shouldn't. And it was a terrible recommendation, as I've said before on this show, that they should uh, that the the first priority should be healthcare workers and and people in nursing homes. Okay, I, I would do it differently, but I can understand the argument for that. And then second is people over seventy five and essential workers of any age at the same time. Now they haven't even gotten to that part yet, but already the there is no real plan coming from the CDC recommending the way it's done. The problem is there, there's too much left for state and local governments to set up. They weren't given enough guidance, and that, that is the CDC's fault. And uh, this allowed them to then go ahead and screw it up. So there wasn't a good top-down approach from this. Now, this is something the states have to do. This is their responsibility. But the problem is the more you delegate to them, the higher chance it is that if they have to come up with their own plan, the more it's going to screw up. And uh, another problem is that when you decide who to vaccinate and those people don't want the vaccine, you have to have a plan for that too. So we have this weird situation where a lot of people want it but can't get it, and a lot of other people can get it but don't want it. And the smart thing to do is to come up with a plan, which I know they had to do quickly, but not that quickly. I mean, they had enough time to come up with a decent plan. The smart thing to do is to come up with a plan of we will offer it to such and such priority groups and we will quickly get a response from who wants it and who doesn't want it and then we will move on to the next one. Once you know, So we're going to give people a small window to at least indicate interest. And if we either don't hear from them or if uh, they refuse it, then we will move on to the next group. But a lot of state and local governments have not done a good job with this. What's happened is they have set up very high standards for who's in the first group, like frontline healthcare workers and the elderly in nursing homes, and that's fine. If they want to set a high standards to give it to the people who need it the most, I still think young healthcare workers uh, shouldn't get it except for those who work directly with those who have COVID, and everybody else should not get it in healthcare yet. But okay, like I can, I can still understand it. It's not... A horrendous decision. It's just not one I would agree with as the very, very first priority. I think very first priority should be elderly people over 75 and people in nursing homes, no matter what age they are, and also people who work directly with those who have COVID, or people, either people who work directly with those in nursing homes or people who work with uh, healthcare workers who directly treat COVID positive people. And everybody else should not be in that first group. That would be my choice. But fine. The way they went with their first group, I'll, I'll accept that. But they have to have a contingency plan, and a lot of these states and local governments, they did not have a contingency plan for what if we don't have enough demand in this group? Then what do we do? So what they're doing is just sitting. They're just sitting and waiting as if people's minds are going to change, as if uh, a, a mass group is going to come forward and claim it who hasn't yet. So some of these vaccines are just sitting there and people can't get it and they're not moving on to the next group. 
which is a mistake. And there's a fear that some of these are not even being stored in a long-term storage facility where where it's cold enough to keep the vaccine for six months. So they're afraid that some of these facilities, it's in a place where it's going to expire after a relatively short time, maybe 30 days, maybe a week, depending on what uh, what temperature they're keeping it at. And that some of these early, very valuable vaccines are going to go bad, which would be a tragedy. As of December 30th, 12.4 million vaccines were distributed, but only 2.7 million got the vaccine. I said 2.6, but whatever, 2.7. The 20 million vaccine thing, some are saying that that it's not fair to hold the government to that, that this was an estimate, this was like what we'd like to do, but not a promise. So I, I can understand that. I know they were hoping, but maybe it didn't happen. But okay, so they got 12.4, distrib- 12.4 million distributed by December 30th. But the fact that there wasn't uh, the fact that there wasn't distribution, which then translated to vaccination right away, is a mess. And it's for that reason I said. Now. It is possible that they've given more vaccines and just have not reported it yet, that there's a reporting lag. So reporting lags don't matter that much other than inaccurate numbers, but at least people really got vaccinated. But how much of a reporting lag, I don't know. On the CDC data uh, vaccine tracker, the CDC vaccination tracker, which I'm looking at right now, it says, here's a more accurate number, which is as of right now, or as of actually yesterday. It's the last time it was updated. 13.071 13.071 million doses distributed, 4.225 million initiating vaccination. So we've still got a big difference in the amount distributed versus those receiving it. There have been some complaints that some people have uh, not been able to get the vaccine because it was distributed to pl- to facilities that were not uh, ready to vaccinate people very quickly. That local governments made mistakes and distributed it to uh, facilities that just didn't have the capacity to vaccinate enough people. And that this, this was also not thought out well by some local governments of who has the vaccine, who actually gets the vaccine, who's prepared to give a lot of vaccines. And that's possible. That's, that's also a possible mistake. So here's the question. Is it really just like a reporting lag? Are there a lot of people really getting vaccinated? Or have there been problems? Another complaint is that vaccination facilities closed for New Year's. And people are like, what the hell? You, you don't take off holidays like you're a restaurant. This is... This is important. You should be vaccinating people as fast as possible. In fact, there's some saying that clinics to vaccinate should be open 24-7. So if you want to come down at 3 in the morning, you can. There should always be people out there to vaccinate if you want to come down and get it done and you're in that priority group. There never should be a bottleneck in getting vaccinated because they're just simply closed, especially closed for entire days. So that's received a lot of criticism, and uh, rightfully so. So there's a lot of... uh, Issues that have been happening, again, these are decided at the state and local government level. I do think the CDC should have put out a much clearer picture of what is expected, of what is recommended. And some of this is because they were too busy focusing on stupidity, like racial justice, 
Now, racial justice itself isn't stupidity if you want to make sure that uh, that all races are given equal opportunity and things like that. That's fine, but but to trying to make up for past racial wrongs by hoping to prioritize uh, some races over others that you think were uh, discriminated against in the past that has no place here, and you shouldn't even be wasting your time with this. Nor and it's also anti-scientific. So this type of stuff should not be making into science or even vaccine distribution policy. If you want to do your racial justice work, you can do this later in other aspects of life, not the coronavirus vaccine, aside from just making sure that there's no discrimination against uh, races. That the, the, You want to make sure it's as available in areas where more, more black people live as in areas where more white people live. So you want to make sure that black people don't have a hard time getting the vaccine, but you don't want to prioritize black people over white people. That's also a mistake, and that's where this racial justice crap comes in, and justice is not even used accurately there. It's actually racial preference, not justice. So the CDC was busy focusing on that crap instead of the important stuff of, number one, the scientifically correct method to save the most lives through the vaccine, and number two, giving a good recommendation for the way it should be rolled out, distributed, and the contingency plans for when parts of the priority population don't want it. And again, even if it has to be executed by the state and local governments, the state and local governments should be guided somewhat by the CDC. And I'm I'm not letting them off the hook either. They should be doing it competently as well. And a lot of them were not. What you'd have to expect, there's a lot of them involved and some are going to be incompetent. So that's why the more guidance they have to go from, the better. Now, Joe Biden has named a, quote, COVID-19 response team and he's positioning himself as as the COVID hero, the COVID Superman who's going to come in and save everybody from COVID. It's not going to happen. If you remember the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, when that was rolled up and that rolled out and the healthcare.gov site was open, what a freaking disaster that was. Biden was vice president, Obama was president, the whole thing was a complete screw-up. It was a $560 million screw-up and waste of money and waste of time, and it was a mess, and everybody hated it. It didn't kill people, but it was a disaster. And that was under Obama. That was under Biden as vice president. So if you think Biden, we just got to wait for him to come in, it's all going to be good, it's not. This was failure on many levels, some of which was inevitable because government just tends to fail. Government is prone to bureaucratic mistakes and to not being nimble and not planning for contingencies when things don't work out. So a lot of this was kind of predictable if you think about it. It's not because Trump is president. If you think it's because Trump is president, you'll be very disappointed in a few weeks when he's not, and we see the same crap. And if you think, oh, well, we're going to have a president who finally follows the science, uh, no. The CDC, even though it's under Trump, the people putting out these dumb racial justice recommendations are leftists. They're known leftists. They're not Trump people. They're not Republicans. They are the ones responsible for putting out these awful recommendations. So good luck. Good luck having these people appointed even more to work under Biden. You're going to have more of them, not less of them. So, good luck. So, the the bottom line here is, you're not going to see much change. You may see some change in communication. Biden may feign more concern for this than Trump is. Trump is just kind of tuned out of the whole thing, which isn't good. 
He shouldn't be. But if you think that uh, Biden's going to come in and save everything and follow the science, blah, 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 you've got another thing coming. There will be some improvement over time. The government's going to learn from its mistakes and they'll start to make things better, similar to how healthcare.gov, while inaccessible when it opened in October of 2013, you can access it just fine now, as you have been able to do for several years now. But the beginning was a complete mess. So the beginning of this is a complete mess. Some of it's the nature of government, some of it's from poor planning, some has been from the CDC not giving good guidance, and some is from head-scratching decisions like to close some of these centers on uh, holidays, which makes no sense. So we shall see what happens, but yeah, it hasn't been done well. It should improve, but not because of the president changing, just from experience. Last COVID topic is about mental illness and COVID, because they're associated. Not with getting COVID, but with getting mental illness from COVID. A report was published in Reuters that 20% of people who recovered from COVID end up with mental illness within a few months of the recovery. Is it really true? If you get COVID, is there a one in five chance that within three months you're going to be crazy? Are you going to be some drooling, insane person who doesn't know which way is up because you had COVID? Are you going to go from a completely normal, logical, sane person to a nutcase because you had COVID? The good news is probably no. Then why would they say 20% have mental illness? Well, depends how you define mental illness. You are listening to somebody right now who had mental illness. In fact, the person you're listening to right now had mental illness less than 18 months ago. And that's me, obviously. The severe anxiety, depression, and anhedonia, which is an offshoot of depression, that I had in 2018, starting in August is mental illness. And what was happening to me then qualified that I was mentally ill. Yet, I didn't do radio at the time because I was just not feeling up to it, obviously, but I could have a coherent conversation with you. I could write coherent material on the forum, which which really made some people doubt me. Some people thought, if I can write this logically, how could I be experiencing what I say I'm experiencing? And I tried to explain, it's it's not my rational thinking that's fallen apart. It's my emotional processing of it. That's hard to picture if you've never had it. But I definitely had mental illness during those months. And it completely disrupted and ruined my life. Now, fortunately, I greatly improved starting from mid-October. And by November, I was a lot better. And by December, I was a lot more better than that. So the ruining of my life I did at the time, a lot of that was undone because I no longer had that high level of anxiety and depression, which was a really, really high level of it that was preventing me from functioning normally. That was mental illness. That was terrible. That was something that was extremely difficult to deal with and I hope never to experience again. 
But I was not of any danger to others. I was not of danger to myself. And while I would not have been able to work a job, if I had a job, I would have had to take time off. I was not able to function at that level. I was not at any point to to where I needed to be institutionalized because I could think and act rationally. And that when when you're to that point, provided you're not suicidal, which I never was, you don't need to be institutionalized. The reason I'm saying all of this is because it turns out that most of the 20% who experience mental illness within a few months of recovering from COVID, they experience either anxiety or insomnia. Now, both of these suck. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to minimize anxiety. It was awful. And I don't want to minimize insomnia, which I don't have very often. Fortunately, I can usually sleep pretty well. But the few times I've had it, that's also awful. In fact, I had it as part of what was going on with me, because whenever I'd lie down, I would feel like I was choking, which is a different kind of insomnia, but I couldn't sleep for that reason, and it was terrible. But even, I've had it where there's nothing like really wrong with me, I just can't fall asleep, and I think, wow, this sucks, I'm glad this doesn't happen often. I know, I know a guy, he's not a poker person, but he actually lives in Vegas. I know a guy in Vegas who, his life was ruined by insomnia. He just stopped being able to get quality sleep. So he's always tired. He can never stay asleep for very long. He has a hard time falling asleep. And this started from when he was a young adult. And it ruined his life. It really brought down his quality of life, and it stays that way to this day. So insomnia is not a joke. I don't want to minimize insomnia. I don't want to minimize anxiety. But they're not the same as other forms of mental illness where you really don't know what's going on. Where you're either like insane and causing a danger to others, or you can't listen to reason, or you can't take care of yourself, or you're just completely unaware of what's happening around you. That That's worse than anxiety, depression, or insomnia. As bad as those are, that's worse. And it can be more dangerous to others. So when people think of mental illness, they think of people that they've known in their lifetime who are actually crazy. And they think, oh crap, I'm going to become one of those people. 20% chance, wow. Well, no, it's a much lower chance than that. And in addition, it is found that almost two-thirds of those who experience mental illness following COVID have a history of other mental illness. So they actually say first-time mental illness following COVID, but they what they mean is first-time mental illness of this type. So maybe somebody who's had depression before now has insomnia thanks to COVID. That's first-time mental illness for insomnia, but not first-time total mental illness. So about two-thirds of them have some mental illness history. Now this is important because mental illness in most people shows up between the ages of 13 and 25. Usually if you get past age 25 and haven't had any sign of mental illness, you're not going to have mental illness. That's why what happened to me was unusual. That's why I was able to get out of most of it, because it came later in life and I was not predisposed to it. It's not part of me. It was something from like an external factor that caused my uh, dopamine levels to fall. So I, I'm not uh, predisposed to anxiety and depression as others I know 
who got it between the ages of 13 and 25 when it typically shows up. So if you've already had mental, mental illness, it means that usually you're predisposed to it. And it's much more likely you'll get it. So then what does COVID have to do with this? Well, I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. But remember, think of what happened to me. I had no history of mental illness. And I got it from what I believe was a dopamine level reduction that occurred from a combination of not being able to sleep and and the trauma of feeling like I'm choking constantly and Nexium, which causes anxiety in 1% of people and I happen to be in that 1%. And because of immediate caffeine cessation after 30 years of regularly taking it, which caused caffeine withdrawal, which caused a dopamine level dropping. And I think all these things came together that screwed up my brain chemistry big time. I, I There's no way to prove this, but that's what it appears to me. And it appeared that once I addressed these issues, that things started to return to normal. It took a little time, but that's what put it on the road to come back. So what does this have to do with COVID? Well, COVID does all kinds of strange things to your body. Many of them are not understood. Many are partially understood. Maybe many aren't understood at all. There's a lot of weird things that happens to your body from COVID that haven't happened from any other illness or don't frequently happen. Look how often people are losing smell and taste. That's not a common thing. Yeah, sometimes when you have a cold, you'll temporarily lose smell uh, and, and sometimes it'll affect your taste, but the complete loss of taste is is very uncommon for most people. Most people have never had a complete loss of taste. Complete loss of smell... Which seems like it, yes, but the truth is it's not really a complete loss of smell. It's just your uh, your nasal cavity is, is, is blocked. So to have a complete loss of taste where you can dump hot sauce on your tongue and it tastes like water, uh, most people have never experienced that in their life prior to COVID. That's one of the weird things that happens. And uh, there's many other weird things that happen to you or can happen to you during COVID that we've never seen before or are very uncommon. So because these are not understood well, and because we're even seeing other odd things that happen to people's brains and their hearts as a result of COVID, it is not hard at all to picture that in some people, COVID can mess with their brain chemistry. Just like cutting out caffeine and taking Nexium messed up my brain chemistry. And it took three months to get back to close to normal. So think of something like COVID, what it could do given everything else it can do. Think of what it could do to your brain. Think of what it could do to your brain chemistry if it throws your body out of whack that badly. This is just my theory, but it's not hard to believe this happens. And if you are already predisposed to mental illness, you probably have less tolerance for this happening. So where someone who's not predisposed to mental illness, maybe if they have uh, some brain chemistry changes, it's not as noticeable. If if the slightest change can really set you off because you've already been predisposed to mental illness from uh, genetically, then you could be in danger from this. I actually think because I suffered some permanent psychological damage from what happened to me in 2018, that I would be a candidate to get back anxiety and maybe some of these other mental illnesses as a result of COVID. So that's another reason I'm avoiding it. And I'd heard about this. I'd heard about how it brings on mental illness, and I thought, well, crap, you know, I just kind of barely got out of what happened in 2018, and I'm very thankful for it. I, I don't want this to bring it back. And I said that very early on here, that I'm afraid that will bring it back. 
And I'm still afraid it'll bring it back. And I'm afraid, afraid it can damage my lungs. There's just too many reasons that I, I don't want COVID. So that's why I've been so vigilant in avoiding it much more than most others in my age group. That's why. So I'm not trying to uh, minimize this at all. I'm just telling you that the 20% mental illness, you have to understand what it is. It's about two-thirds people who already had some kind of mental illness in the past, and mental illness is defined as anything that is a disorder of your brain, even like anxiety or insomnia or depression. Though I'm hearing depression is not as much as more of anxiety or uh, insomnia. Just wanted to clear that up. Okay, so now it is time for Druff's Jew Tip of the Week. And again, for those of you that are new, I am a Jew. I am... Jewish. I've always been Jewish. I'm fully Jewish. Both parents are Jewish. There are no non-Jews in my lineage. I'm proud of being Jewish. So when I talk about the Jew tip of the week, I actually mean it in a good way. Because the stereotype about Jews with money, I don't even think it's an insult. Because as long as you're acting ethically, as long as you're not doing anything illegal, being smart with money and always wanting good value out of things, these are good traits that lead to healthy financial decisions. So that I, I actually take it as a compliment that I'm a cheap Jew who cares about money. So, this is the Jew Tip of the Week segment. And this week, we are going to talk about dentists. Many of whom are Jews, by the way. But many are not. And you have to watch out for them. I'm not saying you have to watch out for them because they're Jewish. You have to watch out for all dentists, no matter what their religion or race may be. There are some very good and honest dentists out there. So if you have a good dentist that you're convinced is a good dentist, you're probably right. He probably is a good dentist. But by the way, you can never be sure. But if you think you can trust your dentist and you haven't seen any sign that anything is shady, then you're probably okay. But unfortunately, there's a lot of dentists out there who are either incompetent, shady, or both. And there are some dentists, the worst of the worst, who are just outright scammers. You may say, well, yes, but that's true of doctors as well. And I would say, you are correct. But it is worse in dentistry. It's kind of like comparing poker to sports betting. There are shady poker sites out there that scam you. There are some semi-shady poker sites which don't directly scam you but do a lot of unethical things. And there's some good poker sites out there. In sports betting, there's a few good sites, but there's a lot of bad ones and a lot of really bad ones that are outright scams. Way worse than poker. So you have to be much more vigilant about being on a good sports book than you have to be about being on a good poker site. Though in both cases, you should be careful. And I would say the same thing about doctors and dentists. So, the problem is that unless you are a dentist, unless you have dental training, it is very difficult to tell if the dentist is telling you the truth. With doctors, it's a little bit easier. Because with doctors, you'll usually go there if you are having some kind of problem. And usually you can have a better idea if the doctor is recommending something that makes sense. And there's a lot of times people are put through unnecessary surgeries or put through unnecessary expensive tests. And you have to watch out for that for sure, too. But at least the doctor's not that likely to tell you of a problem that you're not aware you have 
and ex- ex- and suggest some kind of expensive fix for it. Or if you come into the doctor with a small problem, it doesn't happen all that often that you're recommended to do something large to fix it that's very expensive. Again, these things happen, but not as often as with dentistry. The problem is with dentistry is that a lot of the work that's done, you don't know if you need it or not. So you go into the dentist, they take an x-ray, or they examine your mouth, and they tell you you have some cavities. And they show you something on a screen that's supposedly x-rays of your mouth, but you can't tell for sure, that shows cavities. But the cavity is not totally clear because it's an x-ray. It's like, okay, well, look at this little discolored spot here. It's a little darker spot here. Well, that's a cavity. Well, okay, it kind of makes sense, but what if it's something else? You don't know. You're not a dentist. What if this isn't even your picture? What if this is a picture of someone else's mouth? You're not going to be able to tell. It's an x-ray. You can't tell. So you have to trust them that the cavities they're pointing at are cavities are really cavities. You also have to trust them that when they tell you you need a root canal because you're having some pain and a tooth, that you really do need a root canal and that they're not just making this up to make more money. You also have to worry that they're not sending you elsewhere for expensive procedures where they have some sort of cut from the other dentist. Like if they send you to an endodontist to do uh, expensive work, that the endodontist doesn't give them a kickback. So... You've got to be aware that dentists, there are some dentists out there that just don't know what they're doing, that they're they're well-meaning but incompetent. There are some out there that are just outright scammers or semi-scammers but do know what they're doing. And there's some that are a combination of both incompetent and scammers or semi-scammers. And you may ask, how would you even begin to determine this if you always have to trust what they're telling you? How can you tell when they're telling the truth and when they're not telling you the truth? Well, there's some various ways to do this. First of all, you have to uh, look at reviews online. Fortunately, in 2020, and even before 2020, well, I said 2020, I mean 2021. See, I forgot. What you, I've been pretty good about that tonight, but I, I screwed up that it's not 2021. Fortunately, 2021, and even before 2021, it is easy to look online and see reviews. Now, if you see one or two reviews, it's not going to help very much. But you don't need like a thousand reviews. Even 30 reviews is plenty to evaluate a dentist. Even 10 can give you some help. Just kind of figure it out for yourself and look through the reviews. And if the reviews are overwhelmingly positive, and more importantly, if they lack negative ones, because some dentists ask the patients who seem happy to give a good review. So if you see tons and tons of good reviews more than other dentists in the area, that's probably happening. Does that mean you shouldn't trust the dentist? Not necessarily. In fact, the dentist I'm going to now, I believe, encourages people to leave reviews. And I will say, though, after going to this dentist, that uh, I was happy in several ways, and I believe those reviews are justified. But I also think that they are asking people to leave them. So they're not asking people to lie. They're, they're saying, hey, you know, can you leave a good review for us because uh, you've had a good experience. I've even seen signs in the office saying that. So that by itself doesn't mean shadiness. But what you should look for are bad reviews. In this case, bad reviews mean a lot more than good reviews. Because... In dentistry, good reviews don't mean that much. If the dentist is friendly 
and pretends to know what he's talking about, and if the people don't come away with any problem that makes them unhappy, they can believe it's a good dentist even if they're being scammed. Remember, scammers often rip people off who don't even realize they're getting ripped off. That's how they do it. So, same with dentists. If dentists lie about you needing cavities filled when you really don't, and then they do unnecessary work, and you think they filled your cavities, and you go home and everything seems good, then yeah, you're out a bunch of money, but you think you had necessary work done, and the dentist seemed nice and competent, so you're happy you give him a five-star review. In reality, the guy's a scammer. So that's, that's why you shouldn't worry, or you shouldn't even give much credit to five-star reviews. It's good that they're there, but it's not that big of a deal. You should look for negative ones. And if there's an absence of negative ones, especially for a dentist that's been around for a while, that's a good sign. However, it's not that simple because there are some areas of dentistry where it's not the dentist's fault if bad things happen. One example is when they fill a cavity or try to fill a cavity and then it still hurts and then suddenly it starts hurting, you go back in and they say, oh, sorry, we have to do a root canal now. And you go, what the hell? This tooth wasn't hurting. Now they drilled it. To, to fill a cavity, now I need a root canal. This dentist sucks. The problem is you can't necessarily say that because the process of drilling a tooth and filling it disrupts the tooth and can often bring on the pain that will make you need a root canal. So because decay causes both the need to get fillings and the need to get root canals, it's, it's the same uh, issue that causes both, just one's more severe than the other, because both are tooth decay related, and one is a kind of intrusive, invasive process to the tooth, yes, it is legitimate that a very good dentist could still bring on a root canal, just because that's what's destined to happen, that as soon as you fill it, it's going to need one. Also, the dentist could be doing a poor job and disrupt something, do a bad job with the filling, whatever it is, and, uh, and cause the need for a root canal when you really don't need one. And once they do it, then you do. Once they screw up, then you do need the root canal. But it could have been because of sloppy work. But not being an, ex- an expert, and also not even even with an expert looking at it afterwards, he wouldn't see the before. Uh, he wouldn't be able to look in your mouth beforehand. Like it's, It can be very tough even after the fact to tell which one. So when that happens, you, you can note it, but you can't totally blame the dentist. That happened to me when I got a filling in 2015, and I... Don't think it was the dentist's fault. I'm not sure. There was a different dentist I'm going to now. But you will have people complaining about things like that, not understanding that this can happen naturally where it's not the dentist's fault. But if you see any reviews that seem to indicate that the dentist is recommending work that doesn't need to be done, or they went to another dentist that has said that, work doesn't need to be done and that uh, it looks like the second opinion showing you don't need to do anything. If you see people writing things like that, run far away. Do not give the benefit of the doubt. You need to say, okay, this seems like a scammer to me. You don't need to prove it's a scammer. You just need to say, this is enough to where I'm not going to even try this one. So that's the first thing. If you see anything related to unnecessary work, if you see anything related to what seems like lack of competence in a a number of reviews that seem credible, you should not bother. If there's too many negative reviews, don't bother. When I say not bother, I mean don't, don't go to them. When you actually go, let's say you see 
roughly good reviews, or there just aren't many reviews. Let's say you look at dentists in your town, and there just aren't many reviews at all. Each one has like four reviews. That doesn't tell you that much. Also, people are more likely to write reviews that are negative than positive unless they're asked to leave the positive, because you have more motivation to write something negative when you've had a bad experience than write something positive when you had a good experience. That's just human nature. So if there are not enough reviews, it's not going to tell you much. So let's say they all don't have many reviews in your area, and you just kind of pick one that looks okay from what few reviews there are. Well, here's the red flags you should look for. First of all, as a new patient, you should ask, is there any kind of new patient deal? Can you uh, do a full examination for free or very cheap? If the answer is no, the answer should be goodbye. Why? Because if they're trying to squeeze you for every dollar right off the bat, that's where you don't want to go. You don't want any dentist that is too money-grubbing, that is too obsessed with making money, because then every decision they make is going to be colored by how they can make maximum profit. So if, if they won't even see you the first time without giving you a good deal on that first visit, then forget it. Now, their willingness to do this doesn't mean they're honest. It could mean they're drawing you in for the long con, but it's already a better sign that they're willing to do this. Some dentists that are very greedy figure, hey, I'm not going to let anyone get over me. Uh, so I don't want this person coming in, getting a bunch of x-rays, getting an examination, get, and, and, you know, getting a lot of my opinions, taking up my time, and, and paying me either nothing or 50 bucks. It's not worth it to me. I, I want, because they may never come back. So F them, I'm going to charge them for everything. Well, that, that's already a bad start. That's, that's already a start like they're trying to reach into your pocket immediately. So stay away from that. They may not even be a scammer. They may just be greedy. You, just don't, you don't want a dentist that it seems like that uh, every decision is financially driven. So if you get that answer, say no, no thank you, goodbye. But let's say they say, okay, yes, come in and, and we'll examine you for cheap or free. So you get examined. Have them show you on the x-ray where you have the cavities, if they say you have cavities. The cavities aren't that expensive. And they take some time. So it's not, cavities aren't the best use of dentist's time. They don't make that much on cavities. They do them, of course. That's, uh, that's part of their practice. But the, the big money is in the, the bigger procedures, the, the root canals, the, uh, the implants, uh, stuff like that. They, they, cavities, they, they do, it's worth their time, but it's not, it's not the big money. So, because, because it takes enough of their time to where they're, they're just, uh, it's not, and then there's some materials cost to it. There's just not uh, the type of profit margin as there is for the bigger procedures. So cavities are not as likely to lie to you about, but but some do. So if you walk in and they say there's like a big mouthful of cavities, you have seven cavities, they say, you you may want to go get a second opinion at another dentist that has good reviews and see if they tell you the same seven ones need to be filled. Remember which teeth, ask them, ask them to list for you. They don't have to know why. You have a right to know. You can, say, can you list for me the, the tooth number? They, they have all the teeth numbered. The tooth numbers that need the cavities. And then write that down. Keep it in your pocket. And if you're suspicious, which you you, know, you should be, if there's a whole lot of them off the bat and you don't have a chronic problem with that. Now, so, some people have a chronic problem with a lot of cavities. Some people are predisposed to a lot of cavities. There is a genetic element that some people don't realize. There is a very genetic element to how many cavities you'll get. It's not just about what you eat. And some people are more predisposed to getting cavities than others. So if you are one of those people who's always getting a lot of cavities and you walk into a new dentist, they say you have a lot of cavities, you shouldn't be shocked. But if, if you've never had many cavities in your life and all of a sudden you're coming in, they want to do seven fillings, 
uh, or even three fillings, four fillings, and you've never had them, you've barely had any in your life, that's a red flag. You may want to do a consultation with another dentist. You don't have to tell them you've been to the first dentist and see if they list the same teeth. And if they do, you, you don't come in and tell them which teeth. You don't even mention the other dentist. You just keep it in your pocket or keep it at home. Let the new dentist tell you which teeth they think need to be filled. And then compare them. That's if you seem to be getting recommendations to uh, redo this uh, to, to for new cavities. Also beware when they want to redo a bunch of work that other dentists did. So in some cases, that's justified. In some cases, you'll go to a crappy dentist that you think is okay. In reality, the filling will be lousy. And they'll say, oh, we have to redo this, we have to redo that, and they'll give you what sounds like a good explanation. But also, you might want to get a second opinion on that. And also, try to have them give you a detailed explanation. Try to have them really detail it why it's not good. Ask them questions. And then use your best judgment if you think they're, they're BSing you. A lot of unnecessary work is done. Now, there was a dental scam that I know was aimed at a senior citizen that I'm aware of, that uh, this person was told that they need all kinds of work, and then partner dentists were brought in, a periodontist was brought in to examine them, and then they were quickly charged $100, and uh, um, like, like tons of unnecessary work they were told they needed for thousands of dollars. And this is someone with no pain in their mouth and no problems. If you go to any new dentist and they present you with major work you have to do costing thousands of dollars when you walked in with no problems, huge red flag. Huge red flag. In general, you should not need major work if you're not aware of any major problems in your mouth. If your mouth is feeling fine and you just go into the dentist because it's time to do so and you hear you need $4,000 worth of work, don't do it. It's a mistake. And if you really think you should, then go to another dentist and, and don't mention the other opinion and just ask them to examine you and see what they think. That is a common scam that people come in and the dentist believes that they are going to be able to trick you. This is especially aimed at elderly people. Even elderly people who are very sharp just the fact that they're elderly, they think they can trick them. So if you're elderly, be especially on guard. And elderly, I mean by like even like over 60, but especially over 70. But if you walk in with no pain and they want you to do thousands of dollars worth of dental work, it's usually a mistake. When you need the expensive dental work is when there is a problem that you're aware of. For example, you need implants because you've had teeth extracted before and that you're extracting the tooth in the first place because there's a problem with it. There's pain in the area, whatever, that's been there for a long time. Uh, or a root canal. You know when you need a root canal. A root canal is uh, it's, it's persistent pain that uh, often is made worse from cold or hot food or beverages touching it or from pressure on it. And it's consistent. It's something that doesn't uh, come and go. I have had dental pain, which feels like it might be a root canal coming, even with a cold sensitivity, and then a week later it's gone. Well, that was something else. It was probably gum pain. Something you may not know is that pain in your mouth, dental pain is very nonspecific. It's, sometimes you can feel it in one place, and it's actually not where it seems to be. You can be sure a certain tooth hurts, and in reality it's another tooth. Usually if one tooth's really excruciating, you're right, it's that tooth, but uh, the kind of dull pain 
can be just pain in the area. It can be gum pain that you're feeling in the tooth. Sometimes sensitivity to cold can be a gum inflammation that you're feeling in your tooth. So always give it some time. Give it uh, two weeks if you can. If it's unbearable, then you probably do need something done. But if it's just kind of moderately bothersome, uh, give it a few weeks to see if it goes away. A lot of times it will. Because that's another scam. You come in with a pain. Oh, we got to do a root canal. So that's why you should wait and see if it's consistent pain and that it's it's very sensitive to hot and cold or to pressure or to both. And, and it doesn't get better over a few weeks. Or it gets significantly worse, like where it's hard to concentrate on anything else. That's when you need a root canal. That's when you need major work. That's when you need extraction sometimes. Uh, followed by implants if you want to replace the tooth. But don't just walk in and agree to major work when everything seems fine. So if they propose that, either just don't do it or go to a second dentist with good reviews and have them look at it, have them do a checkup. You can even say after they're done with the checkup, hey, another dentist mentioned there may be a problem back there and have them look again more closely at that tooth. If you are feeling like you might be scammed, you probably are. If you're feeling funny about things that are recommending or how the bill keeps adding up, where it seems like they want to do endless work on you every time you come in, then you're probably right. Your feeling is probably correct. There are many dentists out there like that. If you feel like you're getting scammed, you probably are getting scammed. Also, you should price shop. And also, you should express the desire to go to specialists when told you need work done and see how they react. Even if you're not planning to really go to the specialist, but say you want to go to specialists and say that you know, you'll you'll choose them. You're going to look at reviews yourself and choose them because that, then they gain nothing from it. If they tell you you need a root canal and they know you're going to go to an endodontist who isn't recommended by them, that you're just going to look up one and pick at random, then uh, they are not gaining a single dollar from you. So if you start stating things like that, then they're less likely to BS you about the need for that because they're not going to gain from it. Uh, even if you end up doing the work with them, it's important for them to think that you're not going to and see what they still say. But the best rule of thumb to use is just simply not to do major work if it doesn't feel like you need major work. Major work. There's not a, a problem in your mouth that you're aware of. I would. I, I don't have a single case in my life where I have ever extracted a tooth or done a root canal where there wasn't significant pain already. Never once. I've waited until the tooth became a problem, and then I chose the best thing to do. In some cases, it was an extraction. In some cases, it was a root canal. Like in November, it was a root canal. And the root canal worked. But sometimes... An extraction needs to be done. Sometimes the tooth looks like it can't be saved. I made a decision at one point where the tooth was looking like it was in bad shape and that it was projected to last another five years. I said, I'm not going to go through a root canal to save something that's going to be gone in five years anyway. So, F it, I'll just have it pulled. But make sure that, number one, they're aware that you're not going to just spend endless money, that money is important to you that you're trying to save money, 
Don't ever indicate that you have a lot of money. Don't ever make it... Downplay whatever your financial situation is. Don't brag about your job. Don't brag about your position. Make it seem less prestigious than it is. Make yourself seem less successful than you are. You don't want it to seem like you have endless money, a big well they can dig into to harvest money. You, you don't want that. You want to make it seem like every decision to get work done is a big decision and a big burden on you. Then they're less likely to go after you to scam you. When I, I had to find a new dentist because mine moved way out of state. So I was searching around the area and then I, I was considering going to the one that took over the practice for the dentist I was at before, but I didn't know that much about that dentist. But uh, after someone else I knew had a bad experience there, even though this person was well-regarded, this this uh, dentist, I said, well, okay, I'm going to trust the person I know who had a bad experience there. A lot of this doesn't sound good to me. I'm going to look for somebody else. So I, I found a practice that had a lot of good reviews. In fact, a lot more reviews than other dentists, which was a little bit of a red flag. But I couldn't find any bad ones. But I, I was pushed into this decision because of the need for the root canal. I needed to have that done in soon. So I asked if they're going to look at me, and they agreed to look at me for $59 and do a full full mouth x-rays and a, and a long exam. So I, I thought that was a good start. And then the the dentist was very, very detailed with me, with going over everything very slowly on the... Uh, on the x-ray and I'll tell you what made me think the guy wasn't a scammer if he was he was a very good one if he was a very clever one if he was a scammer I'll tell you why I was uh, I felt good he was going over other things in my mouth okay I see a cavity here he'd say which I was aware of so the, some of the cavities he was pointing out I was aware of that I had meant to do when, when COVID started and then I didn't because of COVID so I had some cavities sitting unfortunately one turned into a root canal which sucked I still have to go back for a few others but he was pointing to some others I knew existed, so I knew these weren't made up. But he was also pointing to previous work done by the other dentist. And he was saying, okay, well, see, this here isn't perfect, but it's not bad. Like, I, 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 I'm not impressed by it, but it's, it's okay. It, it can get by. It may be a problem in the future, but it's fine right now. I wouldn't do anything with this. This one here, I think, uh, uh, maybe should be touched up. This, and so he was... He could have gone on and said, that, yeah, this is awful, this is awful, this, we have to redo all this, the last dentist was terrible, and the, the guy's out of state now, there's nothing, you know, like... Eh. That would be the approach of someone who's scamming. Here he, he told me, even the ones he wasn't that impressed with, he told me, oh yeah, that's, you know, here's some potential vulnerabilities in the future, but, but right now it looks fine, so I wouldn't worry about it. So he's actually giving me reasons he's not going to do work on certain previous fillings that either have uh, weren't that good of a job or have decayed somewhat over time, as they do. Fillings don't last forever. So yes, to killing, if fillings will sometimes fall out. They will sometimes uh, partially fall out or, or uh, cavities will, will start existing under them. So that that's natural. That happens all the time to people. And that's not a... That doesn't always have to do with the, with the job the dentist uh, did. Sometimes it just happens over over time that passes. So... He was pointing out what I'd have to look for in the future, but not now, uh, what looks okay, what what he would recommend doing something right now. It, it was all very convincing. It didn't come off scammy one bit. It really seemed like an honest assessment 
with how much work he was saying he does not need to do. So maybe there was a super clever scam, but to me it looked pretty legit. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned in my Root Canal segment, when I talked about the Root Canal I had in November, he worked with me a lot about the uh, issues I had with the dental dam that covers your whole mouth with rubber that I can't really do since I had those issues two years ago. So, uh, you know, he worked with me. He was uh, very good with all of that. And it looked like he did a good job. And uh, even when I had the pain afterwards for the 10 days, which was unusual, which was just a function of my own mouth, not anything he did wrong, he was uh, showing me why it's probably okay. And uh, but, but at the same time, said, yes, there's a small chance, there's a small crack in it we can't see, and we have to extract it, but probably not, don't worry about it. Like It, it just seemed like he knows what he's doing, and it seemed like uh, he was honest. It seemed like that he wasn't just doing work because there was potential work to be done, but also was honest about work that needed to be done that I knew needed to be done, and some of it, which I didn't know, but, but seemed like it was reasonable. So, okay, now, am I 100% sure? No. Is it, there's a possibility that he's exaggerating what needs to be done to, to pad his wallet and take out a Maiju wallet? Yes, it's possible that that could be going on. It's possible with any dentist, but I, I had a good feeling. I had a good feeling that this was legit, and that, that's what I was looking for. Someone who seemed competent, someone who knew what he was talking about. I like the fact that he was able to analyze each tooth and give me what sounded like a you know, very reasonable and good explanation for you know, what, what was looking good there and what wasn't. So all of that spoke well. Another thing to watch out for is when a dentist is making mistakes. Mistakes either functionally in their work where they've actually uh, caused some harm with the process of what they're doing or mistakes in diagnosis. I went to a dentist once in Las Vegas in the 2000s who when he examined me said, oh my God, that's a gigantic cavity. And he pointed to this tooth in the back. I said, oh, I know about that one. That's actually resorption. Resorption is actually where your body gets confused and starts attacking its own tooth and destroys its, destroys your tooth from within. There's nothing you can do to stop it. It's not hygiene-related. It actually happens because your body gets confused and thinks the tooth is a foreign object and goes to destroy it. So that was happening to one of my teeth in the back in the 2000s, and I was aware it was in the process of it. I was not pulling it yet because uh, it wasn't hurting me. Eventually, it did get pulled. But at the time, it was still there, and he told me it was a giant cavity. And I said, oh, I know about that. That's resorption. Someone already looked at that. And he said, oh, come on. That's not resorption. I said, no, no, it is. They, they looked at it uh, pretty closely, and they told me it's resorption. And he goes, that is not resorption. That dentist, whoever said that, is a dumbass. That was his words. Whoever said that is a dumbass. I'm 100% sure that's not resorption. That's just a giant cavity that he got confused and thought was resorption. Well, he was wrong. Eventually... That tooth had such severe resorption that when I finally had it removed, the dentist who removed it said that this was the worst case of resorption he's ever seen before it hurt someone to where they had to get it removed. He said it it decayed in such a way that it went the maximum amount of time before it, it had to be pulled. Like somehow it just was avoiding hitting the nerve for the longest time that I was able to go without having it pulled. He said, never seen this one that bad. Of that 100% it was resorption, and that, uh, and this is a different dentist than who originally told me it was resorption. 
But the one who pulled it told me that this is one of the worst uh, cases of resorption he ever had seen. And I actually went to an antidontist to pull that one. And I was told that. So a specialist actually told me afterwards that yes, it's resorption and it's the worst one he's ever seen. Yet the dentist in Las Vegas told me that this was a dumbass who called it resorption. And he was sure. He looked at it again. Oh, yeah, huge cavity. So uh, the guy was incompetent. And I didn't know that beforehand. Like I, uh, Prior to that, the guy had always seemed to know what he was talking about. But he wouldn't even consider. And, and apparently, I, I even asked uh, when, when I had the tooth, I said, is there any chance that someone could get confused that this would be a cavity instead of resorption? They said, no. Even if it wasn't this far gone, this, this should have been pretty clear to any dentist looking at it that it was resorption. So I don't think the guy was a scammer. He wasn't looking to fill it. He he thought it was just a, a, a super gigantic cavity that uh, was actually a periodontist. That's why he wasn't going to fill it. But uh, this showed the guy was uh, incompetent, that he could not see the difference between a cavity and resorption in a bad resorption case. So any, any mistakes like that stay away, too, because sometimes the dentist could mean well, but they just don't know what they're doing. Keep in mind, some dentists did not intend to become dentists. They attempted to become doctors and could not get through medical school or could not get into medical school. So their fallback option was dentistry. Some dentists are failed doctors or failed attempted doctors. There's no way to tell this, but keep that in mind, that some dentists out there are ones who couldn't make it through medical school or couldn't even get in. So is that who you really want to trust? So just watch out and beware that uh, just because they've got a doctor in front of their name, that does not mean that they're not out to scam you. And that even explanations that seem to make sense a lot of times are not correct and are looked to get your money. Always be careful because there's some dentists who are especially bad. When I was younger, just compared to the kid, my mama noticed funny things I did. Like shooting puppies with a BB gun. I'd poison guppies when I was done. I'd find a pussycat bashing its head. That's when my mama said... What did she say? She said, my boy, I think someday you'll find a way to make your actual tendencies pay. You'll be a dentist. You have a talent for causing things. Some be a dentist. People will pay you to be inhumane. Your temperament's wrong for the priesthood. And teaching would suit you still. Some be a dentist. You'll be a success. Yep. Don't want to go to that guy. All right, uh, we're done here. Thank you for listening to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. We'll be back Friday or Saturday next week. I'm not sure which one. One of the two. One of the two. I, I'm, I'm really not sure which one, but it'll happen. We'll be back, as we always are. My uh, colonoscopy is getting a little closer, so keep that in mind. That week I may not be on. That'll be uh, three weeks from now. Depends how I feel. 
Hopefully I feel okay to do the show after my colonoscopy, but you never know. It's possible yes, possible no. But I'll definitely be on next week. And the week after. The week after that is questionable. Well, I hope I sounded okay for the most part tonight on this new sound card. I think I have to tweak a few things. You can text me regarding... You know what I want you to text me? If you're listening in the archives, please text me the exact timestamp down to the second of when it didn't sound good. Like when the volume did something weird. Just You can just do one of them. You don't have to do like all, all ten of them or whatever, but... If you hear any point where my volume jumps up and down like it shouldn't, just send me the minute and second mark in the archives that you heard it happen, and then I'll go listen, and it'll give me a better chance to see what I can do to stop it. That would be helpful. We're still feeling our way through this one. I'm hoping that we can get this working properly. Anyway... We will uh, continue the show throughout 2021 the way we always have. Thank uh, Eric Benzamokin for giving the $200 for this week's free roll. And I thank Trader Ruski for his time on the show. Even though his equipment really failed at the end there. And I thank all you listeners for sticking around with the show and listening to it every week. Or even if you're an occasional listener. By the way, I want to give a shout-out here to Jeannie, who uh, is in the hospital. Voluntary procedure, but still uh, kind of a fairly big surgery. Tough to recover from, and she's sitting in the hospital bed trying to pass the time. And I know this show is a good way to pass the time, because it's so damn long. So get well, Jeannie. I hope you made it this far to hear it. Good night, everybody, and shalom!